Chapter 18 He's really ill, should we call someone? A voice in the boys' dorm room was saying. Harry took great gulps of air and pushed himself up in bed, the pain half-blinding him. He had to tell Ron. It was very important that he tell him. Your dad, Harry panted. Your dad's been attacked, guard duty I think. Ron stared at him. What? Your dad. He's been bitten. It's serious, there's blood everywhere. I'm going for help, said the same voice from earlier. It was Neville, and Harry heard his footsteps running from the dormitory. Harry, mate, you were just dreaming, Ron said uncertainly. No, Harry cried. It wasn't a dream, not an ordinary dream. I was there, I saw it, I did it. Harry could hear Seamus and Dean muttering but didn't care. He retched again and Ron hurried out of the way. Harry, you're not well, Ron said shakily. I'm fine. Harry choked and ignored the irony of that. It's your dad you've got to worry about. We need to find him, he's bleeding like mad, I was, it was a huge snake. Harry was shaking and Ron didn't speak. Harry concentrated as the pain in his scar slowly began to subside. Professor McGonagall came hurrying into the dormitory in her tartan dressing gown. What is it, Potter? Harry had never been so pleased to see her. She was a member of the Order of the Phoenix. Ron's dad, Harry stammered. He's been attacked by a snake and it's serious, I saw it happen. It was real, I didn't imagine it. Mr. Weasley was asleep on the floor and he was attacked by a gigantic snake and there was loads of blood. And he collapsed and someone's got to get to him. I believe you, Potter, said Professor McGonagall. Now put on your dressing gown, you too, Mr. Weasley. We're going to see the headmaster. They followed Professor McGonagall out of the dormitory and into the moonlit corridor. Harry tried not to panic as they walked. Soon they reached the gargoyle and Professor McGonagall said the password, Fizzing Wisby, and they climbed the stone staircase to the polished oak door, which opened on its own accord. Oh, it's you Professor McGonagall, and, ah! Dumbledore was sitting at his desk, poring over parchment by candlelight, but he seemed wide awake his bright blue eyes intent on Professor McGonagall. Professor Dumbledore, Potter had a nightmare. It wasn't a nightmare, Harry said quickly. I well. I was asleep, but then it wasn't an ordinary dream, it was real, I saw it happen. Ron's dad, Mr. Weasley, he's been attacked by a giant snake. How did you see this? Dumbledore asked. He wasn't looking at Harry but rather at his own interlocked fingers. Where were you positioned as you watched this attack happen? Harry gaped at Dumbledore. It was as though he knew. I was the snake, Harry managed. I saw it from the snake's point of view. Dumbledore looked to Ron's now very grey-looking face and said, Is Arthur seriously injured? Yes, Harry said emphatically. Dumbledore abruptly stood and turned to one of the old portraits of the former Hogwarts, headmasters near the ceiling. Everard. And you too, Dillis. A wizard and which looked down upon Dumbledore. Dumbledore addressed them. The man has red hair and glasses. Everard, I need you to raise the alarm, make sure he is found by the right people. They both nodded and moved sideways out of their frames. Please sit down, all three of you, Dumbledore said, still not looking at Harry. Everard and Dillis may not be back for several minutes as they visit their other portraits. 
As they sat down and Dumbledore turned to Fox the Phoenix where he sat on his perch and stroked his head. We will need, he said softly to the bird, a warning. There was a flash of fire and the phoenix was gone. Dumbledore then strode over to one of the fragile silver instruments in the room and carried it over to his desk, tapping it gently with his wand. The instrument whirled to life. Tiny puffs of green smoke issues from the tube at its top, and slowly a snake's head grew out of the smoke. Naturally, naturally, Dumbledore murmured, staring at the smoke. But in essence divided. The smoke snake's head split itself instantly into two. Dumbledore's face seemed to reveal a look of grim satisfaction as he gave the instrument another tap with his wand and it stilled. Suddenly Everard reappeared in his portrait. Dumbledore. What news? Dumbledore said at once. I yelled until someone came running, said the wizard. They carried him up a few minutes later. He doesn't look good. So much blood. Good, said Dumbledore as Ron made a convulsive movement. I take it Dillis will have seen him arrive. That moment the witch reappeared in her portrait. Yes, they've taken him to St. Mungo's. They carried him past my portrait. He looks bad. Thank you, said Dumbledore, and he turned now to Professor McGonagall. Minerva, I need you to go and wake the other Weasley children. Of course. Professor McGonagall rose and hurried toward the door, where she paused. What about Molly? That will be a job for Fawkes once he has finished keeping a lookout for anybody approaching but she might already know that excellent clock of hers. Harry thought of Mrs. Weasley's clock hand, which now must surely be pointed at mortal peril. But it was very late. Was Mrs. Weasley watching her clock? Harry thought of Mrs. Weasley's bowgart turning to Mr. Weasley's lifeless body. Dumbledore now rummaged in one of his cupboards and withdrew a blackened tea kettle. He tapped it with his wand and murmured the portkey spell. Portus! Then Dumbledore marched over to another portrait, one of a wizard dozing in his chair and wearing Slytherin robes. Phineas! Phineas! The man in the portrait gave a theatrical jerk and opened his eyes. Yes. I need you to visit your other portrait. You are to give Sirius Black and Remus Lupin the message that Arthur Weasley has been gravely injured and that his wife, children, and Harry Potter will be arriving at the house shortly. Do you understand? Harry thought about his two-way mirror and then paled still further. He'd left it in his school robes back in his dorm room. Yes, yes, the man in the portrait said. Very well. And he disappeared from the portrait as the office door opened. Fred, George, and Ginny were ushered inside by Professor McGonagall, all of them looking shocked and disheveled. Harry, what's going on? Ginny started. Your father has been injured in the course of his work with the Order of the Phoenix, Dumbledore told them before Harry could speak. He has been taken to St. Mungo's Hospital for magical maladies and injuries. I am sending you back to headquarters, which is much closer to the hospital than the borough. You will meet your mother there. You will be traveling by Port Key. We are just waiting to hear back from Phineas that Sirius and Remus know of your arrival. There was a flash of flame in the middle of the office that left a single golden feather drifting in the air. That is Fox's warning, Dumbledore said. She must know that you are out of bed. Minerva, go and head her off, tell her any story. Professor McGonagall turned and left immediately. My great-great-grandson says they are expecting the guests. Phineas called, 
reappearing in his portrait and wrinkling his nose. Still playing host for the half-breed I see. Dumbledore ignored the last words and ushered the kids forward. Come here then. On the count of three then, one, two. Harry, arm extended, glanced up as Dumbledore said. Three. And their eyes locked. At once, Harry's scar burned with pain and a terrifyingly strong surge of hatred overwhelmed Harry. He wanted to strike, to bite, to sink in fangs. And then he touched the port key and felt a powerful jerk in his navel and the ground vanished beneath his feet. Harry's feet landed on solid ground again and he stumbled, scrambling up to his feet in the basement kitchen of Twelve, Grimald Place, and Sirius and Remus were hurrying toward them all, looking extremely anxious. What's going on? Sirius said, rushing toward Harry as Remus extended a hand to help Ginny stand up. Phineas said Arthur's been badly injured. Fred, George, Ginny, and Ron all turned to look at Harry. Harry shied away from their stares as Remus came to stand beside Sirius in front of Harry. Harry concentrated on the worried faces of his guardians. It was... I had a kind of vision, you know, like last June. Before the third task. Sirius nodded, his dark eyes huge in his face. Remus nodded too, very slowly. And so Harry told them about all that he had seen, altering the story a bit so it sounded more like he was on the sidelines. Ron, white-faced, gave Harry a fleeting look but didn't speak. When Harry had finished, Sirius, Remus, Fred, George, and Ginny were all still staring at him. A crease had appeared on Remus's brow, and Sirius's pale face had gone a bit green. Is Mum here? Fred said, turning to look at Sirius and Remus. She probably doesn't know what's happened yet, Remus said quietly. The important thing was to get you away before Umbridge could interfere. I expect Dumbledore's letting Molly know now. We've got to go to St. Mungo's, Ginny said urgently. Sirius, Remus, can you lend us cloaks or something? Sirius shook his head, seeming to come out of his stunned reverie at Harry's story. You lot can't go tearing off to St. Mungo's. Course we can, Fred said. He's our dad. There's no way to explain how you knew Arthur was attacked before the hospital even let Molly know, Remus said. Again his voice was quiet but it carried well. What does that matter? George said hotly. It matters because Harry is having visions of things that are happening hundreds of miles away. Remus said. The Ministry cannot know that. Fred and George looked like they couldn't care less about what the Ministry knew. Ron was still white and silent. Somebody could have told us. We could have heard it somewhere other than Harry. Ginny was saying. Listen. Sirius said, sounding like he was struggling for calm. Your dad's been hurt while on duty for the Order and the circumstances are fishy enough without his children knowing about it seconds after it happened. You could seriously damage the Orders. We don't care about the dumb order, Fred shouted. It's our dad dying we're talking about, George yelled. This is how it is, Sirius suddenly shouted back. His hands had clenched into fists. Like it or not, we have to accept it. There are things worth dying for, Remus said, placing a steadying hand on Sirius's arm and looking at Fred and George with a very sober expression on his lined and scarred face. We know that this is hard, but we all have to wait to hear from Molly. Fred and George looked mutinous, their eyes darting between Remus and Sirius. Sirius still looked like he might erupt again but was taking deep breaths in and out of his nose. 
Ginny took a few shaky steps and then sank into the nearest chair at the table. Harry looked at Ron, who made a funny movement, and then sat. The twins finally finished their glaring at Harry's guardians and then sat on either side of Ginny. Harry looked at his guardians. He knew his own face was pale and stunned-looking. Remus stepped away from Sirius and put a warm hand softly on Harry's shoulder, ushering him to take a seat. Sirius followed a little numbly and sat beside Harry while Remus went quietly over to the stove and began to prepare tea. In a few moments, Remus summoned the tea things and cups to the table, sitting across from Harry and Sirius and for a while the only sounds were the crackling of the fireplace in the kitchen and the soft clink of the teacups as they drank. Sirius sat very close to Harry and Harry was glad for his presence, although he couldn't bring himself to meet his godfather's eyes. Remus's kind eyes on him were unpitying as always, but still looked full of concern. Suddenly there was a burst of flame in midair and a scroll of parchment fell onto the table, accompanied by a single golden feather. Remus's long arm swept agilely across the table and picked up the parchment, handing it immediately to George who sat beside him. George ripped open the letter and read aloud. Dad is still alive. I am setting out to St. Mungo's now. Stay where you are. I will send news when I can. Mum. George's wide eyes looked around the table. Still alive, he said slowly. But that makes it sound like. No one spoke and the night stretched on. Sirius and Remus wisely suggested that none of them ought to try to sleep and so they mostly sat in silence, raising their teacups to their mouths and periodically refilling them. Here and there Ginny, Fred, or George would ask the time and Sirius would glance at the clock and tell them, or they would wonder aloud what was happening and Remus would assure them that if there was bad news they would already know since Molly was now at St. Mungo's. Eventually Fred fell into a doze, his head sideways on his shoulder. Ginny curled up in her chair but her eyes stayed open, reflecting the firelight. Ron was sitting with his head in his hands. Harry, Sirius, and Remus looked often at one another. But when their eyes weren't on Harry, Sirius and Remus seemed to be having some sort of telepathic conversation. At last, around five in the morning, Remus sat up straighter in his chair and spoke quietly. Molly's arrived. A few seconds later the door to the kitchen swung open and Molly Weasley entered. She was pale and tired, but when they all turned to look at her, she gave a wan smile. He's going to be all right, she said. He's sleeping. We can all go and see him later. Bill's with him now. Fred fell back into his chair with his hands over his face. George and Ginny stood and rushed to hug their mother. Ron gave a shaky laugh and drained the rest of his tea at once. Breakfast, Remus said softly, rising to his feet. Sirius copied him, looking a bit dazed but with a smile slowly spreading on his face. Toast. Eggs. Bacon. Harry hurried to help his guardians, but he had barely taken the plates out from the cupboard when he was suddenly pulled into a hug by Molly. I don't know what would have happened if it hadn't been for you, Molly said. It might have been hours until they found him, but thanks to you he's alive and Dumbledore's been able to come up with a good story for why he was on guard duty. Harry could hardly stand her gratitude. He felt quite sick. But fortunately, she released him and turned to Sirius and Remus. Thank you for looking after them tonight. 
Of course, Molly, Remus told her quickly. You're welcome to stay here as long as Arthur's in the hospital. Sirius said, his voice was a little hoarse still but he seemed to be gaining his usual energy. Oh, I'm so grateful, it would be wonderful to be nearer. Of course, that might mean we're here for Christmas. The more the merrier. Sirius said with such honest sincerity that Molly beamed at him. She tried to reach for an apron but Remus shook his head, smiling gently down at her. You rest, Molly. Let us cook. Um. Harry started once the breakfast preparations were well underway from where he stood by the cupboard. Sirius. Remus. Can I have a word? Um, now. His guardians turned to look at him, and as Harry hurried into the dark pantry, they followed him. Once the door closed behind them, Harry immediately told Sirius and Remus every detail about the vision, including the fact that he himself had been the snake. When he paused for breath, Remus asked, Did you tell Dumbledore this? Yes. Harry nodded quickly. He didn't tell me what it meant. But that's not all. Harry stared wide-eyed between Sirius and Remus. Sirius? Remus? I think I'm going mad. Back in Dumbledore's office, before we took the port key, for just a couple of seconds there I felt my scar hurt when I was looking at Dumbledore and I wanted to attack him. Sirius placed a hand on Harry's shoulder, his dark eyes glowing in the dark pantry. It must have been the aftermath of the vision, Harry. You were probably thinking of the vision. It wasn't that. Harry shook his head. It was like something rose up inside of me, like there was a snake inside of me. Harry turned with a horrified expression to Remus. Does that kind of thing happen to people? Like, like a werewolf but with snakes. Do you ever? Harry swallowed. Feel the wolf in, in your body. A tired smile spread slowly on Remus's face. His eyes were warm but all of a sudden he seemed much, much older than he really was. The dark light of the pantry cast his scars and lines into shadows. Sirius had also turned to look at him. Sometimes, yes, I do feel the wolf, Harry, Remus murmured, surprising Harry with his candor. But there is no snake in you, I promise you. You're in shock. You're blaming yourself for something you only witnessed. And it's lucky you did witness it, pup, or Arthur might have died, Sirius said, turning back to look at Harry. We'll speak to Dumbledore. Sirius continued. Maybe he can explain it to us. Or there's the House of Black Library. Everyone in my family was in Slytherin. If there's anything on snakes and visions, maybe we'll find something there. Harry nodded mutely and in the next second Sirius was hugging him tightly. Harry tried to hug him back but still felt a bit queasy and guilt-ridden. Once Sirius stepped back, he ruffled Harry's hair gently. You need to sleep, Harry. You're going to have breakfast and go to bed and then we'll see Arthur after lunch. But Harry couldn't sleep and Remus more than Sirius seemed to understand this. After breakfast, as Ron stepped into he and Harry's bedroom that they had used over the summer, Harry stayed staring at the doorway. The idea of sleeping, of falling into another vision, it made Bao creep up his throat. Remus, who had been waiting on the landing beside Sirius to see Harry off to bed, gently put his hand on Harry's back. How about you sit up with me? I'm not tired either. Harry looked up at him and had a sudden urge to drop to his knees in gratitude to whatever it was that brought Remus Lupin so closely into his life. 
Sirius led the way back down the stairs to the drawing room and gave Harry another pat on the shoulder before stretching out on the sofa and falling quickly asleep, apparently completely emotionally drained from the night's events. Remus walked over to the bookshelf in the drawing room and drew forth a basket overflowing with chocolate frogs. He then sat agilely down before the fireplace, cross-legged, and Harry joined him. They sat in silence, unwrapping chocolate frogs and exchanging cards beside the fire. Sirius slept deeply and silently, his black hair loose around his face. After a few minutes, Harry felt a bit more normal, fortified by the chocolate and the warmth. So, Harry said, looking up from his chocolate frog card at Remus, who was gazing into the fire with a thoughtful and solemn expression on his face. The light of the fire made the scar on his cheek, and the ones which trailed on his neck look almost red and he was running one hand absently over the scar on one of his wrists left by the silver handcuffs. You can feel the wolf, sometimes, Harry asked him quietly. Remus blinked and turned away from the flames. Yes, he said softly, when I let my anger get the best of me, I feel it. Harry thought of how Remus's eyes had flashed almost yellow that night in the mirror when Harry had shown him his scar left by Umbridge. What does it feel like? Harry whispered. Remus tilted his head, his face soft but stoic. It feels feral, Harry. Untampered and uncontrollable. And that is what has always frightened me the most about my condition. The loss of control. Harry hadn't considered that. The transformation itself, he always thought, must have frightened Remus the most. But considering Harry's vision, the feeling of being in a body with an uncontrollable urge to bite, it must have been a very scary feeling for you, Remus murmured. The animal instincts, the anger. Harry nodded, swallowing. I've been feeling angry a lot lately, Harry heard himself saying. I know I've got a temper sometimes. It is better to feel anger, to feel pain, to feel sorrow, than nothing at all, Remus answered. I can tell you that from experience, Harry. Harry stared at him, confused. One of Remus's long-fingered hands returned to rubbing the scar on his wrist subconsciously as he stayed looking very soberly at Harry. His brown eyes flecked with tints of green seemed like their own oceans, fathoms deep. When your parents died, when Sirius was in Azkaban, at first I thought I would die from the pain, he said. Harry thought of Remus, bowed over on the floor in the study in front of the Balgart, hyperventilating, shaking. But then slowly, a numbness descended upon me, Remus said quietly. It was my body and mind's way of protecting me, a coping mechanism. But it was much worse than the pain, Remus smiled very sadly. It was like seeing life from behind a veil, like I had received the Dementor's kiss and was just a shell. His eyes focused more firmly on Harry's own. I was in that state when I first met you, Harry. I don't know if you notice the difference in me now, but I do. Because I feel things quite deeply once more, now. And sir, yes, the uncontrollable rage and urge of the wolf terrifies me, but for a long time the wolf was all I had as a means to feel anything at all, and when I would wake from the full moons all those years alone, I would sometimes find myself wishing it would stay longer, just so I could feel. Remus took a soft exhale. Anger is normal, Harry. Especially with all you are going through. The effort of controlling it is one of our great endeavors in life and here Remus smiled a little wryly. Werewolves and wizards alike. 
Harry nodded, trying to smile back but faltering. I don't believe I've ever told you, Harry, Remus said with a smile so warm Harry felt as if he were sitting beside two fires instead of just one. That I love you no matter what. Nothing would ever change how I feel about you. Harry felt a burning, pricking sensation in his eyes and let out a strangled gasp. He was so very overwhelmed from the recent events, and now this. But he took a deep breath and dabbed at his eyes and said firmly back, Me too, Uncle Mooney. Nothing would ever make me feel any different about you either. Chapter 19 Remus checked the clock about an hour later. He and Harry had taken to trying to build a house of cards out of the chocolate frog cards and had been doing pretty well at it. It's almost lunchtime, Remus said after checking the clock. Best get cooking, shall we? Harry nodded and rose to his feet as Remus walked over to the sofa. He knelt and ran the back of his hand lightly along Sirius's cheek before bending to kiss him on the forehead. Sirius blinked awake and smiled dreamily up at Remus. Hiya, Mooney. Hi you. Nearly time to see Arthur. Remus told him softly and Sirius's face sobered a bit. He nodded and then lifted his head to kiss Remus on the lips while Harry pretended to be busy stacking up the chocolate frog cards. Harry followed his guardians into the kitchen as they began to prepare sandwiches and the Weasleys came trooping in, all looking refreshed and talking excitedly. After they all ate, their trunks arrived from Hogwarts along with Tonks and Mad-Eye, who would be joining to escort them across London. Tonks was laughing gleefully at the bowler hat Mad-Eye was wearing to conceal his magical eye. They hurried toward the nearest underground station, Highbury and Islington, and boarded the train, the Weasley children all staring around them in awe. Sirius, too, perked up enormously as they rode the escalator down to the train platforms. Just like the old days, Mooney, he was saying. I first saw Muggle London with you, remember? Remus smiled at him. Of course, I do. I had to pull you back when the train approached so you didn't fall onto the tracks. They exited the underground at Oxford Circus and walked along the broad store-lined streets packed with Christmas shoppers, Tonks leading the way with Molly shepherding her kids while Remus and Sirius walked on either side of Harry, Mad-Eye trailing them all. Tonks stopped in front of an old-fashioned red brick building with a large sign that said closed for refurbishment. Right said Tonks. Everybody ready. They nodded, clustered tight around her. Tonks leaned close to the storefront display which featured an ugly dummy and said, Watcher, we're here to see Arthur Weasley. The dummy gave a nod and beckoned with its finger, and then Tonks stepped right through the glass and vanished. The rest of the group followed. They stepped into a crowded reception area full of witches and wizards. Some looked perfectly normal and were browsing out-of-date copies of Quidditch Quarterly while others were making odd noises or had steam coming out of their ears or had trunks attached to their faces or extra hands sticking out of their chests. Over here, Molly said and they followed her through the double doors and then up the stairs to the first floor. Mad-Eye and I'll wait outside, Tonks said as they reached the door to the ward. Keep an eye out. Her and Mad-Eye promptly took seats against the wall as the rest of the group stepped into the ward. There were only three patients in the small ward. Mr. Weasley was propped up in the farthest bed at the end by the tiny window and reading the Daily Prophet. He looked up as they entered and beamed. Hello, 
he called, throwing the prophet aside. Bill just left but says he'll drop in on you all later. How are you, Arthur? Molly said, bending down to kiss his cheek and looking anxiously into his face. You're still looking a bit peaky. I feel perfectly fine, Arthur said brightly, holding out his good arm to give Ginny a hug. If they could only take the bandages off, I'd be fit to go home. Why can't they take them off, Dad? Fred asked. Well, I start bleeding like mad every time they try, Arthur said cheerfully. It seems there was some unusual poison in the snake's fangs that keeps wounds open. They're sure they'll find an antidote though, and in the meantime, I just keep taking a blood replenishing potion every hour. Arthur looked now towards Remus and beckoned a hand at him. Remus's brow furrowed slightly as he stepped closer to Arthur. That fellow over there, Arthur said in a low voice and inclining his head towards the bed opposite him in which lay a man looking green and sickly and staring at the ceiling. He was just bitten by a werewolf. Remus's eyebrows raised and he glanced over to the man. They've been talking to him this morning, the healers, you know, trying to lift his spirits a bit. I thought maybe you could give, that is, if you want to, I don't mean to assume. Remus smiled kindly at Arthur. Not at all, Arthur. He walked slowly over to the man's bedside, tapering his long strides to walk casually, and they all watched for a moment. When the man in the bed curled his lip and he snarled something at Remus that they couldn't hear, Sirius took a step forward. But then Remus spoke and in the next second the man's face changed. He let out a sound halfway between a gasp and a laugh. And then he did laugh, properly and heartily. They watched Remus pull out his wand and conjure a chair at the man's bedside and sit smoothly down as an expression of timid eagerness appeared on the man's face. So, you were guarding the prophecy, Dad, George said quietly, turning back to his father. The one you know who's after. George, be quiet, Molly snapped. Didn't you say you know who had a snake, Harry? Fred asked, suddenly turning to Harry with huge eyes. A massive one. Harry and Sirius immediately stiffened. Listen, Mad-Eye and Tonks want to come and see you, Molly said. You lot all ought to wait outside, not you, Sirius, of course, but they can all say goodbye after we've spoken. Go on. Sirius glanced at Harry and rolled his eyes as if to say, as if you should be excluded from this but it's a hospital ward and I don't want to cause a scene but I would if it weren't for Arthur's state. Harry nodded at him, saying with his eyes, he hoped, that he understood and wanted Sirius to tell him what the adults talked about later, and feeling a bit proud that he and Sirius were now able to have a telepathic conversation this time, and not just Sirius and Remus. The kids trooped back into the corridor as Mad-Eye and Tonks entered the ward and closed the door. Sirius'll tell you what they talk about and you'll tell us, won't you Harry? Ron said as soon as the door shut. Course, Harry nodded. As they made the underground journey back to Twelve Grimwald Place, Harry found his eyes drooping and startled to find himself leaning on Sirius's shoulder and drooling a bit as the train stopped abruptly at the Highbury and Islington station. Pup, you're knackered, Sirius told him as Harry rubbed his eyes and followed them out of the train toward the escalators. You need to sleep. Look, we don't have any dreamless sleep potion at the moment but Remus procured a calming draft for me. 
Sirius abruptly stopped talking, looking sheepishly at Harry before sighing and continuing. For when he's with her, you know, at the full moon. Anyway, let's give you a cuppa, shall we? Might help you get some proper rest, all right. Harry nodded. A few minutes later Harry stood in Sirius and Remus's bedroom as Sirius pulled out a calming draft from within their dresser and conjured a goblet. Remus was sitting at the desk in their room by the window, writing quickly with a quill in a new notebook that Harry supposed was where he kept his new notes about the werewolf pack for Mad-Eye. Remus must be writing about the werewolf in the ward. Harry wondered who had bitten that man, if it was one of the pack that Remus was infiltrating. Harry drank the potion and Sirius walked Harry to he and Ron's bedroom, bidding him a good rest, and then Harry collapsed into bed. Harry's mind sank into shadows, and then he was in the corridor again. He was walking toward the plain black door but could not open it. He gazed at it, desperate for entry. If only his scar would stop prickling, then he could think more clearly. When Harry opened his eyes he was surprised to see Ron sleeping in the bed beside him, and pale dawn light was shining in from the windows. He had slept all afternoon and all night. Harry stepped out into the corridor, wondering if anyone else would be awake at this early hour, and was surprised to see his godfather standing on the staircase, stringing rows of garlands and holly along the banisters. Morning, huh? Sirius grinned up at Harry. Breakfast and then help me sort out all the decorations. Harry smiled back. It was around six o'clock in the evening and Harry, Sirius, and the Weasley children were decorating an enormous Christmas tree in the drawing room that Tonks had helped them procure when the door swung open wider and Hermione walked in, shaking snow off her hair. I just came on the night bus, Hermione said quickly. How's Arthur doing? The cheery mood of Christmas decorating was stilted a bit that evening at dinner. Remus had tried to help Sirius and Molly cook but Sirius had shooed him off to take a seat and it was quite plain why. Remus's face was pale and they all could hear his joints and bones cracking when he sat in his chair. It was December 23rd and the full moon was tomorrow night. Remus and Sirius went up shortly after dinner to their bedroom while Harry and the Weasley kids, plus Hermione, went into the drawing room to play exploding snap and whisper about what the adults had talked about in the hospital the day before. Sirius had told Harry before breakfast that morning and so Harry talked quickly. The adults had really mostly talked about making sure no one in the ministry knew what Arthur had been up to and if there had been any sign of the snake. There hadn't been. But it was you-know-who's snake, wasn't it, Harry? Fred asked again. Harry fidgeted. Yeah, yeah it was. And you were the snake, Ron said, looking hard at Harry. In the vision, you said you were to Dumbledore. Harry swallowed, feeling all their eyes on him. Finally, he admitted quietly. Yeah. Hermione bit her lip, looking at Harry in concern. He hated that look. Ron's eyebrows furrowed. And your scar, you've been sensing Voldemort's mood. Harry, do you reckon that he's possessing you? That you know whose snake possessed you. Harry wasn't possessed. Ginny suddenly said angrily. They all turned to look at her. Ginny crossed her arms and glared around at them all. I'm the only one you lot know who's been possessed by you know who. I know what it feels like. Harry's mouth opened on its own accord and he gaped at her. I forgot. Lucky you. Ginny said coldly. 
Harry felt shame well up inside him, red hot and roily. His cheeks burned. He couldn't believe he'd forgotten, that he'd overthought this about Ginny. He wanted her to know how much he admired her. This was truly another low point for him. I'm really sorry, Harry stammered. Ginny waved a hand dismissively and Harry's shame burrowed further. Then she continued briskly. Harry would have big blank periods where he wouldn't remember what he'd been up to. It wouldn't be a vision like this was. Harry felt a great deal lighter at hearing that verification. Thanks, Ginny, he said sheepishly. Don't mention it, she said and gave him a dry smile. The next day, Christmas Eve, Sirius had the kids further decorate headquarters. They strung silver and gold streamers from the chandeliers, and to Harry's delight Sirius charmed magical snow to fall, and the kids all engaged in a bloody good indoor snowball fight like Harry had hoped. But Sirius and Remus did not join them like they had last holiday. And later that afternoon, Harry stepped into the entrance hall to find Remus and Sirius standing by the doorway. Remus was wearing that horrible cloak again, and Sirius was hugging him tightly, their foreheads pressed together. Remus looked up at Harry and smiled kindly, but quite tiredly at him. I'm sorry I'll be missing Christmas, Harry, Remus told him, his voice quite hoarse. But you've a gift waiting for you in the morning, and I'll be back as soon as I can. He was cut off. Harry had run down the hall and then suddenly stopped in front of Remus, his arms outstretched but abruptly afraid to touch him in case he caused Remus pain. Remus understood at once and motioned Harry closer, a twinkle in his eye. Harry gently wrapped his arms around Remus, feeling his familiar warmth and the slight tremors of his muscles. Sirius patted Harry's head fondly beside them, and then Harry stepped back. Sirius tilted his head up and kissed Remus on the lips. Harry fidgeted. He couldn't help but notice the sense of urgency their kiss seemed to possess. And then Remus broke the kiss and cupped Sirius's cheek as he reached out toward the bowler hat Mad-Eye had worn to St. Mungo's that now rested on the troll leg. His fingers touched it. It had been given the portus spell, and then Remus was gone. For a long moment, Harry watched his godfather standing completely frozen. Sirius did not fidget, but just breathed evenly in and out of his nose, staring at the space where Remus had vanished. Then Sirius slowly turned back to look at Harry. His dark eyes were full of reverence. They shone like onyx pools. And his face was tranquil. Sirius's lips upturned in a wry smile. Calming draft is all right, doesn't it? Harry nodded fervently in agreement. Harry awoke on Christmas morning to a pile of presents at the foot of his bed. Thanks for the broom compass, Ron said happily from his bed beside Harry, already halfway through opening his gifts. Cheers, Harry grinned at him. Sirius and Remus had given Harry a set of volumes titled Practical Defensive Magic and its Uses Against the Dark Arts. Harry reminded himself to send the dark arts outsmarted for Remus from the room of requirement when he next got the chance. Harry's gift for Sirius had been a pair of sneaking black leather boots charmed to stay completely silent no matter what surface Sirius walked on, and Harry's present for Remus lay still in Harry's trunk, waiting for Remus's return. Hagrid had sent Harry a furry brown wallet with fangs, presumably as an anti-theft device, but which unfortunately prevented Harry from opening it. 
Jeannie got Harry a moving miniature model of a firebolt, which Harry watched fly around the room longingly. He had gotten her an excellent gift, he thought, a brand new set of Quidditch robes seeing as she had replaced him as the Gryffindor Seeker. Harry could never hold it against her, she was a brilliant flyer, even if Chaser was her favored position. Ron gave Harry an enormous box of every flavor beans, Fred and George gave him one of their skiving snack boxes, and Molly and Arthur gave him the usual Christmas jumper and a mountain of mince pies. Harry had just bitten into a mince pie when George and Fred apparated into the bedroom. Happy Christmas, George said. Don't go downstairs for a bit. Why not? Ron said, mouth full of the chocolate frogs he'd received from Remus. Mum's crying, Fred sighed. Percy sent back his Christmas jumper. Without a note, George added. Hasn't asked about Dad or visited him or anything. We tried to comfort her. Fred said, sitting on the edge of Harry's bed and admiring the volumes from Sirius and Remus. Told her Percy's nothing more than a humongous pile of rat droppings. But that didn't work, George said, helping himself to one of Ron's chocolate frogs. So Sirius took over. Not really his strong suit but Remus is not around, so. Best let Sirius try his best to cheer her up before we go down for breakfast, I reckon. They waited a while before getting dressed and then stepped out onto the landing where Hermione and Ginny stood waiting for them. Thanks for Quidditch robes, Harry. Ginny beamed at him. Means a lot. Harry blushed and muttered. Sure. Thanks for new theory of numerology. Hermione told him. And that perfume is really unusual, Ron. Harry looked inquiringly at Ron, who just shrugged and smiled at Hermione. No problem. They stepped into the kitchen to find Molly nursing a cup of tea, looking a bit puffy and red-rimmed about the eyes. She gave them all a watery smile and said, Happy Christmas, in a very forced cheery kind of way. Sirius was emerging from the pantry carrying a large turkey. Happy Christmas, he beamed at them all. His eyes were bright and shining, his face full of genuine merriment, but there was a slight catch in his voice. It wasn't quite as forced as Molly's but more like he was strung a bit tight. Harry supposed the calming draft worked both ways, soothing anxiety, but also any other excitable emotions, and that Sirius had opted not to take it today as he wanted to try for the proper Christmas spirit. It was a noble effort, and Harry thought all things considered Sirius seemed to be handling Remus's whereabouts pretty well. After their quite filling Christmas lunch and puddings, they all went to visit Arthur, joined by Bill and escorted by Mad-Eye, who had borrowed a car since the underground did not run on Christmas Day. It was enchanted on the inside so they all fit comfortably inside it as they drove to Oxford Circus. Mad-Eye parked the car on the rather empty street, and they all stepped through the window display into St. Mungo's. They found Arthur propped up in bed with a rather sheepish expression on his face. Everything all right, Arthur. Molly asked him as they greeted him and gave him their presents. Fine, fine, Arthur said. Well, everyone have a good day. What did you get for Christmas? Oh, Harry, this is absolutely wonderful, he exclaimed, opening Harry's gift of a box of fuse wires and screwdrivers. As Arthur leaned over to shake Harry's hand, Molly leaned over and peered at the bandages underneath her husband's nightshirt. Arthur, she snapped. You've had your bandages changed. What? He said, looking frightened and then admitted quickly. 
Now don't get upset Molly, but Augustus Pyre had an idea, he's the trainee healer, you know, very interested in contemporary medicine. I mean some muggle remedies, well, they're called, stitches, Molly, and they work very well on muggle wounds. Molly let out an ominous shriek and snarl. Bill muttered something about getting tea and Fred and George leapt up to accompany him, grinning madly. Harry glanced around the ward nervously and then paused, his eyes lingering on the empty bed where the other day the recently bitten werewolf had been lying. The bed was empty. Harry swallowed, wondering where the man had gone to transform. Sirius caught Harry's eye and motioned for Harry to join him a bit away from Arthur's bedside, where Molly was now interrogating her husband. Where do you think the werewolf went? Harry asked his godfather as they stood a bit farther down the ward from the Weasleys. I don't know. Sirius sighed heavily. Mooney didn't tell him to join the pack he's infiltrating, of course. He did tell him to go to open countryside. Remote as possible. Sirius frowned deeply. Apparently the man's married, but his wife hasn't come to see him since the bite. How could she? Harry said urgently. The healers ought to have explained, Remus would have told him to tell her that it's, it's manageable. It's not like he would ever bite her if he took the proper precautions. Preaching to the choir, pup. Sirius said wryly, but his eyes were very sad. Mooney told me he hoped the man would join the order. Another werewolf to help Mooney infiltrate, and to help persuade the others to join our side. Sirius shook his head and sighed. But it's all too much. Mooney's been a werewolf since he was five. This man has to adjust to the lycanthropy and to the likely loss of his family. And from what Mooney figured out, the man's been reading the Daily Prophet and believing every word of its bullshit. From Arthur's bedside, Molly erupted. What do you mean that's the general idea? Fancy a cuppa, Harry. Sirius. Ginny said as she, Ron, and Hermione strode toward Harry and Sirius. Yep. Harry said and he and Sirius joined them. Sirius led the way saying that he would stop for tea before running an errand, as they climbed the floors in search of the tea room. They had just reached the fourth floor and were passing a set of double doors labeled spell damage when Harry abruptly stopped walking. A man was peering out from the doors at them all. He had wavy blonde hair, bright blue eyes, and a vacant smile with brilliant white teeth. Blimey! Ron cried, staring at the man. No way! Sirius said his eyes huge in his face. Oh my goodness. Hermione yelped. Professor Lockhart. Their second-year defense against the dark arts teacher pushed open the doors fully and moved toward them. Well, hello there, he said. I expect you'd like my autograph, would you? Sirius frowned. Not in the slightest. Um, how are you, Professor? Ron said guiltily. Gilderoy, you naughty boy. A voice called. Where have you wandered off to? A healer bustled out of the double doors and then smiled hugely at Sirius, Harry, Ron, Ginny, and Hermione. Oh, Gilderoy, you've got visitors. Um, Sirius started to say. And on Christmas Day. How wonderful. The healer continued. You know he never gets visitors, poor lamb, and I wonder why, he's such a sweetie. Sirius's frown deepened further. We're doing autographs. Gilderoy Lockhart told the healer with a glittering smile. Listen to him, the healer said, taking his arm. He was rather famous a few years ago. We very much hope that this liking for autographs is a sign that his memory might be coming back a little bit. Will you step inside? 
He's in a closed ward, you know, the door's usually kept locked but I was bringing in the Christmas presents. It is so nice that you've come to see him. Well actually. Sirius started again but the healer was already beckoning them into the double doors and smiling expectantly at them. Sirius groaned. Just a few minutes then. He grumbled. The healer led the way through the double doors and down a long corridor until they reached another door labeled the Janus Thicky Ward. The healer led Gilderoy to an armchair beside his bed. This is our long-term resident ward, she informed them all. For permanent spell damage. Of course, with intensive remedial potions and charms, and a bit of luck, we can have some improvement. We've seen some improvement from Gilderoy here like I was saying. Gilderoy was now pulling a stack of photographs from his bedside table, seizing a quill and signing them all feverishly. Harry glanced around. A sallow-skinned wizard was lying in a bed nearby staring at the ceiling and mumbling to himself, and two beds down there was a witch covered in fur. At the end of the ward there were flowery curtains drawn around two beds to give the occupants and their visitors some privacy. The healer bustled toward the other beds. Here you are, Broderick she said to the mumbling man. You've been sent a potted plant and a lovely calendar of hippogriffs. She turned to the furry witch. And Agnes, your son sent an owl that is visiting tonight, that's so nice isn't it? And, oh, Mrs. Longbottom, are you leaving already? Harry saw Sirius make a convulsive movement beside him and they all spun around to see the curtains had been drawn back at the end of the ward and two visitors were walking down the aisle toward them a formidable-looking witch wearing a long green dress with a moth-eaten fox fur, a pointed hat decorated with a stuffed vulture, and trailing along behind her was Neville. Sirius's hand dove into his robes and yanked out a potion bottle. He uncorked it with a hard yank and downed the entire calming draft in one gulp. Ron, completely oblivious, called out. Neville, it's us, he said brightly. Have you seen? Lockhart's here. Who've you been visiting? Sirius clapped Ron hard on the back and Ron stumbled a bit, looking up at Sirius in affronted surprise. Sirius's face was bone white, even his lips had lost their pink color, and his eyes were the size of galleons. Ah oh, yes, Neville's grandmother said, looking around them. Lovely to see you all again. Her eyes locked on Sirius. And hello again, Sirius Black, she said crisply. Sirius stared at her and then finally found his voice. Augusta, I didn't expect. Mrs. Longbottom sniffed at Sirius. Didn't expect to enter this ward. Didn't expect that I'd be visiting my son and his wife on Christmas Day. We visited them last year before your Christmas party. I thought I'd mentioned we do it every year. Or surely you're not saying that you've forgotten where my son lives now. But Sirius wasn't looking at her anymore. His whole body seemed to be poised as a live wire as he stared at the two figures at the far end of the ward. What? Ron said, looking confused. Is that your dad down there, Neville? What's this? Mrs. Longbottom said harshly, glaring between Neville and Sirius. Black hasn't told you already what happened. And you, Neville, you haven't told them about your parents. Neville took a deep breath looked up at the ceiling, and shook his head. You should be proud, Neville, proud, 
They didn't get tortured into insanity by you know who is followers so their only son would be ashamed of them. They were highly gifted or as, oh, yes, Alice, dear, what is it? Neville's mother was walking slowly down the aisle in her nightdress. She was thin and worn, with white wispy hair. She was making timid motions toward Neville, holding something in her outstretched hand. Again? Oh, very well. Neville, take it, whatever it is. Mrs. Longbottom sighed. Neville had already stretched out his hand. His mother dropped an empty dribbles blowing gum wrapper into his palm. Very nice, dear, said Mrs. Longbottom without any conviction. Thanks, Mum, Neville said softly. Alice, came the gravelly voice of Sirius Black, who was staring at Alice Longbottom like he either wanted to run toward or away from her. It was impossible to tell which. His face was stunned and torn, his hands claws at his side. But Alice Longbottom merely tottered away back up the ward the way she had come, humming to herself. Well, it was lovely to see Neville's friends again, Mrs. Longbottom said briskly, nodding at Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Ginny before stopping to look at Sirius again. And you, Black, I sincerely hope you are serving the Order as well as my son and his wife would have if they had made it through the last war as unscathed as you. Regardless, I wish you the best. I would like to see you at another Christmas party. She strode away, and Harry caught Neville tucking the gum wrapper into his pocket before he exited the ward behind his grandmother. The door to the ward closed. Ron, Hermione, and Ginny turned to stare at Sirius, who was looking back toward the flowery curtain. You know Neville's parents, Hermione whispered. You knew what happened to them. Sirius swallowed and flexed his hands, trying to straighten out his clawed fingers. Yes, he croaked. I knew Frank and Alice. They were head boy and head girl my first year at Hogwarts. And they fought in the war. He cleared his throat and shook his head. But I didn't find out what happened to them until I escaped Azkaban. Harry fidgeted. Sirius and Remus had told Harry what had happened to Neville's parents. And so Harry knew that Sirius was about to tell the others. It was my cousin Bellatrix Lestrange who did it, Sirius said and only the calming draft kept the anger at bay enough so that his voice did not come out grating but rather solemn and steady. She was a Death Eater. She's in Azkaban now. Sirius rolled his shoulders and took a deep inhale and exhale, and when he spoke again his face had softened, and he seemed altogether much more composed. Frank and Alice are heroes. Now come on, you lot. They stepped back out of the double doors a few minutes later. Hermione, Ron and Ginny were still in shock and Harry wished he could have done something for Neville. Listen, get yourself some tea if you want, Sirius said, glancing at the directory that hung on the wall by the stairs. I've got to run that errand. I'll meet you back outside Arthur's ward in half an hour. When Sirius returned to meet the rest of them he was smiling widely, the excitement in his eyes still tampered by the calming draft, but Harry could tell he had received good news even before he said it. He was carrying a large box full of scrolls of parchment and sealed jars. What did the healers say about the transformations? Hermione asked him as they walked out of St. Mungo's. Sirius smiled at her. You'd probably like to read some of these, wouldn't you? He said, motioning with his head down at the parchments. 
Bloody fascinating really. Lots of useful concoctions. Potions and spells. Oh, he'll do Mooney right. This beats my Christmas gift for him. And that's saying something since I got him a spanking new case for his record player. Harry felt like the weight of seeing Neville's parents had lifted just slightly. But by nightfall, Harry's mood had dropped again. Christmas dinner had proceeded merrily at 12 Grimald Place. They had plenty of leftover turkey and puddings and then moved to the drawing room, where the kids were all enjoying their new presents and butterbeers while Molly, Bill, Tonks, and Sirius were talking jovially and drinking mulled wine until they were pink-cheeked. But as the clock chimed ten o'clock and Molly started shooing the kids up to bed, Sirius's face fell. Accordingly, Harry's did the same. Molly looked at Harry, brow furrowed in concern. Come, Harry dear, you should get some sleep, she said as she shepherded her kids and Hermione toward the stairs. No, I want to stay up with Sirius, Harry told her firmly, turning away from the staircase. It's quite late, I'm sure Sirius is going to bed soon himself. Well then I'm going to say good night to him, Harry told her, and she gave him a soft look before patting his shoulder. Well all right then. Harry stepped back into the drawing room to find Sirius still sitting on the sofa. His thumb was rubbing the rim of his wine goblet, and he was staring down at it with an inscrutable expression on his face. Harry went to the bookshelf in the drawing room and picked out the first book that seemed vaguely interesting, an anthology of wizard adventures seeking out dark creatures around Europe, then plucked up a blanket from one of the armchairs and lowered himself on the sofa opposite Sirius spreading the blanket out so that Sirius could pile some of it into his lap. Sirius did so, giving Harry a wan smile. Harry crossed his legs and opened the book. He had just read the first page when Sirius spoke up. Do you mind terribly, Harry? Sirius said in a slightly uncertain voice. If, if I turn into Padfoot. Harry looked up at his godfather. Course not. Sirius smiled much more genuinely at him and set his wine goblet down on the coffee table. Thanks, pup. Give us a scratch behind the ears, eh? With the sound of an exhale there sat in Sirius's place a great shaggy black dog. Its tail wagged on the sofa and it hunkered down with its nose on Harry's knee, its eyes looking up at Harry in adoration. Hiya, Padfoot. Harry smiled and began to scratch Padfoot behind one of his floppy ears. Remus did not return that night. Harry awoke in the morning with Padfoot curled up asleep, tail to nose, at the other end of the sofa. Sirius transformed back shortly after Padfoot yawned and woke, and then he, Harry, and Molly cooked breakfast. Molly seemed to be walking on eggshells around Sirius. She was far kinder to him than usual, and kept asking him if he thought the sausages were cooked well enough, and where did he receive them from. And oh, these eggs look farm-raised. Where could you find eggs like this in London? Sirius answered her questions with a distracted smile and then sat hunched over his plate, picking at his food half-heartedly as everyone else talked animatedly around him. Harry did not know how to get through to his godfather when he was in such a mood. As far as Harry could tell, only two people in the world had ever been able to break through to Sirius when he was like this. James and Remus. After breakfast, Harry, Ron, and Hermione urged Sirius to join them in a round of Wizards chess games, which seemed to engross him and distract him for a while before he grew quiet and morose again. Hide and seek, 
Hermione offered after lunch. Ginny brightened. Yeah, come on. Harry brightened too. And maybe Padfoot can play. Sirius grinned and a few minutes later the great shaggy black dog was helping whoever was the seeker sniff out the hider's hiding places. The game and a few more hours spent as Padfoot seemed to give Sirius a surge of determined spirit. He talked more to Molly than she did to him as they cooked dinner, and he barked with laughter with Fred and George as they ate, and then he and Tonks stayed a long while at the table talking about Andromeda, with Sirius telling Tonks it was her mother who first introduced him to muggle music. Andy's records always got me through the holidays before I moved in with James, Sirius told her. Your mother knew David Bowie back before most of the muggle-borns at Hogwarts did. Harry and Padfoot slept on the drawing room sofa again. And Remus did not return that night. The morning of December 27th Padfoot's doggy eyes opened and looked balefully up at Harry. Harry petted the dog's black head. I know, he said. I miss him too. Molly and her kids went back to St. Mungo's that day as Arthur was finally being discharged. Harry and Sirius opted to stay behind, both hoping that Remus might return and they'd be able to greet him. The Weasleys and Mad I left for St. Mungo's and Harry and Sirius played the muggle game poker that Sirius had taught Harry way back at Hope's Cottage, an eerily similar time, as they had played during a June full moon Remus spent locked in the cellar since Arthur hadn't been able to keep guard over Harry that night and when the Weasleys' loud voices filled the entrance hall, Remus still had not returned. Molly was insistent on a big celebratory dinner for Arthur's discharge from the hospital. Tonks, Bill, Mad-Eye, Kingsley, and even Mundungus turned up, and Harry thought that Sirius really did put on a good show for Arthur. He helped Molly cook and led the toast to Arthur's good health. And to Harry, Molly said as Sirius finished toasting to Arthur's recovery and before they had clinked their glasses. Harry felt that familiar guilty and anxious royal in his stomach as she spoke, looking at him with misty eyes. Arthur wouldn't be here without you, she declared. To Harry, Arthur said firmly, raising his glass and looking at Harry kindly from behind his horn-rimmed spectacles. After dinner and puddings, Fred, George, Ron, Hermione, Ginny, and Harry all lay on the carpet in the drawing room playing gobstones while serious. Molly, Arthur, Bill, and Tonks lounged on the sofa or in the armchairs. Eventually, Sirius tired of the adult talk and joined the kids on the floor, and soon Bill and Tonks followed. Arthur and Molly sat on the sofa, holding hands and watching them play, huge smiles on their faces. Good Christmas, was it? A voice said. Everyone's head snapped toward the drawing room doorway. There, dressed in a ratty, earth-laden cloak that hung loosely to reveal a scarred and sinuous torso, and lifting a nimble long-fingered hand to push his brown and gray-streaked hair out of his scarred and lined face, was Remus Lupin. And he seemed to be almost glowing. Every single one of them could feel his magic like an aura around him. It was like a summer storm, thick with pine, crisp and canine, clear and calling. His brown eyes were twinkling, molten and warm as the fire that crackled in the hearth and he raised one hand into everyone's shock but Sirius, wandlessly and wordlessly cast a cleaning spell over himself. Remus Sirius's voice was a lightning bolt that tangibly made the magic radiating off Remus feel even stronger, almost intoxicating to them all. 
Sirius was on his feet and running, and the next second he had flung his arms around Remus and kissed him hard on the mouth. The magic swelled around Remus, the air around him and Sirius crackling with electricity as they kissed. Remus raised one hand to cup the back of Sirius's neck while the other found Sirius's lower back, pressing him closer. Fred and George hooted, Bill whistled, Ginny cheered, and Tonks stared at the two men with very wet eyes. Molly and Arthur looked at one another and then gingerly moved in for a soft kiss. When Sirius and Remus came up for air, Sirius stammered breathlessly. Bloody good Christmas, my ass. Remus beamed down at Sirius and opened his mouth to speak but Sirius was kissing him again, and Remus kissed him back, stroking Sirius's cheek now with the hand that had been at the back of Sirius's neck. Oi, get a room, will you? Fred shouted gleefully. There's loads in this mansion. Sirius and Remus broke apart again, each of them laughing now, and Sirius moved to stand beside Remus, interlacing their hands and the two men turned to face the group with faces that could light up the darkest night. Happy Christmas, Remus Lupin said, his twinkling eyes surveying them all. Happy Christmas, Remus! They all chorused back. Chapter 20 A few minutes later Remus Lupin stood underneath the steaming showerhead as Sirius Black stood pressed tightly against his back, running his hands along Remus's sharp hip bones his strong thighs. Remus leaned his head back against Sirius's shoulder, the water falling upon his face, his magic rising up with the steam around them. Missed you, Sirius was murmuring, his lips on Remus's jaw. Missed you. The magic and the reunion were making Remus's head swim. He felt like he could run a marathon, that he could have Sirius all night and still need more that he could cast a shield charm over the entirety of twelve Grimald place that could block a thousand curses. It went well, Sirius was asking now, his hands massaging shampoo into Remus's hair. Remus could smell the arousal in Sirius's blood, could hear the pounding of his heart. Yes, Remus answered, his eyes closed to concentrate. The Alpha is in allegiance with Greyback, but there are members who have doubts. I spoke to some of them. Dropped hints of another way. Sirius's hands stilled in Remus's hair. You were careful, right? The Alpha can't know. Yes, of course. Remus assured him, and then he turned so quickly towards Sirius that Sirius stumbled a bit and almost slipped on the shower tile. Remus caught him with an arm around his waist, the other steadying them against the wall of the bathroom, and then he was kissing Sirius so fiercely that Sirius's back arched under Remus's strength and the feel of their twin erections against one another made them both moan, and Remus's magic palpitated the air around them so strongly that two floors below, in Ron and Harry's bedroom, the lights flickered. What's that about, do you reckon? Ron said, looking up from his clean sweep eleven that he was polishing. Smells like a summer storm again, Ginny said, sniffing. She and Hermione were sitting in the armchairs of Ron and Harry's bedroom. Ginny was holding up a flashcard for Hermione as Hermione had begged someone to quiz her on potions. Yeah, Harry said, looking up from the volumes on defensive spells he'd gotten from Sirius and Remus for Christmas. I think it's Remus's magic. It's not always like that, is it? Ron asked a little worriedly as the lights flickered again. I mean, I know some really powerful wizards can kind of push theirs out like an aura, 
that you can feel the energy sometimes, but I've never seen it done before. Werewolves that spend time in packs can do it. I read about it, Hermione said, and they all turned to look at her. She was blushing furiously as she added, "I was curious. Over the summer, you know, Sirius and Remus were researching werewolf transformations. They get harder as they age, you know, with the physical toll." So that's the errand Sirius went on in Saint Mungo's, Ginny said, nodding. Exactly, Hermione said, still blushing. And it got me thinking. You know, since rapid healing is one of a werewolf's characteristics, I wondered why it seemed to slow down over time. I didn't really find anything about that, but I did find an autobiography by a dark creatures expert, Darren the Dauntless MacDonald. He recorded walking one day in the forests of Belarus and feeling like an electric storm was in the skies, except there were no clouds. So he followed the current in the air and found three werewolves, having recently transformed back after the full moon the night before. His description said they were healing each other's bodies without wands and without casting spells. Ron's eyebrow raised. Reckon Remus can do more than just a simple cleaning spell now that he's been spending time with other werewolves. Hermione looked thoughtful. Well, MacDonald stayed with those three werewolves for a few days, investigating their magic. He wrote that the magic faded from the air around them pretty quickly, and that they stopped being able to cast spells without a wand two days after the full moon. He theorized that it must come from the wolf and from the pack's energy as wolves, and so it was gone after the moon waned. But it's always in them, Harry said, and the rest of them turned to look at him. Harry shifted a bit. He didn't want to tell too much of what Remus had told him. It was Remus's story to tell, but Harry felt the need to explain. The wolf and the magic, I mean, Harry said. It's always there, even when the moon isn't full. Hermione's brow furrowed and she gazed into space as she murmured, "Something that they can tap into then. I wonder." Harry thought of Remus saying that he felt the wolf when he was angry, and hoped that Remus never had to feel angry enough to ever tap into the wolf in his human form, no matter how powerful or useful the magic of the wolf may be. The next morning, Harry gave his uncle Mooney his Christmas present. Remus unfurled the poster carefully. His nimble fingers light and gentle as his brown eyes swelled and a smile spread on his face. Oh, Harry, Remus said, looking up at him from his chair at the kitchen table. It's perfect. It was a magical poster of David Bowie. He had spiky short red hair, pale eyebrows, and a sparkling blue shirt, jeans, and a pair of heel boots as he sat on a wooden chair strumming the guitar and singing Space Oddity. When Remus tapped the poster with his wand, Bowie's voice and guitar could be heard. Ground control to Major Tom. The rest of the holidays passed in proper full festive cheer. Sirius and Remus charmed the drawing room again with magical snow that never melted despite the roaring fireplace, and joined in a much heartier snowball fight. Fred and George begged for Patfoot and Mooney to be on their team, but it eventually was agreed to split up the twins and Sirius and Remus to make the game properly fair. Order members came and went now that the holidays were well behind them. Professor McGonagall turned up twice one day. Mundungus arrived a few times as well, acrid smoke following in his wake as he came and went, and Kingsley, Mad-Eye Tonks, and Bill had a meeting in the kitchen that lasted so long everyone didn't have dinner until well past nine o'clock. Order duties picked up again as New Year's approached for the others too in Sirius, Remus, Tonks, 
and Bill made themselves scarce as they went out for various missions. Thankfully, none of those who Harry was quite close to in the order had guard duty at the Department of Mysteries until after the holiday break, and Harry could tell that he wasn't the only one who would dread it once the Weasleys, Bill, Molly, and Arthur, that is, and Harry's guardians would have shifts there again. New Year's Eve started out with Cheer and Ron, Hermione, Ginny, Fred, and George were talking quite excitedly about returning on January 1st to Hogwarts. However, Harry, for the first time in his life, was actually not looking forward to going back to school. He would be returning to the tyranny of Dolores Umbridge, to his lifelong Quidditch ban that had infuriated Sirius so much that the topic was never discussed unless you wanted Sirius to break whatever he was holding, and Harry would also be returning to mountains of all homework. It also meant worrying about Remus and Sirius's mission for the Order from afar. If it weren't for the DA and Harry's two-way mirror, Harry felt like he might have gone to Sirius and Remus and begged to stay with them at headquarters. But it was an event that happened in the afternoon on New Year's Eve that made Harry absolutely dread returning to Hogwarts. Harry, dear, Molly said, poking her head into Harry and Ron's bedroom where the pair of them were playing wizard's chess watched by Hermione and Ginny. Professor Snape would like a word with you in the kitchen. Harry's mouth fell open in horror. He looked in fear at Hermione, Ginny, and Ron who were looking at him just as horror struck. What's he want with you? Ron asked nervously. You haven't done anything, have you? No, Harry said indignantly, racking his brains. Had his last potions homework earned a T4 troll. Harry pushed open the kitchen door a minute or two later to find Sirius, Remus, and Snape seated at the kitchen table. Sirius and Snape were glaring in opposite directions while Remus sipped from a teacup and smiled softly at Harry. A letter lay open on the table in front of Sirius. Um, Harry said. Snape looked around at him. Sit down, Potter. Harry sat down on the other side of Sirius, as Remus was seated on Sirius's right side. I was supposed to see you alone, Potter, Snape said with a sneer. But Black. I'm his godfather, Sirius said loudly. And I'm sure Lupin's here as your manhandler, then, Snape spat. Or your wolf handler, I should say. Your double entendres are getting lazy, Severus, Remus said with a wry smile. An ugly flush suffused Snape's pallid face and he turned to Harry. The headmaster has sent me to tell you, Potter, that it is his wish for you to study occlumency this term. Study what? Harry said blankly. Occlumency, Potter, the magical defense of the mind against external penetration. An obscure branch of magic, but a highly useful one. Why do I have to study Ockluthing? Harry blurted. Because the headmaster thinks it's a good idea, Snape said smoothly. You will receive private lessons once a week, but you will not tell anybody what you are doing, least of all Dolores Umbridge. You understand? Yes, Harry said. Who's going to teach me? Snape raised a black eyebrow. I am. Harry felt like his insides were melting. What had he done to deserve private lessons with Snape? He looked quickly to Sirius and Remus for support. I know a rudimentary form of legilimency, Harry, Remus said at Harry's desperate expression. Occlumency, you see, is the magic of closing one's mind against legilimency. But I learned my form of legilimency from the werewolves in the last war. Remus gave a tired smile. 
I've only used it once since then. I went into Barty Crouch Jr.'s mind to find that he sent you to the graveyard last June. Harry stared at him in shock and awe. Along with his magical aura around the werewolf pack, Remus could penetrate minds. Rudimentary, Snape sneered, is not the word I would use. Animalistic, then, Remus asked him mildly. Primitive, crude. Snape made a snarling noise and opened his mouth to retort, but Remus had turned back to Harry. Regardless, Harry, I do not possess occlumency. At least, I have never tried it. I have. Sirius spoke up and Harry turned to look at him in surprise. Snape was glaring at Sirius, but his eyes flashed as if betraying some form of shock. I used it against my parents, Sirius said with a deep frown, because they used legitimacy upon me. One of their ways of checking if I was surrounding myself with the right crowd at Hogwarts, behaving as the heir of the House of Blackhort. Sirius's dark face brightened a bit as he turned to lock eyes with Remus. Not sorry to say I sorely disappointed them. But, his face grew dour again. I was never quite successful at occlumency. Another reason I moved in with your father, Harry. I assure you, Potter, Snape said silkily, that I do not suffer from black and lupins lacking in this form of magic. I will expect you at six o'clock on Monday evening in my office. If anybody asks, you are taking remedial potions. Nobody who has seen you in my classes could deny you need them. Snape stood to leave, his black cloak billowing behind him. Wait a moment, Sirius said, squaring his shoulders. I am in rather a hurry, black, Snape hissed. I'll get to the point then, Sirius said, standing up as Remus watched him wearily. If I hear you're using these occlumency lessons to give Harry a hard time, you'll have me and Remus to answer to. How touching, Snape sneered. But surely you've noticed that Harry is very much like his father. Yes, I have, Sirius said proudly. Well, then you'll know he's so arrogant that criticism simply bounces off him, Snape said sleekly. Sirius pushed his chair roughly aside and strode around the table, pulling out his wand as he went. Snape whipped out his own and Remus stood too, his amicable expression replaced by one of stone. You will not disgrace James in our presence, Remus said quietly but very coldly. Snape ignored him focused on Sirius, who looked livid. Snape's eyes darted from Sirius's wand tip to his face. Sirius, Remus said. Stand down. Sirius didn't seem to hear him, he growled at Snape. I've warned you, Snivellus, I don't care if Dumbledore thinks you've reformed, I know better. Sirius, Remus started. Please, Mooney, Sirius shouted, glaring at Snape as he said. Tell me, how is Lucius Malfoy these days? I expect he's delighted his old lapdogs working at Hogwarts, isn't he? Speaking of dogs, Snape said softly, Lucius Malfoy suspects a rather close canine connection between you and Lupin now that your animagious form and his disease are common knowledge. It was you who made his condition known, Sirius shouted. Snape acted like he hadn't heard Sirius. And that was quite some display on the station platform in September. You and Lupin together embracing Potter. I wonder if he seems to have missed the real nature of your relationship. Sirius raised his wand. Sirius, Remus cried. Stand down. Just as Harry shouted. Sirius, don't. Sirius growled, his wand hand shaking, his face contorted by rage. How dare you? Snape smiled, a nasty gloating thing. 
Why yes I do dare. And I dare say it seems I might be correct in my assumptions. Sirius launched himself towards Snape just as Remus grabbed him by the neck of his robes and yanked him back. Sirius's jinx shot up toward the rafters of the basement ceiling, sending red sparks showering down upon their heads as Sirius fought against Remus's strong and unrelenting hold. The kitchen door opened and the entire Weasley family and Hermione were trooping in, all happily talking about the return to Hogwarts the next day. But then they all froze on the threshold, staring at the scene in front of them which was suspended mid-action. The shower of red sparks sprinkled down from the ceiling as Sirius wrestled in Remus's grip, while Snape glared with his wand pointed directly at Sirius's face. Harry stood with his arms stretched out between his godfather and his professor. Merlin's beard, Arthur said. What's going on here? Slowly, Snape lowered his wand and Sirius stopped struggling against Remus's hold, still breathing heavily. Each of them wore an expression of utmost contempt. Remus's face was carefully masked as he looked at Snape, but his brown eyes were sharp. Snape pocketed his wand and swept out of the kitchen, pausing at the door to look at Harry. Six o'clock Monday evening, Potter. He left and Sirius glared after him, his chest heaving. Remus released his grip on Sirius, collapsing into his chair with a hand against his face, looking extremely tired. What's been going on? Arthur asked again. Sirius took a heavy inhale and exhale. Nothing. Just a friendly little chat between old school friends. With a great effort it seemed he made himself sit back down in his chair beside Remus. Um. Arthur said into the heavy silence. I was thinking a roast. Molly said quite more bravely. For the kids' last supper before term. Remus lifted his head out of his hand and gave her his best reassuring smile. Sounds wonderful, Molly. I'll get started on the pork, shall I? About an hour later they sat down for dinner. Sirius and Remus were conversing quietly beside one another at the table, Remus's hand on Sirius's knee, and Molly and Arthur kept shooting serious nervous glances. Harry turned to Ron and Hermione and murmured under his voice about his acclimacy lessons with Snape. Dumbledore wants you to stop having those dreams about Voldemort, Hermione said at once. Well, you won't be sorry not to have them anymore, will you? Extra lessons with Snape, Ron said, sounding aghast. I'd rather have the nightmares. The next morning Harry finished packing his trunk before Ron and stepped into the kitchen for breakfast early to find Sirius and Remus again in a whispering conversation. They looked up when Harry entered and Remus gave him a kind smile. Morning, Sirius said. Ready to return to Hogwarts. Harry gave a half-hearted shrug and sat down. Remus passed him the teapot, a cup of tea, and a plate of toast. Is it bad if Snape knows? Harry asked quietly. About you too. Remus and Sirius exchanged a glance. Listen, Harry, Sirius said. Sniff, I mean, Severus, might use the information to goad you. Sure. But you mustn't let it bother you. Harry snorted before he could stop himself. Sirius let out a barking laugh. All right, all right, I know. Bit rich coming from me, isn't it? Remus smiled. It's just more fuel for his fodder, he told Harry. Good timing, it seems, since he's been running low on good werewolf jabs for a while now. 
Harry found himself laughing at that, and Sirius grinned up at Remus. Soon the rest of the kids joined them for breakfast, along with Tonks who would be escorting them all to Hogwarts on the night bus. After they ate, they pulled on their robes, hats, and scarves and prepared to step out into the chilly gray January morning. Goodbye Harry, take care, Molly said in the entrance hall, hugging him. See you Harry, and keep an eye out for snakes for me, Arthur said genially, shaking Harry's hand. Right, yeah, Harry said apprehensively. Tonks opened the front door and stood guard on the front steps, her hair now iron gray and her nose long and hooked, and Fred, George, Ron, Hermione, Ginny, Harry, Sirius, and Remus followed out behind her. Come on, the quicker the better, Tonks said, looking nervously around the square. Remus stood the farthest down on the pavement, and so flung out his long right arm. Bang! A purple triple-decker bus appeared out of thin air in front of them, and a thin pimply young man in a purple uniform leapt down onto the pavement. Welcome to there. Yes, yes, we know, thank you, Tonks said. On, on, get on everyone. They clambered on after Remus onto the night bus. The last time Harry had ridden it, it had been nighttime and the bus had been full of cots. But now it was early morning and the bus was full of mismatched armchairs grouped around the windows. We'll split up, Tonks was saying, looking around at empty chairs. Fred, George, and Ginny, and I will take these seats. Remus, Sirius, Harry, Ron, and Hermione proceeded to the very top deck. Heads turned as Harry passed but Sirius let out a growl and the passengers' heads turned to face the front again. The bus rumbled around Grimald Square, weaving on and off the pavement, and then bang, they were flung forward and suddenly speeding down a motorway. Birmingham, Remus said as his extraordinary eyesight caught glimpses of the road signs. Bang! The night bus was now on a country lane full of hairpin turns. Bang! They were in a busy town. Bang! A viaduct surrounded by tall hills. Bang! A windswept road between high-rise flats. Oi! It's Hogwarts stop after this! Stan the conductor called brightly, swaying up to them. Bang! They were rolling through a snowy Hogsmeade before stopping outside the gates of Hogwarts. Tonks led the way off the bus as Remus and Sirius helped them with their luggage. Harry glanced up at the three decks of the night bus to see all the passengers were staring down at them, their noses flat against the windows. Should we give them a show, eh, Mooney? Sirius said with a wink. Remus blushed and flicked Sirius's ear lightly with his fingers. Right, you'll be safe once you're in the grounds, Tonks said, glancing around the deserted road. Have a good term, okay? Look after yourselves. Remus said, shaking hands with the other kids before turning to Harry. Listen, Harry, Remus said quietly. Sirius was now saying goodbye to Fred and George and Tonks was giving her goodbyes to the others. Harry looked up into Remus's prematurely lined face, his scarred cheek and neck, his brown eyes which were earnest and sober. I know you don't like Snape any more than Sirius and I do. But he is a superb Occlumens, and we all, Sirius included, of course, want you to learn to protect yourself. So, please promise me Harry, you will work hard to learn Occlumency, all right? Yeah, all right, I promise, Harry told him. Remus patted his shoulder before Harry stepped forward and hugged him tightly, Remus's warmth quite welcome against the January chill. Good lad, 
Remus said softly by Harry's ear. Mirror in your trunk. Sirius asked as Remus and Harry separated and Sirius gave Harry a parting hug as well. Yep. Harry assured him. Check this morning. Have a good term, pup. Sirius said. His voice was light but his dark eyes seemed to be guarded with emotion. Talk soon. Talk soon. Harry told his guardians. Sirius and Remus stood side by side, Tonks a little distant from them, and they waved to Harry and his friends as they struggled up the snow-slick lane up towards the castle, dragging their trunks. Harry glanced back as they reached the oak front doors of Hogwarts and found his guardians, Tonks, and the night bus were gone. Harry half-wished, given what was coming to him the next day, that he was still on board with them. By six o'clock Monday evening, Every step on the way Harry took to Snape's office seemed to be a drumbeat of ominous foreboding. Harry took a deep breath, knocked on the office door, and then entered. It was a shadowy room lined with shelves crowded with hundreds of glass jars full of animal parts, slimy plants, and variously colored potions. Harry's attention was drawn to the desk where a stone basin engraved with runes and symbols lay in a pool of candlelight. Snape's cold voice came from the corner. Shut the door behind you, Potter. Harry did and then turned back to face Snape, who was pointedly looking at the chair opposite his desk. Harry sat down as Snape did, his black eyes unblinking and dislike etched into every line of his face. Now, Occlumency, as I told you back in your godfather's kitchen, Snape's lip curled, is the branch of magic that seals the mind against magical intrusion and influence. How the Dark Lord is highly skilled at legilimency which as Lupin informed you, is the ability to extract feelings, thoughts, and memories from another's mind. This is not, mind reading, as muggles call it. The mind is not a book to be opened at will and examined at leisure. The mind is a complex and many-layered thing, Potter, or at least, most minds are. Snape smirked. It is true, however, that those who had mastered legilimency, and occasionally those with even an admittedly abysmal ability, are able to delve on occasion and under certain conditions, to delve into the minds of their victims and to interpret their findings correctly. The Dark Lord, for instance, almost always knows when somebody is lying to him. Only those skilled at occlumency are able to shut down those feelings and memories which contradict the lie, and so utter falsehoods in his presence without detection. However, eye contact is often essential to legilimency. Well then, why do I have to learn occlumency? Snape-eyed Harry. The usual rules do not seem to apply to you, Potter. The curse that failed to kill you seems to have forged some kind of connection between you and the Dark Lord. The evidence suggests that at times when your mind is relaxed and vulnerable, when you are asleep, for instance, you are sharing the Dark Lord's thoughts and emotions. The Headmaster thinks it is inadvisable for this to continue. He wishes me to teach you how to close your mind to the Dark Lord. But why does Professor Dumbledore want to stop it? Harry said abruptly. I don't like it much, but it's been useful, hasn't it? I mean if I hadn't seen the snake attack Mr. Weasley, Professor Dumbledore wouldn't have been able to save him, would he? Snape stared at Harry for a few minutes. When he spoke again, it was slow and deliberate. It appears the Dark Lord has been unaware of the connection between you and himself until quite recently. However, the vision you had shortly before Christmas represented such a powerful incursion upon the Dark Lord's thoughts. But I saw inside the snake's head, not his. How come I saw through the snake's eyes if it's Voldemort's thoughts I'm sharing? Do not say the Dark Lord's name, Snape spat. There was a nasty silence, 
and then Snape finally spoke again. You seem to have visited the snake's mind because that's where the Dark Lord was at that particular moment. Snape snarled. He was possessing the snake at the time and so you dreamed you were inside it too. And Vol, I mean, he realized I was there. It seems so. How do you know? It is enough that we know, Snape said. The important thing is the Dark Lord is now aware that you are gaining access to his thoughts and feelings. He has also deduced that the process is likely to work in the reverse, that is to say, he has realized that he might be able to access your thoughts and feelings in return. Which brings us back to occlumency. Snape raised his wand and Harry tensed in his chair, but Snape merely raised his wand to his temple and placed its tip in his greasy black hair. When he withdrew it, some silvery substance came away which Snape guided into the stone basin. Twice more Snape repeated this. What is that basin? Harry asked. What is that basin, sir? Snape spat. What is that basin, sir? Harry ground out. A pensive. It holds memories and thoughts. Snape said swiftly and offered no other explanation as he set the stone basin carefully on a high shelf before turning back to Harry with his wand at the ready. Stand up and take out your wand, Potter. Harry did so. You may use your wand to disarm me or defend yourself in any way you can think of, said Snape softly. I am about to attempt to break into your mind. We are going to see how well you resist. I have been told you have already shown an aptitude at resisting the Imperious Curse. You will find similar powers are needed for this. Brace yourself now, Legilimens. Snape had struck before Harry was ready. The office swam in front of his eyes and dissolved. Image after image was racing in Harry's mind like a flickering film so vivid it blinded him to his surroundings. He was five, watching Dudley ride a new bicycle and his heart was bursting with jealousy. He was nine and Ripper the Bulldog was chasing him up a tree and Dudley was laughing on the lawn. He was sitting under the sorting hat and it was telling him that he would do well in Slytherin. Hermione was lying in the hospital covered in black fur. He was standing in front of Remus in the Dadak classroom and Remus was wearing patched worn robes and was telling him the incantation Expecto Patronum. Harry was sitting on the edge of an armchair in Hope's cottage and a pair of footsteps were walking towards him and Harry felt a hammering in his heart. No, said a voice in Harry's head as part of him remembered what would happen next in the memory. Sirius would walk in carrying Remus after the full moon he'd spent in the cellar. Remus would be wrapped in a blanket, shivering and trembling and bleeding, and Sirius would treat his wounds, and Harry would find out they were in love. No, you're not watching that, the voice in Harry's head insisted. You're not watching it, it's private. Harry felt a sharp pain in his knee and Snape's office came back into view. Harry had fallen to the floor. One of his knees had collided with Snape's desk. He looked up at Snape, who had lowered his wand and was rubbing his wrist. There was an angry wheel there like a burn mark. Did you mean to produce a stinging hex? Snape asked coolly. No, Harry said bitterly, getting up from the floor. You let me get too far, Snape said contemptuously. You lost control. Did you see everything I saw? Harry asked, unsure whether he wanted to know the answer. Flashes of it, Snape's lip curled. To whom did the dog belong? My Aunt Marge, Harry muttered, hating Snape. Well, for a first attempt that was not as poor as it might have been, Snape said, raising his wand once more. You managed to stop me eventually, but you must remain focused. 
Repel me with your mind and you will not need to resort to your wand. I'm trying, Harry said suddenly angry. But you're not telling me how. Manners, Potter, Snape hissed. Now, I want you to close your eyes and clear your mind. Let go of all emotion. Harry threw Snape a filthy look before he closed his eyes. But his anger and his hatred towards Snape was pounding through his veins like venom. How did Remus tamper his anger when he felt the wolf? How many years of practice had it taken him? Was the fear of losing control, of feeling the wolf's rage, enough to tamper Remus's emotion? Harry wished he had asked him. You're not doing it, Potter. You will need more discipline than this. Focus now. Harry tried to empty his mind, tried not to think, but not feel. Like seeing life from behind a veil. Like I had received the Dementor's kiss and was just a shell. Remus's words and voice echoed in Harry's emptying mind. It is better to feel anger, to feel pain, to feel sorrow, than nothing at all. We will go again, Snape was saying. On the count of three, one, two, three, Legilimens. The Hungarian horntail was roaring in front of him. James and Lily were waving at him out of the enchanted mirror. Cedric Diggory was lying on the ground with blank eyes. No. Harry was on his knees again, his face buried in his hands, his brain aching as though someone had tried to pull it out of his skull. Get up, Snape said sharply. You are not trying. You are making no effort. You are allowing me access to memories you fear, handing me weapons. Harry stood up again, his heart pounding as though he had really just seen Cedric dead in the graveyard again. Snape looked paler than usual and angry, but not near as angry as Harry was. I am making an effort, Harry said through clenched teeth. I told you to empty yourself of all emotion. Harry did not answer. Fools who wear their hearts on their sleeve, who cannot control their emotions, who wallow in sad memories and allow themselves to be provoked easily. Weak people, in other words. And Harry had to stop himself from running forward and strangling Snape. They stand no chance against the Dark Lord's powers, Snape continued. He will penetrate your mind with absurd ease, Potter. I am not weak, Harry said in a low voice. And neither are Remus and Sirius, he thought. Then prove it. Master yourself, Snape spat. Control your anger. Discipline your mind. We shall try again. Get ready now. Legilimens. He was watching Uncle Vernon hammer the letterbox shut. He was looking at Hagrid's battered and bleeding face in Hagrid's hut. He was wrapped in Sirius's and Remus's embrace in the grass outside the maze and they were murmuring. You're all right. You're all right. He was in a dark corridor, drawing nearer to a black door. Harry was on his hands and knees again on Snape's office floor. It seemed Snape had lifted the spell before Harry had even tried to fight back. What was that last memory, Potter? Snape said slowly. Harry looked up at him and saw that Snape was quite evidently unnerved. A dream, Harry stammered. A dream I had. Snape stared at him a long moment as Harry climbed to his feet and rubbed at his scar, which had started prickling painfully. You are dreaming of the Department of Mysteries, Snape said coldly. Because the Dark Lord wants access. You have been sharing the Dark Lord's dreams, Potter. Harry felt his whole body go cold and clammy. 
I want you back here at the same time on Wednesday. Snape continued. And we will continue then. Fine, Harry said. He was desperate to get out of Snape's office, to go find Ron and Hermione, to call his guardians on his mirror. You are to rid your mind of all emotion every night before you sleep. Empty it, make it blank and calm, you understand. Yes, said Harry, already thinking now of asking Remus for advice. And be warned, Potter. I shall know if you have not practiced. Right, Harry mumbled. He hurried towards Snape's office door. As he turned to close it, he glanced back at Snape, who had his back to Harry, and was scooping his own thoughts and memories out of the pensive and replacing them carefully inside his own head. Harry closed the door carefully, his scar throbbing painfully. Harry pulled out the Marauder's map from his robes as he stepped into the corridor and saw Ron and Hermione were sitting at a table in the Gryffindor common room. Harry hurried to join them, feeling shivery and almost feverish as he walked. How did it go? Hermione asked after Harry stepped through the portrait hole and sat down at their table. Are you all right, Harry? Yeah, fine, Harry said. I just feel a bit. I don't like acclumency much. I expect anyone would feel shaky if they just had their mind attacked over and over again. Hermione said sympathetically. I think I'll go to bed, Harry said. Ron gave him a worried look but Harry shook him and Hermione off. I just need to lie down, he insisted. He climbed the stairs to the dormitory, wanting to call his guardians on the mirror but feeling horribly sick, just as he had after waking up from the vision with the snake. He opened the door to the dormitory and took one step inside when he felt pain so severe it felt like someone must have spliced into the top of his head. He did not know where he was, whether he was standing or lying down, he did not even know his own name. Maniacal laughter was ringing in his ears. He was happier than he had been in a very long time. Jubilant, ecstatic, triumphant, a wonderful, wonderful thing had happened. Harry, Harry. Someone hit him around the face. The happiness was draining out of him, but the laughter continued. Harry opened his eyes and realized that the wild laughter was coming out of his own mouth. As soon as he realized this, it died in his throat. He was laying panting on the floor, staring up at the ceiling, the scar on his forehead throbbing. Ron was bending over him, looking very worried. What happened? I don't know, Harry gasped, sitting upright. But he's really happy, really happy. You know who? Something good's happened, Harry mumbled. Something he's been hoping for. Ron helped Harry into bed and Harry slumped against the pillows pulling out his wand and his two-way mirror, tapping it. Sirius. Remus. The mirror swirled but Harry Potter's guardian's faces did not appear. After a moment, the mirror returned to showing Harry's reflection back at him. He was white-faced and sweaty. Sirius and Remus had not answered Harry's call, and Harry wondered where they were, and what had happened to make Voldemort the happiest he had been in fourteen years. Chapter 21 The headline of the Daily Prophet the next morning read, Mass Breakout from Azkaban Below the headline were ten black and white moving photographs that filled the whole front page. Nine showed wizards' faces and one witch. Each picture was captioned with a name and the crime which sent the person to Azkaban. 
but Harry's eyes were drawn to three pictures down at the bottom of the page. One picture was of a watery-eyed man who was twitching and shaking his head in the magical photograph, looking quite furtive and terrified. Peter Pettigrew, the headline of the Daily Prophet the next morning read, Convicted of the murder of a dozen muggles on November 1, 1981 and convicted of betraying James and Lily Potter to he who must not be named, guilty by association for the deaths and the attempted assassination of Harry Potter by he who must not be named. The photograph to Wormtail's left was of the witch. She had long, dark hair that was unkempt and straggly in the picture. She glared up at Harry with heavily lidded eyes, an arrogant smile playing on her thin mouth. Like Sirius, she had retained vestiges of great good looks, sharp cheekbones, a strong jawline, dark eyes, but Azkaban seemed to have sapped much of her beauty. Bellatrix Lestrange, her caption read, Convicted of the torture and permanent incapacitation of Frank and Alice Longbottom. On the other side of Bellatrix's picture was her husband. Like his wife and Sirius, he had black hair and dark eyes, but his face was twisted and marred. Harry was certain he had been ugly well before Azkaban. Rodolphus Lestrange, convicted of the torture and permanent incapacitation of Frank and Alice Longbottom. After Rodolphus's photograph was a picture of his brother Rebastin Lestrange, who looked quite similar and had the same conviction as his brother and his sister-in-law. The article read that the prisoners had escaped in the early hours of yesterday evening and the Minister of Magic had informed the Muggle Prime Minister of the dangerous nature of the individuals. Fudge was quoted as saying that in terms of Peter's escape, at least, his status as an animagus may mean that he had learned from Sirius Black's unlawful escape, granted his innocence, from Azkaban two and a half years prior. There you are, Harry, Ron said, looking thunderstruck. That's why he was so happy last night. Fudge can't be insinuating that Sirius is somehow to blame for Peter's escape, Harry cried. And what about the nine other Death Eaters? It seems Dumbledore was right, Hermione said bitterly. The Dementors have joined Voldemort and Fudge did nothing to stop it. Hermione ripped open the newspaper and turned to read the whole article while Harry glanced around the Great Hall. Up at the high table, Dumbledore and Professor McGonagall were in deep conversation and at the opposite end of the table. Umbridge was shooting them a malevolent glance. Harry stood up immediately, his hunger completely forgotten. Got to call Sirius and Remus, he heard himself say. We'll come with you, Hermione said as she and Ron hurried to their feet to join him. Hey Hagrid, Ron called as they approached the entrance hall, where Hagrid stood waiting for a crowd of Ravenclaws to pass. He was still looking heavily bruised and there was a new cut on the bridge of his nose. All right, you three, Hagrid asked. Are you okay, Hagrid? Harry said. Fine, fine, Hagrid said with a poor attempt at nonchalance. Just busy, you know, usual stuff, lesson to prepare, and I'm on probation. He mumbled the last words. Probation, Hermione cried. Yeah, it's no more than I expected, to tell you the truth. That inspection didn't go too well, you know. Anyway, see you, Harry, Ron, Hermione. He trudged away out of the front doors and down the stone steps into the damp grounds. Harry, Ron, and Hermione watched after him and Harry wondered how much more bad news he could take. And even though it had to be done, 
Harry did not know if he could stomach what he'd likely see and hear from his guardians in the two-way mirror. The three of them stepped into the empty classroom between charms and history of magic and Hermione cast an alarm jinx on the door in case anyone opened it, and then they hurried into the farthest corner out of the view of the door and the windows, and Harry pulled out the mirror, tapping it with his wand. Sirius. Remus. The mirror swirled and a moment later they could hear muffled noises and then the sound of curtains being drawn back and footsteps before Sirius's face appeared in the mirror blinking tiredly, his eyes half open. Was it? He mumbled groggily. Everything all right? He was now sitting up against the headboard of he and Remus's bed, having apparently just drawn back the curtains and having hastily thrown on a night shirt that was only halfway buttoned. His black hair was tangled and looked like a dark lion's mane around his pale face. His eyes had deep circles under them. Besides Sirius, they could make out a lump under the blankets with a few strands of brown and gray-streaked hair sticking out of it. Sirius, Harry said in a rush. Azkaban, Death Eaters, Bellatrix, Wormtail, escaped. Sirius nodded, still blinking, but his face grew hard and his dark eyes alert and firm. A coldness appeared there as he came more into the moment, and then he spoke in a gruff voice. Oh, we know, pup. Mooney and I and most of the Order were up until just a few hours ago trying to intercept the escapees to whatever safe houses of Voldemort's they may have gone to. Did you find any of them? Ron asked. Sirius nodded, yawning despite his grim expression. Mooney Kingsley, Emmeline Vance, and I went to a summer home of Lucius's that turned out to be where he was playing house to the recently escaped Lestranges. Sirius's face was carved from disgust and loathing now. The Lestranges were there. Hermione yelped. The lump underneath the blankets beside Sirius stirred and Sirius turned to watch as the blankets moved and Remus Lupin's face appeared, laying sideways on his pillow towards Sirius. His hair was ruffled and he was blinking the sleep out of his eyes too. His lined and scarred face looked up at Sirius. Go back to sleep, darling. Sirius told him gently. I'm just talking to Harry and his friends about the breakout. Remus's brown eyes went to the mirror and even half awake and given the mission he had been on only a few hours before, his soft smile was warm. Lo, Harry, Hermione, Ron, he said in a scratchy voice. Hello, Remus, they chorused quietly. You'll forgive me if I let Sirius fill you in, Remus asked, his voice cracking. Of course, Harry hurried to say. Remus smiled kindly and gave them all a nod before pulling the blankets back over his face. Within seconds they could hear the soft sounds of his breathing coming deeply and evenly as he fell quickly back into sleep. Sirius turned back to the mirror. Yes, the strangers were there. He said quietly but still quite bitterly. But by the time we devised a way to sneak in through the wards around Lucius's holiday home, they had all gone. Oh, Sirius. Hermione breathed. Peter's out there now. Sirius swallowed hard. His pale face looked carved by marble and his dark eyes glinted dangerously. So he is. And I'll kill him if he ever crawls along my path. Harry, Ron, and Hermione stared at Sirius in wide-eyed horror. Harry supposed he should not be very surprised at Sirius's sentiment. He and Remus had both wanted to kill Peter for what he had done when they had had the chance that fateful night in the Shrieking Shack. But Harry had persuaded them that they shouldn't become cold-blooded killers, 
and Peter's capture and sentencing was essential in granting Sirius his freedom. But it was a war now, and Harry suddenly felt like he had plunged into ice-cold water. Sirius and Remus would very well likely have to kill Death Eaters and other supporters of Voldemort in this renewed fight. They would try to avoid it, but if they had to, if there was no other way, and if it was Peter. Harry swallowed. Sirius, I still think my father. Harry couldn't bring himself to finish, for a heartbreaking expression now appeared on Sirius's face. It was pain manifested. An aching, long-suffering look that made Sirius appear haunted. Because, even though Sirius Black had come a long way since his reunion with Remus and Harry, in many ways, he was still haunted. Haunted by the death of his best friend, haunted by the death of Lily, haunted by Peter's betrayal, haunted by his own choice to swap being the secret keeper with Peter, haunted by his lack of trust in Remus all those years ago, haunted by his decision to hunt Peter down that had resulted in Peter's escape and Sirius's imprisonment. Sirius, Harry Potter said gently. Sirius's eyes seemed to focus back on him, no longer seeing something Harry couldn't. James would be really proud of you, Harry told his godfather, for everything you're doing for me and the Order. But I don't reckon he'd be proud if you killed Peter. Sirius sighed heavily, and then he smiled weakly. You're just like him, aren't you, pup? Harry smiled weakly back. You would know. Sirius nodded, his face full of pride. Beside Harry, Ron and Hermione were looking between the mirror and Harry's face like they felt like they were intruding on a very private moment. Listen, Harry, Ron, Hermione, Sirius said firmly, changing his tone. You're all safe inside Hogwarts, and we've got eyes on Hogsmeade at all times. But for now, I think you should focus all your energy on the DA, it's the most important thing. And then he added hastily as Hermione opened her mouth. And your schoolwork, too, of course. All right. Serious, we will, Harry told his godfather. Thanks, pup. Now you better get off to class. Talk soon. When the mirror connection faded, Harry stuffed it back into his robes. Hermione had pulled the newspaper out of her school bag and was glaring down at the cover again. After a moment, she looked up. I'm going to go send a letter, she said firmly. Well, I don't know whether, but it's worth trying and she strode over to the door, waving her wand and casting the reverse alarm jinx, before opening the door and disappearing down the corridor. Meanwhile, at twelve Grimald Place, after Sirius's mirror connection ended, Sirius set his mirror down on the bedside table and rolled over under the blankets. Remus stirred and drowsily wrapped his arms around Sirius, pulling him into his chest. For the next few days the only topic of conversation in Hogwarts was the escaped Death Eaters. Those who had grown up in wizarding families knew the names to be spoken with almost as much fear as Voldemort's. The crimes they had committed during the last war were legendary. Harry invited Neville to sit with him, Hermione, and Ron any time they were in the Great Hall together, as Neville had grown considerably withdrawn and pale-looking. They didn't talk about seeing him and his grandmother at St. Mungo's or about the Lestranges' escape, but still Harry knew it was better than Neville sitting alone. And it was also true that Harry was the subject of renewed whispering and pointing in the corridors, but he noticed that there seemed to be a difference in the whisperer's tones and faces now, 
they sounded curious rather than hostile, and once or twice Harry caught bits of conversations that seemed to be wondering why the Daily Prophet hadn't given a satisfactory reason for how and why the breakout occurred. It became quite common now to see professors huddled in groups of two or three, speaking in low, urgent whispers in the corridors. They obviously can't talk freely in the staff room anymore, not with Umbridge there. Hermione said quietly as she, Harry, and Ron walked by Professors McGonagall, Flitwick, Sprout, and Madame Hooch huddled together outside the Charms classroom one day. New signs had appeared on the house notice boards the day after news of the breakout from Azkaban. By order of the High Inquisitor of Hogwarts. Teachers are hereby banned from giving students any information that is not directly related to subjects they are paid to teach. The above is in direct accordance with Educational Decree No. 26. Signed, Dolores Jane Umbridge, Hogwarts High Inquisitor. Umbridge was now attending every single one of Trelawney's and Hagrid's lessons and Hagrid had insisted that Harry, Ron, and Hermione refrain from visiting his hut in the evenings for the time being. If she catches you, it'll be all of our necks on the line, Hagrid said flatly. Harry took his revenge on Umbridge by doubling down on his efforts with the DA. All of the members of the DA, it seemed, were just as determined and spurred into action by the news of ten more Death Eaters on the loose. But in nobody was this improvement more pronounced than Neville. He barely spoke at mealtimes, in class, or in the DA meetings, but he worked relentlessly on every new jinx and counter-curse Harry taught them. Harry would have given a great deal to be progressing in a clemency as Neville was in defense. Harry's sessions with Snape were not improving and his scar prickled nearly constantly now, and he now dreamed about walking the corridor that led into the Department of Mysteries every night. Harry called his guardians almost daily on the two-way mirror now, but some days the mirror just swam and reflected Harry's face back at him as Sirius and Remus were so busy with the order that they seemed to have no predictable schedule. But when they did answer, Sirius and Remus assured Harry that they were safe, that guard duty at the Department of Mysteries was going well, that they had gotten some good chances to spy on the recently escaped Death Eaters and the others in Voldemort's inner circle, that they had found out useful information. They hadn't run across Wormtail yet, which Harry was grateful for. Harry told Sirius and Remus about the fact that he seemed to be going into Voldemort's mind with the weird connection he had with him due to his scar and that Voldemort had been possessing the snakes so that was why Harry had the vision from the snake's point of view. Sirius and Remus were horror-struck and urged him to continue practicing acclimacy as best he could. Harry also got the chance to talk to Remus about how Remus tampered his anger, as Harry was hoping to get his hatred and anger at Snape under control during their acclimacy sessions, and Remus told him to concentrate on peaceful memories. Think of whatever calms you, Remus advised. Harry started to try to picture sitting in front of the drawing room fireplace with Sirius and Remus sitting cross-legged in front of him playing wizard's chess every time Snape ready to enter Harry's mind. With so much for Harry to worry about and so much to do, homework, secret DA meetings, his guardians, a clemency, January passed quickly. Before Harry knew it, it was January 25th and he called upon Sirius and Remus before Remus went to spend another full moon with the werewolf pack. And just like the December full moon, when Harry called the next few days, Remus was still gone. 
It was with some relief to Harry, and then guilt at that relief, that Sirius was kept so busy with the order nowadays. When Harry talked to Sirius in the five days Remus was gone that led up to February, Sirius was always just returning from or just leaving for a mission. If Harry had called him when Sirius was returning, Harry would watch his godfather swallow goblets of calming draft. On the morning of February 1st, Remus returned to headquarters and when the mirror swam to reveal his guardians, Harry heard a yelp and a call of, Sirius, don't point it at me. I'm not dressed. Sirius's barking laughter rang out, and shortly after his beaming face filled the mirror, as he waggled his eyebrows at Harry. How goes it, pup? A few minutes later Remus appeared beside Sirius, his hair damp as if he'd just gotten out of the shower, and even through the mirror Harry could feel Remus's magic radiating off his skin. The first Hogsmeade weekend of the new term fell in the middle of February, and Ron couldn't join Hermione and Harry as Angelina was insisting on a full day's training. Listen, Harry. Hermione told him as they set off toward Hogsmeade. I've set up a meeting in the Three Broomsticks. I think it's really important, so don't be mad at me, okay? They stepped into the Three Broomsticks and Hermione led the way to a table in the back near the wall. Sitting at the booth were Luna Lovegood and none other than Rita Skeeter, the journalist from the Daily Prophet who Sirius had threatened when he'd run into her after the first task of the Triwizard Tournament last year. After her encounter with Sirius, it seemed she had wisely decided against writing incendiary articles about Harry, his godfather, and Remus. Unfortunately, however, it looked like she had procured a new quill and notepad. Sirius had torn her previous ones up before lighting them on fire. What is this about, Hermione? Harry asked, crossing his arms and glaring at Rita Skeeter. Her article about Remus and the Daily Prophet had been a bigoted atrocity and had helped Umbridge and Emptage get the Lupin Decree, which made it nearly impossible for werewolves to be employed in Magical Britain, passed not long after. So, you actually think you know who is back? Rita asked without preamble, subjecting Harry to a piercing stare. You stand by this garbage Dumbledore's been spouting about you-know-who returning and Harry Potter, Black, and Lupin being the sole witnesses. We weren't the sole witnesses, Harry snarled. There were a dozen Death Eaters there as well. Want their names? I'd love them. Rita breathed. A great bold headline, Harry Potter accuses, and subheading, Harry Potter names Death Eaters among us. And then, beneath a big photograph of you. Disturbed teenage survivor of you-know-who's attack, Harry Potter, 15, caused outrage yesterday by accusing respectable and prominent members of the wizarding community of being Death Eaters. Rita paused, glaring daggers at Harry. But of course, your godfather wouldn't want that story out there, would he? Actually. Hermione spoke up sweetly. I quite reckon he would want that story out. Harry stared at Hermione in shock. I mean, she wasn't wrong, it would be what Sirius wanted, Harry thought, but it was Rita Skeeter. Could they trust her with this? Sirius Black wants me to report what Harry says about you-know-who. Rita asked in a hushed voice. Yes. Hermione said. The true story. All the facts. Exactly as Harry reports them. He'll tell you the details, the names of the undiscovered Death Eaters he saw there, he'll tell you what Voldemort looks like now, oh. Get a grip on yourself. 
Hermione said, for at the sound of Voldemort's name Rita had jumped so badly that she spilled half her glass of fire whiskey down her shirt. Rita blotted her shirt, staring at Hermione. The Daily Prophet won't print it. In case you haven't noticed, everyone thinks Potter, Black, and Lupin are delusional, and one of them a dark creature. Oh, change the bloody record, will you? Harry snarled. We get it, you're afraid of what you don't understand. And don't you dare print one word in this story, if you do write this story that is, about Remus's, that is Lupin's. Lycanthropy or Sirius will hunt you down and set more than just your quill and notebook on fire. Rita stared coldly between Hermione and Harry. There's no market for a story like this. Harry needs the opportunity to tell the truth, and the prophet won't print it because Fudge won't let them. Hermione said irritably. Rita gave Hermione a long, hard look before leaning over and saying in a hushed tone. All right, Fudge is leaning on the prophet, but it comes down to the same thing. They won't print a story that shows Harry in a good light and besides, it's against the public mood. This last Azkaban breakout has people worried enough. They just don't want to believe that you know who's back. Well, Luna Lubbard spoke up. My father is quite happy to take Harry's interview. The Quibbler will be publishing it. Rita let out a whoop of cackling laughter. The Quibbler. You think people will take Harry's version of events seriously if he's published in The Quibbler? Some people won't. Hermione said smoothly. But the Daily Prophets left no real reason for the breakout from Azkaban and I think people are wondering for an explanation. If there's an alternative story available, even if it's published in an, um, unusual magazine, well, I think some might be rather keen to read it. Rita eyed Hermione shrewdly. All right, let's say I do it. What kind of fee am I going to get? Hermione pulled out a sack from within her robes and plopped it down on the table. As Rita snatched up the sack and began to count the coins inside, Harry hissed to Hermione. You can't be using your own money. Hermione shot Harry a stern look. Listen, you can either pay me back or not, but I'm getting this story published, Harry. It was my Christmas money from my parents and I'll spend it how I see fit. Harry glared at her. I'll be paying you back. Whatever you like. Hermione tutted. Rita set the sack of coins back on the table and then stuffed it into her bag. She turned now to the quill and piece of parchment she'd left out on the table. Daddy will be pleased. Luna said serenely. Okay, Harry, ready to tell the public the truth. Hermione said. I suppose. Harry said, staring at Rita's poised quill over her parchment. Fire away, then, Rita. Hermione said brightly. Later that Saturday evening, Neville, Dean, and Seamus sat by Harry and Hermione in the common room as they all attempted their piles of homework. Can't wait to see what Umbridge thinks of you going public, Dean said, sounding awestruck. It's the right thing to do, Neville said in a low voice. It must have been tough talking about it, was it? Yeah, Harry mumbled. But people have got to know what Voldemort's capable of. Haven't they? That's right. Neville nodded in agreement. And his Death Eaters too. People should know. Fred and George walked up to the table they were all sitting at. Ron and Ginny not here? Fred asked, looking around before pulling up a chair. No, they went off to take a hot shower after the long practice, Harry said. Yeah, we watched the practice. George sighed. They're going to be slaughtered. They're complete rubbish without us. 
Come on, Ginny's not bad, Fred told George. Has Ron saved a goal yet? Hermione asked from behind her mountain of ancient runes homework. Well, he can do it if he doesn't think anyone's watching him, George answered, rolling his eyes. So all we have to do is ask the crowd to turn their backs every time the quaffle goes by his end next Saturday. Fred stood up and walked restlessly over to the window. You know, Quidditch was about the only thing in this place worth staying for. Hermione barked. You've got exams coming. Told you already, we're not fussed about newts. Fred said, waving a hand and staring out the window with a very thoughtful expression. The February 26th full moon fell on the Friday before the Quidditch match, and Harry once more wished Remus good luck. He'd caught Remus just before he poured key to the pack, and so Harry saw Sirius and Remus's brief, and fierce, goodbye kiss before Remus left. Sirius turned back to the mirror with serene eyes softened by the calming draft, and asked Harry about the previous night's DA meeting with a peaceful smile. On Saturday, the very best thing you could say about the Gryffindor vs. Hufflepuff Quidditch match was that it was short. Ron missed 14 goals but Ginny caught the snitch within 20 minutes so Hufflepuff only won, scoring 240 to Gryffindor's 230. Nice save, Harry told her back in the common room, where the atmosphere felt something like a funeral. I got lucky. She shrugged. Summerby's got a cold and sneezed at the wrong moment. Anyway, you're only banned as long as Umbridge is in the school. And I know she'll be gone soon, so once you're back on the team, I'm going to try out for Chaser. Angelina and Alicia are leaving next year and I prefer goal scoring to seeking. Harry glanced over at Ron, who was sitting in a corner staring at his knees. Angelina won't let him resign, Ginny said. She says she knows he's got it in him. The next morning Hermione unfolded her copy of the Daily Prophet, and when Harry reached across for pumpkin juice and an owl landed with a thud in front of him, he thought for certain that it had made a mistake. Sirius, Remus, and Harry now exclusively communicated on the mirror. Owl post was being watched, yes, but the way things were, the quicker they could talk the better, so the mirror worked perfectly fine. So, as it was, Harry hadn't received post all year. Harry leaned over to see the envelope in the owl's beak. Harry Potter. Great Hall. Hogwarts School. Suddenly five more owls fluttered down onto the table in front of Harry, jockeying for position, each attempting to give Harry their letter first. And more and more owls kept landing down in front of him. Harry. Hermione said excitedly extracting a screech owl with a long, cylindrical package from the now dozen-odd pile of owls in front of Harry. I think I know what this means. Open this one first. Harry ripped open the package and out came a tightly rolled March edition of the Quibbler. Harry unrolled it to see his own face grinning sheepishly up at him on the front cover with the headline. Harry Potter speaks out at last, the truth about he who must not be named in the night he returned. It's good, isn't it? Luna said, squeezing herself onto the bench between Fred and George. And I expect all of these are letters from readers, she said, motioning to all the owls. Harry, do you mind if we? Hermione asked. Go on then, Harry said, bemused. Ron, Hermione, Ginny, Fred, and George began ripping open envelopes. This bloke thinks you're off your rocker, Ron said, glaring down at the letter. Ah, well. 
This one's from a witch who recommends you stay away from werewolves and try to get treated from a healer for possible lycanthropic contamination from close contact that's addled your brain. Hermione said angrily, crumpling the letter up in her fist. While Harry and Hermione had been assured that the article mentioned nothing of Remus's condition, Harry had of course talked about Remus, and Sirius had arrived in the graveyard and fought the Death Eaters while Harry had dueled Voldemort. And well, almost all of Wizarding Britain knew Remus Lupin was a werewolf. Not only had his employment at Hogwarts culminated in all of the student body and their parents finding out about his lycanthropy, it had led to Umbridge and Emptage's decree, now titled the Lupin Decree. Hey, this one believes me, Harry said excitedly, scanning a long letter from a witch named Paisley. This one's of two minds, said Fred. Blimey, what a waste of parchment. This one says you've got her convinced, Hermione said brightly. This one says you're barking, Ron was saying. What is going on here? said a falsely sweet voice. Harry hesitated, but only for a moment. People have written to me because I gave an interview about what happened to me last June. An interview? What do you mean? Umbridge said, her voice extremely high. Here, Harry said and he threw her a copy of the quibbler. Umbridge caught it, and as she stared down at the cover her pale, doughy face became violet. When did you do this? She asked, her voice trembling. Last Hogsmeade weekend, Harry answered. She looked up at him, her face incandescent with rage. There will be no more Hogsmeade trips for you, Mr. Potter, she hissed. I have told you again and again not to tell lies, but the message apparently has still not sunk in. Fifty points from Gryffindor and a week's worth of detentions. By mid-morning signs were hung up all over the school. By the order of the High Inquisitor of Hogwarts, any student found in the possession of the magazine The Quibbler will be expelled. The above is in direct accordance with Educational Decree Number 27. Signed, Dolores Jane Umbridge, Hogwarts High Inquisitor. Hermione beamed up at the sign. Oh, Harry. If she could have done one thing to make absolutely certain that every single person in this school would read your interview, it was banning it. By the end of the day, though Harry had not caught a single glimpse of the magazine, the whole school seemed to be quoting the interview. Harry heard them whispering about in the corridors and in the back of lessons. Hermione reported that every single girl in the girls' toilets had been talking about the interview when Hermione stepped in before ancient runes. And they obviously know I know you. Hermione said, eyes alight. And they hammered me with questions, and I think they believe you. I really do think you've got them convinced now. The professors were forbidden from mentioning the interview by Education Decree Number 26 but found ways to express their feeling about it. Professor Sprout gave Gryffindor 20 points when Harry handed her a watering can. Professor Flitwick subtly handed Harry a box of squeaking sugar mice at the end of Charms and Professor Trelawney broke down into sobs during divination and announced to the startled class, and a very upset umbrage, that Harry was not going to suffer an early death after all but live to be a hundred and one, become minister of magic, and have a dozen children. Harry was skimming the shelves in the library for a book he needed on partial vanishment with Hermione when he found Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle sitting at a table with their heads together along with a weedy-looking Slytherin boy named Theodore Knott. Goyle cracked his knuckles, Malfoy whispered something undoubtedly wicked to Crab, and Knott gave Harry a nasty sneer, 
Harry had named all their fathers as Death Eaters. And the best bit is they can't contradict you, Hermione said gleefully after they left the library, because they can't admit they've read the article. Sirius and Remus had expressed their feelings with significant gusto when Harry called them before bed that night. Well done, pup, Sirius roared, pumping his fist in the air and nearly knocking over Remus's record player on the dresser in he and Remus's room. And that Skeeter woman, I had my doubts of course, but she did us all right. Remus beamed at him as he shed his traveling cloak. Harry had called just as he had returned from a mission. Brilliant move, Harry, he said with a twinkle of mischief in his eyes. After ending the mirror connection, Harry rolled over and tried to empty his mind and think of the calm scene. He was sitting in the drawing room in Twelve Grimmauld Place. Sirius and Remus were cross-legged in front of him. They were playing wizard's chess. The fire was warm and he was chewing a chocolate frog. He was standing in a dark, curtained room. His fists were clenched in front of him, long-fingered and white. Beyond the chair, in a pool of candlelight, knelt a man in black robes. I have been badly advised, it seems, said Harry in a high, cold voice that pulsed with anger. You are sure of your facts, Rockwood? Yes, my lord, yes I used to work in the department after, after all. Avery told me Bode would be able to remove it. Bode could never have taken it, Bode would have known that he could not, that is why he fought so hard against Malfoy's imperious curse. Very well. I have wasted months on fruitless schemes. But no matter, we begin again. You have Lord Voldemort's gratitude, Rockwood. I shall need your help. I shall need all the information you can give me. Of course, my lord, of course anything. Harry sputtered awake, flailing madly, becoming entangled in his bedsheets and falling out of bed. Will you stop acting like a maniac and I can get you out of here? Ron said from beside him. Ron wrenched open the hangings and Harry stared up at him on his back in a net of blankets, his scar throbbing. Has someone been attacked again? Ron asked, pulling Harry to his feet. Is it the snake? No, everyone's fine. Harry gasped. Well, Avery is in trouble. He gave him the wrong information. He's really angry. Do you mean, did you just see you-know-who? I was you-know-who, Harry said, sinking onto his bed, rubbing his scar. But Rockwood's going to help him now. Rockwood's one of the potential Death Eaters Sirius has been spying on, remember? Well, not really potential now, is he? Anyway, Rockwood's just told him Bode couldn't have done it. Bode, you mean the man from St. Mungo's? Ron asked in a whisper. I knew him before he got himself into the closed ward. My dad used to talk about him. He's an unspeakable, he works in the Department of Mysteries. So, Rockwood couldn't have removed the prophecy, Harry said slowly. He said Bode was under the imperious curse, I think Malfoy's dad put it on him. Bode was bewitched to remove the prophecy, Ron hissed. And did you say that you were you-know-who? Harry nodded shakily. Harry, you've got to tell Sirius and Remus, and McGonagall, and Dumbledore. The next day after a break between classes, Harry told Hermione about what happened. And now Voldemort's using Rockwood to get the prophecy. Hermione looked thoughtful and then rounded on Harry. You're supposed to be learning how to close your mind to this sort of thing. I think you ought to put a bit more effort into your occlumency from now on. Later that night, Harry told Sirius and Remus about the vision. 
This is quite useful information for the order to know, Harry. Remus told him with a sober and concerned expression. But please, Harry, your occlumency. I know, I know. Harry sighed in frustration. Remus gave him a soft smile as Sirius wringed his hands and told Harry. When my mum did legitimacy on me. Sirius swallowed. His face was very pale and Remus reached for one of Sirius's hands, interlacing their fingers. I could never block her out completely. The best I could do was think of. Insignificant things. Sirius's eyes flashed up to Remus, and then back to Harry. I thought of Quidditch or classwork. I pushed back the memories of my friends, of the feelings I had for Remus. I imagined putting them in a locked box on a high shelf in the back of my mind. So, Harry tried to put the dream of Voldemort and Rockwood, and the continuing dreams of the dark corridor, in a locked box in the back of his mind. He imagined separate boxes for Ron and Hermione, for his feelings and thoughts about Ginny, for Sirius and Remus. But unfortunately, his boxes in the back of his mind were not as secure as he'd like them to have been. Get up, Potter. A few weeks after the dream about Rockwood, Harry was on his hands and knees again in Snape's office, his scar throbbing, trying to clear his mind. He had just been forced to relive a stream of memories of Dudley and his gang humiliating Harry in primary school. That last memory, Snape said. What was it? Harry got to his feet. You mean the one where my cousin tried to push my head into the toilet? No, Snape said softly. I mean the one of a man kneeling in a dark room. It's nothing. How did that man and that room come to be inside your head, Potter? It, it was a dream. Just a dream I had. There was a long pause. Remind me why we are here, Potter. So that I can learn occlumency. Harry said, glaring at a jar of a dead eel on one of Snape's shelves. I would have thought that after two months' worth of lessons you might have made more progress. How many other dreams about the Dark Lord have you had? Just that one. Harry lied. Perhaps, Snape said, his black eyes narrowing. You actually enjoy these dreams and visions, Potter. Maybe they make you feel special, important. No, they don't, Harry said, his hands bawling into fists. That is just as well, Potter, Snape said coldly, because you are neither special nor important. It is not up to you to find out what the Dark Lord is saying to his Death Eaters. No, that's your job, isn't it? Harry growled. An almost satisfied expression appeared on Snape's face. Yes, Potter, that is my job. Now, we will start again. He raised his wand. One, two, three. Legilimens. He was standing in the graveyard. Cedric was beside him. Wands out, do you reckon? Cedric was saying. But Harry could still see Snape standing in front of him. And somehow Snape was getting clearer, and the graveyard and Cedric were growing fainter. Harry raised his own wand. Protego! Snape staggered. His wand flew upward and suddenly Harry's mind was overrun with memories that were not his. A hook-nosed man was shouting at a cowing woman. A small dark-haired boy was crying in a corner. A greasy-haired teenager sat alone in a dark bedroom, pointing his wand at the ceiling, shooting down flies. A girl was laughing as a scrawny boy tried to mount a bucking broomstick. Enough! Harry felt as if he had been hit in the chest, he staggered backwards. Snape was shaking, staring white-faced at Harry. Well, Potter, Snape hissed. 
that was certainly an improvement. I don't remember telling you to use a shield charm, but there was no doubt it was effective. Harry did not speak. It was hard to reconcile the image of the crying little boy with the man standing in front of him with such loathing in his eyes. We will try again, Snape said. On the count of three. One, two, three. Legilimens. Harry was hurtling along the corridor that led to the door to the Department of Mysteries. And for the first time, the door flew open. He was through it at last, inside a black-walled, black-floored circular room and there were more doors around him. He needed to go on. But which door ought he take? Potter. Harry opened his eyes. He was laying on his back, panting. Explain yourself. I don't know. I've never seen that before. Harry insisted, standing up. I told you, I've dreamed about the door, but it's never opened before. Snape opened his mouth to snarl, but suddenly a woman screamed from somewhere outside of the room. Snape jerked his head upward, gazing at the ceiling. What the? Snape muttered as there was a loud commotion coming from what must be the entrance hall above them, and the woman screamed again. Snape strode to his office door, his wand at the ready, and swept out of sight. Harry hesitated, and then followed. When Harry reached the top of the stairs that led down to the dungeons, he found the entrance hall crowded with students. Harry pushed forward through a pack of Slytherins and saw the onlookers had formed a ring, some looking shocked, others terrified. Professor Trelawney was standing in the middle of the entrance hall with her wand in one hand. Her hair was sticking on end, her glasses askew, and two large trunks lay on the floor beside her. One was upside down. It looked as though it had been thrown down the stairs. No, she cried. No, this cannot be happening. You didn't realize this was coming, a high girlish voice said and Harry turned to see Professor Umbridge. You didn't predict that you'd be sacked. You can't, Professor Trelawney whimpered, tears streaming down her face. You can't sack me. I've been here sixteen years. Hogwarts is my home. It was your home, Professor Umbridge said, smiling with revolting pleasure. Until an hour ago, when the Minister of Magic countersigned the order for your dismissal. Now kindly remove yourself from the entrance hall. Professor Trelawney sank onto one of her trunks, moaning and rocking backward and forward in grief, her arms wrapped around herself. Then Harry heard footsteps and everyone watched as Professor McGonagall strode forward to Professor Trelawney, withdrawing a handkerchief from her robes. There, there, Sybil, calm down. You're not going to leave Hogwarts. I really, Umbridge said in a deadly voice. An authority for that statement is. That would be mine, a deep voice said. The oak front doors had swung open and students hurried out of the way as Dumbledore stood framed in the doorway by the misty night. What Dumbledore had been doing out on the grounds, Harry was not sure. Leaving the doors wide open behind him, Dumbledore walked forward to Professor Trelawney and Professor McGonagall. Yours, Professor Dumbledore, Umbridge said with a laugh. I'm afraid you do not understand the position. I have here. She pulled out a scroll from her robes. An order of dismissal signed by the Minister of Magic. I have dismissed Professor Trelawney. Dumbledore smiled. As High Inquisitor you have every right to dismiss my teachers. You do not, however, have the authority to send them away from the castle. That power still resides with the headmaster, and it is my wish that Professor Trelawney continues to live at Hogwarts.
Dumbledore turned to Professor McGonagall. Might I ask you to escort Sybil back upstairs, Professor McGonagall? Of course, McGonagall said. Professor Sprout and Professor Flitwick hurried forward to levitate the trunks as McGonagall and Trelawney walked up the marble staircase. And what? Umbridge said to Dumbledore. Are you going to do with her once I appoint a new divination teacher who needs her lodgings? Oh, that won't be a problem, Dumbledore said pleasantly. I've already found us a new divination professor and he would prefer lodgings on the ground floor. You found? Umbridge cried shrilly. Might I remind you that under Educational Decree 22, the Ministry has the right to appoint a suitable candidate if, and only if, the headmaster is unable to find one, Dumbledore said brightly. And I am happy to say on this occasion I have succeeded. May I introduce you? Dumbledore turned to face the open front doors and through the mist came a face that Harry had once seen years ago in the Forbidden Forest. White blonde hair and blue eyes, the head and torso of a man joined to the body of a Palomino horse. A centaur. Part man, part horse. Harry grinned widely. This is Firenze, Dumbledore said happily to a thunderstruck umbrage. I think you will find him suitable. When Harry stepped into the new divination classroom on the ground floor a few days later, he found the room much like Sirius, and Remus had charmed the attic in twelve Grimald Place the day before Harry's fifteenth birthday. The ground was moss and trees were growing out of it, the room full of dappled, green light. The students sat on the earthy floor, leaning against tree trunks or boulders, looking nervous. Faren stood in the middle of the room, in a clearing with no trees. Harry Potter, Faren said, extending his hand. Harry stepped forward and shook the centaur's hand. Hi. Good to see you. And you. It was foretold that we would meet again. The centaur replied. Professor Dumbledore has kindly arranged this classroom for us. Faren told the class after Harry sat. I would have preferred to teach you in the Forbidden Forest, which was, until Monday, my home. But I can no longer return to the forest. My head has banished me. I heard, Dean said excitedly. There are more of you. Did Hagrid breed you like the Thestrals? Forens turned his head very slowly to stare at Dean, who suddenly seemed to realize his mistake. I didn't. I mean, sorry, Dean stammered. Centaurs are not servants or playthings for humans, said Forens quietly. Now let us begin. Forens raised his hand and the classroom dimmed and stars appeared on the classroom ceiling. Lie back on the floor and observe the heavens, he said. For here it is written, for those who can see, the fortune of our races. We centaurs watch the skies for the great tides of evil or change. It may take ten years to be sure what we are seeing. Forens pointed to a bright red star. In the past decade, the indications have been that wizard kind is living through nothing more than a brief calm between two wars. Mars, bringer of battle, shines brightly above us suggesting that the fight will break out soon. How soon, centaurs may attempt to divine by the burning of herbs and leaves, by the observation of fumes and flame. March turned into a blustery April and once more Remus Lupin spent the March 27th full moon with the werewolf pack, returning a few days later glowing with magic, and at Hogwarts, owls were drawing nearer. Harry lived for the brief conversations with Sirius and Remus on the two-way mirror who seemed to be coping well with the flurry of order work and had seemed to be developing a routine around Remus's time with the werewolf pack, and also for the DA meetings. They had finally started to work on the Patronus charm. What we really need is a Bogart, 
Harry told the DA. That's how Lupin taught me, I had to conjure a Patronus while the Bogart was pretending to be a Dementor. Harry, I'm doing it, Seamus cried. Look, R, it's gone. But it was definitely something furry. Hermione's Patronus, a shining silver otter, was flying in circles around her. The door to the room of requirement opened and Dobby the house elf hurried forward toward Harry. His eyes were wide. Harry Potter, sir, Dobby has come to warn you. Harry Potter, she, she, she's coming. Harry straightened up and looked around at the motionless DA members. What are you waiting for? He shouted. Run! They all dashed for the door, throwing it open and sprinting down the corridor in all directions. Harry sprinted left. Suddenly something caught Harry's ankle and he fell sprawling onto his chest on the stone corridor. He rolled over onto his back and found Malfoy laughing. Trip James, Potter. Hey Professor, I've got one. Umbridge came bustling around the corner. It's him, she said jubilantly. Excellent, Draco, excellent. Fifty points to Slytherin. I'll take him from here, stand up, Potter. Harry got to his feet. He had never seen Umbridge so happy. You will come with me to the headmaster's office, Potter. Harry stood in front of the stone gargoyle as Umbridge said the password. Harry wondered how many of the others had been caught. Ron, Fred, George, and Ginny's mum would kill them. Hermione would be expelled before she could take her owls. Neville had been getting so good. The gargoyle stepped aside at the password, fizzing Wisby and they climbed the stairs to the polished door. Umbridge did not knock. She opened the door, stepping inside, holding tight onto Harry's arm. Dumbledore was sitting at his desk, the tips of his long fingers together, his face serene. Professor McGonagall stood rigidly beside him. Cornelius Fudge stood by the fireplace, looking extremely pleased. Kingsley stood by the doorway, along with a short gray-haired man Harry did not know and Percy Weasley hovered by the wall with a quill and parchment in his hands, poised to take notes. Well, Fudge said, staring at Harry in satisfaction. Well, well, well. Harry replied with a dirty glare. The only person he hated more than Fudge was Umbridge. Snape was now in third place. Well, Potter, I expect you know why you are here, Fudge said. Harry opened his mouth to say yes but he had caught sight of Dumbledore's face. Dumbledore was not looking directly at Harry, but at a point just above his shoulder. He shook his head a fraction of an inch. No, Harry said. You don't know where you are here. Haven't the foggiest, Harry said. So you have no idea why Professor Umbridge has brought you into this office. You are not aware that you have broken any school rules. School rules, Harry said. Nope. All ministry decrees. Not that I am aware of. Harry shrugged. Fudge's voice came thick with anger. So it is news to you that an illegal student organization has been discovered within this school. Sure is. Harry said. I shall fetch our informant. Umbridge said silkily. She quickly stepped out of the door and after a few minutes full of heavy silence, Umbridge returned with Cho's friend Marietta. Her whole face was covered in boils. Marietta covered her face with her robes and cried into them. Well, I'll tell him then. Umbridge snapped. Miss Edgecombe here came to my office shortly after dinner this evening and told me that if I proceeded to a secret room on the seventh floor, sometimes known as the Room of Requirement, that I would find out something to my advantage, 
that there would be some kind of meeting there. Unfortunately, this hex came into effect and she stopped speaking. Umbridge turned to Fudge. You will remember, Minister, that I have testimony from Willie Widdershins from October in the Hog's Head. He was heavily bandaged but his hearing was not impaired, and he heard Potter persuading students to join an illegal secret society, whose aim is to learn spells and curses that the Ministry has deemed inappropriate for school age. I think you'll find you are wrong there, Dolores, Dumbledore said quietly. Oh ho, Fudge cried. Yes, let us hear the latest cock and bull story to get Potter out of trouble. Widdishins was lying, was he? Or was it Potter's identical twin in the hog's head that day? Dumbledore was smiling. I am merely pointing out that Dolores is quite wrong to suggest that at that time such a group was illegal. If you will remember, the ministry decree banning all student societies came into effect two days later after Harry's Hogsmeade meeting. Umbridge recovered quickly. That's all fine, headmaster. But if the first meeting was not illegal, all those that have happened since most certainly are. Do you have any evidence that these meetings occurred? Dumbledore said calmly. As Dumbledore spoke, Harry swore he heard Kingsley mutter something and Harry felt like something like a soft breeze brush against his robes. Evidence, Umbridge said with a horrible smile. Why do you think Miss Edgecombe is here? Oh, can she tell us about six months' worth of meetings? I was under the impression that she merely was reporting a meeting tonight. Miss Edgecombe, Umbridge said. Just nod or shake your head. Have these meetings been happening regularly over the last six months? To Harry's complete shock, Marietta shook her head. What do you mean by shaking your head, dear? Umbridge said testily. I would have thought the meaning was quite clear. Professor McGonagall said sharply. There have been no secret meetings for the past six months, is that correct, Edgecombe? Marietta nodded. But there was a meeting tonight. Umbridge cried. And Potter was the leader. Potter organized it. Why are you shaking your head, girl? Umbridge seized Marietta and began to shake her very hard. In the next second Dumbledore was on his feet, wand raised. Kingsley stepped forward and Umbridge leapt back from Marietta. I cannot allow you to manhandle my students, Dolores, Dumbledore said, looking angry for the first time. You want to calm yourself, Madam Umbridge, Kingsley said slowly. You don't want to get yourself in trouble now. I... I forgot myself. Umbridge stammered, stumbling back. Dolores, Fudge said firmly. The meeting tonight, the one we know for sure happened. Right, Umbridge said. Yes. Well it appears they were forewarned because when I and a few trustworthy students arrived they were running in every direction. It does not matter, however. Miss Parkinson ran into the room of requirement and the room provided evidence. Harry felt a horrible sinking feeling as Umbridge withdrew from her pocket the list of names that Hermione had pinned upon the wall and handed it to Fudge. Excellent, Dolores, Fudge said with a huge smile. And by thunder, he looked up at Dumbledore. See what they've named themselves, Fudge said quietly. Dumbledore's army. Dumbledore reached out and took the parchment. Then he looked up, smiling. Well, the game is up, he said brightly. Would you like a written confession from me, Cornelius? Or will a statement from the witnesses suffice? McGonagall and Kingsley exchanged a frightened glance. Statement, Fudge said. What I don't. Dumbledore's army, Dumbledore said, still smiling. Not Potter's army. Dumbledore's army. 
Understanding blazed across Fudge's face. You? He whispered. You organized this. That's right, Dumbledore said. Tonight was the first meeting. To see if they would be interested. It was a mistake, I see, to invite Miss Edgecombe. Then you have been plotting against me, Fudge cried. That's right. No, Professor Dumbledore, Harry shouted. Shut up, Potter, Fudge barked. Well, I came here tonight expecting to expel Potter and instead. You get to arrest me, Dumbledore said smiling. Weasley, Fudge cried, bouncing in delight. You got all of that down? Yes, sir, I've got it, yes, Percy said, scanning his notes joyfully. Duplicate your notes, Weasley, and send a copy to the Daily Prophet at once. Percy dashed from the room and Fudge turned back to Dumbledore. You will now be escorted to the Ministry, where you will be formally charged and then sent to Azkaban to await trial. Ah, Dumbledore said softly. Yes, I thought we might hit this little snag. Snag, Fudge said. I see no snag, Dumbledore. Well, it seems that you are laboring under the delusion that I am going to, what is the phrase? Come quietly. I am afraid I am not going to come quietly at all, Cornelius. I have absolutely no intention of being sent to Azkaban. I could break out, of course, but frankly that would be a waste of time and I have a whole host of other things I ought to be doing. Fudge looked to the man with gray hair who stood by the door, the only one not to have spoken so far, and then the man moved forward. Don't be silly, Dawlish, Dumbledore said kindly. I am sure you are an excellent oar, but if you attempt to, um, bring me in by force, I will have to hurt you. Dawlish blinked. So? Fudge sneered. You intend to take on Kingsley, Dawlish, Dolores, and myself single-handed Dumbledore? He will not be single-handed, Professor McGonagall cried, plunging her hand into her robes for her wand. Oh yes he will, Minerva, Dumbledore said sharply. Hogwarts needs you. Enough of this rubbish, Fudge shouted, pulling out his own wand. Dawlish, Kingsley, take him. A streak of silver light flashed around the room. A hand grabbed the neck of Harry's robes and forced him down onto the floor as a second silver flash went off and a cloud of dust filled the air. Harry turned to see Professor McGonagall had forced Harry and Marietta out of harm's way and a very tall figure was moving through the dust towards them. Are you all right? Dumbledore was saying. Yes. Professor McGonagall answered, getting up and dragging Harry and Marietta to their feet. The dust was settling and Harry saw Fudge, Umbridge, Kingsley, and Dawlish lying motionless on the floor. Fox the Phoenix was circling over them, flying in circles. Unfortunately, I had to hex Kingsley too or it would have looked suspicious, Dumbledore said lowly. You'll thank him for me for modifying Miss Edgecombe's memory, won't you Minerva? Now they will wait quite soon and it will be best if they did not know that we had time to communicate. You must act as though no time has passed as though they merely knocked to the ground. Where will you go? Professor McGonagall asked. Grimm, please. Oh no, Dumbledore said with a grim smile. I am not going into hiding. Fudge will soon wish he'd never dislodged me from Hogwarts. Professor Dumbledore. Harry started but Dumbledore cut him off. Listen to me, Harry, he said urgently. You must study occlumency as hard as you can, do you understand me? The man called Dawlish was stirring. Remember, close your mind, Dumbledore whispered. Fox circled the office once more and swooped low over Dumbledore. 
Dumbledore raised his hand and grasped the phoenix's long tail and in a flash of fire, they were gone. Where is he? Fudge shouted, clambering up off the ground. I don't know. Kingsley yelled, jumping to his feet. Well, he can't have apparated. You can't inside this school. Umbridge cried. The stairs. Dollis shouted and he ran out of the office door, followed closely by Kingsley and Umbridge. Fudge brushed dust off his robes and turned to Professor McGonagall. Well, Minerva, he said nastily. I'm afraid this is the end of your friend Dumbledore. Oh, you think so, do you? Professor McGonagall said scornfully. Fudge did not seem to hear her. He was looking around at the wrecked office. A few of the portraits were hissing at him. Some were even giving him two-fingered hand gestures. Professor McGonagall towed Harry and Marietta toward the door, and as the office door swung closed behind them, Harry heard the voice of Sirius's great-great-grandfather Phineas saying from his portrait, Well, Minister, I disagree with Dumbledore on many counts. But you can't deny. He's got style. Chapter 22 By order of the Ministry of Magic, Dolores Jane Umbridge, High Inquisitor, has replaced Albus Dumbledore as head of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. The above is in accordance with Educational Decree Number 28. Signed, Cornelius Oswald Fudge. The second worst bit of news beyond the notices that appeared the next morning of Umbridge's new status as headmistress was the creation of the Inquisitorial Squad. A select group of students who are supportive of the Ministry of Magic, handpicked by Professor Umbridge. Draco Malfoy told Harry, Ron, and Hermione the next morning in the entrance hall. So, Granger, I'll have five from you for overhearing you being rude about our new headmistress. Five from you because I don't like you, Potter. Weasley, your shirt's untucked so that's another five. Oh yeah, you're a mudblood, Granger, so ten for that. Ron pulled out his wand but Hermione grabbed his arm, yanking it down. Don't. She hissed. Wise move, Granger. Malfoy sneered. New times, new rules. And he strode away, laughing with Crab and Goyle. Harry, Ron, and Hermione turned to the giant hourglasses on the wall behind them that recorded the house points, and watched red rubies fly upward out of the Gryffindor hourglass. Fred and George strolled down the marble staircase to join them. What's up? said George. Malfoy just docked us twenty-five points, Harry said furiously. Yeah, Montague tried to do us during break, Fred said, but he never managed to get the words out due to the fact that we forced him headfirst into the vanishing cabinet on the first floor. Hermione squeaked. But you'll get in terrible trouble. Not until Montague reappears, and that could take weeks. I don't know where we sent him, George said coolly. Anyway, we've decided we don't care about getting in trouble anymore. Have you ever? Hermione asked. Course we have, said Fred. Never been expelled, have we? We've always known where to draw the line, George said. We've always stopped short of causing real mayhem, Fred added. But now, Ron asked. Well now, George said. What with Dumbledore gone, Fred said. We reckon a bit of mayhem, George said. Is exactly what our dear new head deserves, Fred said. George looked at his watch. Phase one is about to begin. I'd get to the Great Hall for lunch if I were you, that way the teachers will see you can't have had anything to do with it. Run along now. Harry, Ron, and Hermione were just sitting down at the Gryffindor table for lunch when it started. Boom! 
From the entrance hall, screaming started. Harry, Ron, Hermione, and the other Gryffindors abandoned their lunch and sprinted back into the entrance hall. Someone, Harry knew exactly who, had set off an enormous crate of enchanted fireworks. Dragons comprised of gold and green sparks soared up the marble staircase and down the corridors, emitting loud fiery blasts and bangs as they went. Rockets with long tails of brilliant silver stars were ricocheting off the walls, sparklers were writing swear words into midair on their own accord, firecrackers were exploding like mines everywhere Harry looked. And it seemed the enchanted fireworks were actually gaining in energy and momentum, rather than beginning to dissipate. Filch and Umbridge stood frozen in horror at the top of the marble staircase, and then sprang into action. Stupefy! Umbridge cried and a jet of red light shot out of her wand, hitting one of the rockets. Instead of stunning it, the rocket exploded. Filch dashed to a nearby cupboard and pulled out a broom, beginning to swat the fireworks in midair. In the next second, the head of the broom was on fire. The fireworks continued to burn and spread all over the school throughout the afternoon. Though they caused significant disruption, the other professors did not seem to mind them very much. Dear, dear, Professor McGonagall said sardonically as one of the dragons soared into the transfiguration classroom, exhaling flames. Miss Brown, would you mind running along to the headmistress and informing her that we have an escape firework in our classroom? When the final bell rang, Harry saw a soot-stained, sweaty, and disheveled-looking umbrage tottering from Professor Flitwick's classroom. Thank you so much, Professor, Professor Flitwick chirped. I could have got the sparklers myself, but I wasn't sure if I had the authority. Fred and George were heroes that night in the common room. Those were wonderful fireworks, Hermione said admiringly. You did Padfoot, Mooney, and Prongs proud, Harry assured the twins. Harry walked down to Snape's dungeons the following evening feeling like there was hot lead in his stomach. He tried to focus on the boxes in the back of his mind tried to think of sitting by the fire in the drawing room of Twelve Grimald Place. Remus, Sirius, and I are playing wizard chess, Harry told himself. I just bit into a chocolate frog. You're late, Potter, Snape said coldly when Harry entered. He was standing at his desk, and as usual, placing his own memories and thoughts into the pensive. One doubt, Snape said. Harry moved to his usual position. On the count of three, then. One, two. Snape's door banged open and Malfoy ran in. Professor Snape, sir. Oh, sorry. Malfoy looked from Snape to Harry in surprise. Well, Draco, what is it? Snape asked. Potter's just here for some remedial potions. Malfoy looked gleeful before turning back to Snape. Professor Umbridge needs your help, sir. They've found Montague. He's turned up jammed into a toilet on the fourth floor. How did he get there? Snape demanded. I don't know, sir. He's a bit confused. Very well, Potter. We shall resume the lesson tomorrow evening. Snape swept out of his office and Malfoy followed, casting a last gloating glance at Harry. Seething, Harry stuffed his wand into his robes. He made to turn away but a silver-white light suddenly danced upward out of the pensive and within it, its contents were ebbing and swirling. Snape's thoughts, things he did not want Harry to see if he broke through Snape's defenses accidentally. 
Harry stepped toward the pensive, curiosity overwhelming him. Harry walked the remaining distance to the pensive and tapped the surface with his wand. The surface became transparent, and Harry thought the image before him was the Great Hall. Harry was trembling. Snape could be back at any moment, but a sudden daring seized Harry, and he took a great gulp of breath and plunged his face into the surface of Snape's thoughts. At once the floor of the office lurched away and Harry was suddenly standing in the middle of the Great Hall. The four house tables were gone and instead there were a hundred desks, all facing the same way, and at each one sat a student, head bent low, scribbling on a roll of parchment. There was no sound except the scratching of quills and the occasional rustle of parchment. Sunshine streamed in through the high windows. It was exam time. Harry looked around for Snape. It was his memory after all. And there Snape was, at a table right behind Harry. Snape the teenager had a stringy, pallid look about him. His hair was greasy and lank. Harry stepped behind Snape and read the heading of the exam paper. Defense against the dark arts. Ordinary wizarding level. So, Snape was fifteen or sixteen, around Harry's current age. Five more minutes, came the squeaky voice of a younger Professor Flitwick, who was walking among the desks, past a boy with untidy black hair. Harry moved so quickly that if he had been solid, he would have sent desks flying, but as it was, he slid up the aisles fluidly. Harry stopped in front of the desk and looked down at his fifteen-year-old father. James Potter had hazel eyes and there was no scar on his forehead. But James had Harry's same thin face, same mouth, same eyebrows. His black hair stuck up at the back exactly as Harry's did. Harry could tell that when James stood up, they would be of exactly the same height. James yawned and rumbled up his hair as he set down his quill. Then with a glance at Professor Flitwick, he turned and grinned at a boy sitting four seats behind him. Harry saw his fifteen-year-old godfather give James a thumbs up. Sirius was lounging back in his chair, tilting it on its back legs. Sirius Black was a certifiably handsome man now, of course, and as a teenager he was striking. His alabaster face was smooth, and his long black hair fell with a kind of casual elegance around his chin and to his shoulders in a way that no other teenage boy could ever possibly hope to achieve. There was a girl a bit behind Sirius, to his left, who was looking at him hopefully twirling her hair around her index finger. Sirius turned back in his chair and looked behind him, and the girl brightened, but Sirius was looking beyond her, and giving a small wave with his hand to a desk behind the girl. And there was Harry's Uncle Mooney. Remus Lupin looked pale and peaky. The full moon must be either approaching or waning, and he had still sat for his exams without an extension. How classically Remus, Harry thought. Remus of the present day was still most certainly a handsome man. His premature lines, scars, and gray streaks gave him a distinguished, mysterious look that accentuated his quiet air and added to his tall and sinuous frame. But teenage Remus was not lined, although Harry could see the scars that crept up his neck under the collar of his robes and as Remus wrote with his quill, Harry could see scars on his hands and forearms. Harry watched Remus put down his quill rereading his essay and frowning slightly. He didn't seem to notice Sirius's motioning at him. Harry glanced around again and spotted the last marauder within seconds, 
the one Harry now pretended had never been their friend. But there he was, a small, mousy-haired boy with a pointed nose sat chewing his fingernails anxiously, staring down at his paper. Harry turned back to James and found that he was doodling on a scrap of parchment. James had drawn a snitch and was now tracing the letters Ellie. Quills down, please, Professor Flitwick squeaked. Accio. More than a hundred rolls of parchment zoomed through the air toward Professor Flitwick and he caught them, leaping up into the air as he did so. Very well everyone, you are free to go. James Potter jumped to his feet, stuffing the scrap of parchment into his school bag, and strode over to Sirius, who, in turn, had walked over to Remus's desk. Harry watched Remus push himself out of his chair, wincing slightly and saw that Remus was by far the tallest of his friends, even at the age of fifteen. Harry watched Sirius sling Remus's school bag over his own shoulder. Sirius, I can carry my own things. Nonsense, Mooney, Sirius was saying. This is strength training. Abita needs it any chance he can get it. Harry swore he saw teenage Remus roll his eyes. Harry turned and glimpsed Snape a short way away moving between the tables toward the doors into the entrance hall, staring down at a book he had pulled out of his school bag. A gang of chattering girls separated Snape from Harry's father and his friends, but by planting himself in the middle of the group Harry managed to keep Snape in sight as well as the marauders. Did you like question 10, Mooney? Sirius was asking as they emerged into the entrance hall. Loved it, Remus said briskly. Give five signs that identify the werewolf. Excellent question. Do you think you managed to get all the signs? James asked in a tone of mock concern. Think I did, Remus said seriously as they joined the crowd heading out the front doors, eager to step out onto the sunlit grounds. 1. He's sitting in my chair. 2. He's wearing my clothes. 3. His name's Remus Lupin. Sirius barked so hard with laughter he doubled over, gripping James's shoulder for support, who was holding his belly as he chuckled. Remus smiled, looking quite pleased with his joke, his eyes flashing to Sirius's face. Wormtail was the only one who didn't laugh. I got the snout shape, the pupils of the eyes, and the tufted tail, Peter was saying anxiously. But I couldn't think what else. How thick are you? Sirius asked impatiently. You run around with a werewolf once a month. Keep your voice down. Remus implored and Sirius glanced about, looking chastened. As James and his friends strode down toward the lake, Snape followed, his nose almost touching the book he was reading and apparently not paying attention to where he was going. Well, I thought that paper was a piece of cake, Sirius said. I'll be surprised if I don't get outstanding on it at least. Me too, James said, reaching into his pocket and withdrawing a golden snitch. Where did you get that? Sirius asked him. Nicked it, James answered casually. He started playing with the snitch, allowing it to fly as much as a foot away from him before seizing it again. Wormtail watched in awe. James, Sirius, Remus, and Peter stopped in the shade of the beech tree on the edge of the lake. James, Sirius, and Peter threw themselves on the grass while Remus sat more gingerly, grimacing a bit as he did so. Harry noticed Sirius looking at him with a slight frown. Nearby, Snape settled himself on the grass in the shadow of a clump of bushes. Harry sat between the beech tree and Snape, watching the foursome under the tree. Remus reached for his school bag beside Sirius. 
Please, Mooney, you've just had an exam. Sirius tutted as Remus withdrew a book from his bag. Transfiguration is next, Remus said briskly, and I want to beat you. He opened his book and began to read. Sirius barked a laugh and then swept his long black hair out of his face, looking around now at the students milling about on the grass, looking a bit haughty and bored, but quite handsomely so. Harry thought that privately Remus thought so too because his brown eyes kept flitting up from the book to watch Sirius. James was still playing with the snitch, letting it zoom farther and farther away but grabbing it at the last second. Peter was watching him with his mouth open. Harry noticed that his father had a habit of rumpling up his hair so as to make sure it didn't get too tidy, and kept looking over at the girls that were sitting by the water's edge. Put that away, will you? Sirius said finally, as James made an excellent catch and Peter broke out into a cheer. Before Wormtail wets himself with excitement. Peter turned pink and James grinned. If it bothers you, he said, putting the snitch back into his pocket. I'm bored, Sirius said. Wish it was a full moon. You might, Remus said darkly and Sirius blanched a bit but Remus just continued talking, this time in a lighter tone. So tomorrow can't come fast enough for you, then. If you're bored you could test me, here. He held out his book and as he did so, the sleeves of his robes fell back and not so old scars revealed themselves. Sirius snorted. I thought you wanted to beat me. This'll liven you up, Padfoot, James said quietly. Look who it is. Sirius's head turned and he suddenly became very still, like a dog that had scented a rabbit. Excellent, he said softly. Snivelous. Harry turned to see Snape who was now stowing the book he had been reading into his bag. As he emerged from the shadows of the bushes and set off across the grass, Sirius and James stood up. Remus and Peter stayed sitting. Remus was now staring down at his book but his brown eyes weren't moving over the text and a crease had appeared between his eyebrows. Peter was sitting as if he were about to watch an enthralling Quidditch match. All right, Snivellus, James called. Snape reacted so fast it was like he had been expecting an attack. He dropped his bag immediately and plunged his hand into his robes. His wand was halfway into the air when James shouted, Expelliarmus! Snape's wand flew into the air and landed in the grass behind him. Sirius let out a bark of laughter. Impedimenta, Sirius said, who was knocked off his feet, halfway through a dive toward his wand. The students around had turned to watch. Some looked entertained, others apprehensive. Snape was laying, panting, on the ground. James and Sirius advanced on him, wands up, James glancing over at the girls by the lake's edge as he went. Peter was on his feet now, watching hungrily, edging around Remus, who was still sitting on the grass and staring down at his book with a slight frown. How'd the exam go, snivelly? James said. I was watching him, his nose was touching the parchment, Sirius said viciously. There'll be great grease marks all over it, they won't be able to read a word. Several people watching laughed. Snape was clearly unpopular. Peter sniggered shrilly and Remus's frown deepened. His face seemed to have gotten slightly paler. Snape was trying to get up but the jinx was still operating on him. You, wait, he panted, staring at James with loathing. You, wait. Wait for what? Sirius said coolly. What are you going to do, Snively? 
Wipe your nose on us. Snape let out a shriek of mixed swearwoods and jinxes, but his wand was ten feet away and so the hexes he screamed amounted to nothing. Wash your mouth, James said coldly. Scourgeify. Pink soap bubbles streamed out of Snape's mouth, the froth covering his lips, making him gag, choking him. Leave him alone. James and Sirius looked around. James's free hand jumped to ruffle his hair. It was one of the girls from the lake edge. She had thick, auburn hair that fell to her shoulders and startling green almond-shaped eyes. Harry's same eyes. It was Harry's fifteen-year-old mother. Lily Evans. Harry's mind thought of James's doodling on the scrap of parchment. Ellie. All right, Evans. James asked, his tone of voice suddenly pleasant, deeper, more mature. Leave him alone. Lily repeated, scowling at James. What's he done to you? Well, James said, appearing to contemplate this point. It's more the fact that he exists if you know what I mean. Many of the surrounding watchers laughed, Sirius and Peter included. But Remus, still looking down at his book, did not laugh. Nor did Lily. You think you're funny, Lily said coldly. But you're just an arrogant toe rag, Potter. Leave him alone. I will if you go out with me, Evans, James said quickly. Go on, go out with me, and I'll never lay a wand on old Snivellus again. Behind him, the impediment jinx was wearing off. Snape was beginning to inch toward his fallen wand. I wouldn't go out with you if it was a choice between you and the giant squid, Lily declared. Bad luck, prongs, Sirius said briskly, turning back to Snape. Oi. But Sirius was too late. Snape had directed his wand straight at James. There was a flash of red light and a gash appeared on the side of James's face, spattering his robes with blood. James whirled and a second flash of light later Snape was hanging upside down in the air, his robes falling over his head to reveal skinny, pallid legs and a pair of graying underpants. Remus had given up the pretense and thrown his book aside the second that James's blood had appeared. His brown eyes were wide and Harry saw Remus's long fingers were gripping clumps of grass, the veins in his hands prominent. His face twitched as he looked at Snape dangling in the air. A fleeting expression flashed across his worried face that resembled something like satisfaction. Many people in the crowd cheered. Sirius, James, and Peter roared with laughter. Lily's furious expression twitched for a second as though she was going to smile, and then she said, let him down. Certainly, James said, and he jerked his wand upward. Snape fell in a crumpled heap on the ground. He disentangled himself from his robes and got quickly to his feet, wand up, but Sirius shouted, Petrificus totalis, and Snape froze, rigid as a board, and fell over flat. Leave him alone, Lily shouted, pulling out her own wand and pointing it at James and Sirius, who eyed it wearily. Ah. Evans, don't make me curse you, James said earnestly. Take the curse off of him then. James sighed heavily, then turned to Snape and muttered the counter-curse. There you go, James said as Snape struggled to his feet. Your lucky Evans was here, Snivellus. I don't need help from filthy mudbloods like her, Snape snarled. Lily blinked. Fine, she said coolly. I won't bother in the future. 
and I'd wash your pants if I were you, Snivellers. Apologize to Evans. James roared, rounding on Snape, pointing his wand at him. I don't want you to make him apologize. Lily shouted, turning to James. You're as bad as he is. What? James yelped. I'd never call you a, are you know what? Messing up your hair because you think it looks cool to look like you've just gotten off your broomstick, showing off with that stupid snitch, walking down the corridors and hexing anyone, just because you can I'm surprised your broomstick can get off the ground with that fat head on it. You make me sick. Lily turned on her heel and hurried away. Evans! James cried after her. Hey, Evans! But Lily Evans did not turn back. What is it with her? James said, trying and failing to look like this was a question with no real importance to him. Reading between the lines, Sirius said. I think she reckons you're a bit conceited, mate. Right, James said, looking furious. Right. There was another flash of light and Snape was once again hanging upside down in the air. Who wants to see me take off Snivellus's pants? By the beech tree, Remus had gotten to his feet. But whether James did take off Snape's pants, Harry never did find out. A hand closed tight on his upper arm with a grip so tight it seemed to cut off his circulation. Harry turned and felt an electric shock of horror. Adult Snape was standing right beside him, white with rage. Having fun. No, Harry thought, for he had not been having fun watching this memory for a while now, and he certainly was not having anything remotely close to fun now. With a swooping feeling Harry was tugged head over heels into the air, and the summer's day evaporated below him, and he was standing once again by the pensive on Snape's desk in the present-day potion's master's office. So, Snape said, still gripping Harry's arms so tightly Harry felt it going numb. So. Have you been enjoying yourself, Potter? No, no. Harry stammered honestly. It was truly terrifying. Snape's lips were shaking, his face completely white, his teeth bared. Amusing man, your father, wasn't he? Snape said, shaking Harry so hard his glasses slipped down his nose. I didn't. Snape threw Harry from him with all of his might and Harry fell hard onto the dungeon floor. You will not tell anyone what you saw, Snape roared. No, Harry said, scrambling back on the floor away from Snape. No, of course, I won't. Get out, get out, I don't want to see you in this office ever again. And as Harry hurtled toward the door, a jar of dead cockroaches exploded over his head. Harry dashed through the open door and flew down the corridor, stopping only when he had put three floors between him and Snape. Harry stumbled behind the nearest tapestry, which he knew from the Marauder's map contained a small nook, and sat on the ledge there, panting and rubbing his bruised arm. Harry felt sick with horror and severely unhappy, not because Snape had shouted at him or thrown jars at him, but because Harry knew how it felt to be humiliated in the middle of a circle of onlookers, knew exactly how Snape had felt as his father had taunted him, and that from what he had seen, his father had been every bit as arrogant as Snape had always told him. Harry sat for a long while on the ledge behind the tapestry, gathering his breathing and staring down at his lap, blinking away unhappy tears. Harry had never given Snape's disparaging against James a second thought. Harry had been positive his parents were wonderful people. 
Harry had pored over the pictures and memories in the photo album that Remus had showed Sirius and Harry back in Hope's cottage, and this memory of Snape's James and Lily made it hard for Harry to reconcile what Harry had seen in pictures of his parents from when they had started dating at the beginning of seventh year. James and Sirius had looked like terrible bullies, but Remus had told Harry of the wonderful times they all had had together, of their larger circle of friends that had included Marlene McKinnon, Dorcas Meadows, Mary MacDonald, Fabian and Gideon Pruitt. James couldn't have been that bad, could he? But then there was Sirius. He had been just as bad in the memory. No, Harry told himself. Remus would never have gotten with Sirius if he was really that bad, and Harry knew that they had started dating in partial secrecy in their sixth year. Remus had pointed out pranks that Sirius and James and he had been doing in the pictures in the photo album. He told Harry that the marauders were pranksters, light-hearted troublemakers from the sound of it, and Professor McGonagall had even said something similar, something like they had been the forerunners to the Weasley twins. And Harry had believed it. Fred and George believed it too. They looked up to Padfoot, Mooney, and Prongs like they were aspirational legends. But Harry could not imagine Fred and George dangling someone upside down in the air for fun not unless they really loathed them, perhaps Malfoy or someone who really deserved it. But hadn't James started it just because Sirius had simply said he was bored? Remus and Sirius had told him that Dumbledore had made Remus a prefect in the hopes that he would be able to exercise control over James and Sirius but Remus had just sat there, even though he clearly had been conflicted, and let it all happen. Harry couldn't wait any longer. He felt cold and an odd sort of numbness, and he knew from what Remus said that that sort of thing was not good. Harry reached into his school bag and withdrew the marauder's map, tapping it with his wand and saying the password. I solemnly swear that I am up to no good. And Hogwarts came to life before him on the parchment. Snape was in his office. Filch and Mrs. Norris were on the fifth floor. Umbridge was in her office too. Apparently, she still hadn't been able to get access to the headmaster's office, which was a small consolation. Harry sighed heavily, setting the map against the wall so he could keep an eye on it as he pulled out the two-way mirror. He tapped it with his wand, his voice cracking as he said, Sirius. Remus. The mirror swam and a second later Remus Lupin's face appeared as he set the mirror up against what must be a candlestick. He was sitting at the kitchen table, a piece of parchment in front of him that he swiftly rolled up and set aside. There were a few other candles around him which cast Remus's brown hair into tones of chestnut, the gray streaks into silver. Harry noticed that after seeing the teenage Remus, that the premature lines and the scars on his face now seemed starker and more significant. What had it been like for Sirius when he had seen Remus after thirteen years and noticed the physical toll now apparent by the lines on Remus's face? And seen the new scars on Remus's body after thirteen years transforming alone? Hello, Harry. Remus started and then his eyes seemed to really see Harry's face, his tear-stained eyes. Oh, Harry. He breathed. What's the matter? Has something happened? Are you all right? Um? Harry stammered a bit embarrassed but overcoming it. I? I fancied a chat with you and Sirius. Um, there's something I wanted to talk to you both about. Is Sirius there? Remus nodded, his brown eyes wide. 
Yes, Harry, he's just gone to have a shower. I'll go fetch him. Shall I? I'll just be a moment. Remus stood and within a second he had apparated up to he and Sirius's bedroom. Harry stayed looking at the flicking lights of the candles on the table and the rolled-up piece of parchment. A few moments later, with a soft pop, Sirius and Remus apparated back into the kitchen, holding hands. Sirius's long black hair was damp and he swept it up out of his face as he and Remus hurriedly took their seats in front of the mirror. What is it, pup? Sirius said, voice laced with urgency. What is it you wanted to talk to us about? Harry fidgeted. I? I wanted to talk to you about my dad. Remus and Sirius shared a glance and then looked back at Harry. Go on, pup, Sirius said. You can ask us anything. And so, Harry began to talk about what he had seen in the pensive, growing in his confidence as he spoke. When he finished, either Remus or Sirius spoke for a moment. Then Remus said softly, Harry, your father was only fifteen. I'm fifteen, Harry interjected. Look, Harry, Sirius said placatingly. James and Snape hated each other from the moment they set eyes on each other. It was just one of those things, you can understand that, can't you? I think James was everything Snape wanted to be, he was popular, good at Quidditch, good at pretty much everything. And Snape was just this little oddball who was up to his eyes in the dark arts and James, whatever else he may have appeared to you in that memory, Harry, always hated the dark arts. Yeah, Harry said. But he just attacked Snape for no good reason, just because, well, because you said you were bored. Harry finished with a slightly apologetic note in his voice. I'm not proud of it, Sirius said quickly. Remus looked sideways at Sirius, his brown eyes becoming quite tender. Then he turned back to the mirror. Harry, Remus said gently, what you've got to understand is that your father and Sirius were the best in the school at whatever they did. Everyone thought they were the height of cool, if they sometimes got carried away. If we were sometimes arrogant little burks you mean, Sirius said. Remus smiled fondly at him. He kept messing up his hair. Harry said in a strained voice. Sirius barked a laugh and Remus chuckled. Oh, I'd forgotten he used to do that, Sirius said affectionately. Was he playing with the snitch? Remus asked eagerly. Yeah, Harry said, watching as Sirius and Remus beamed reminiscently. Well, I thought he was a bit of an idiot. Of course, he was a bit of an idiot, Sirius said. We were all idiots. Well, not Mooney he said, turning to Remus with a proud smile. Remus shook his head. Did I ever tell you to lay off Snape? Did I ever have the guts to tell you when I thought you were out of order? Yeah, well, Sirius said. You made us feel ashamed of ourselves sometimes. And it was your influence that stopped me picking on Snape in sixth year when we got together. He kept looking over at the girls by the lake, Harry continued, hoping they were watching him. Oh, well. He always made a fool of himself whenever Lily was around, Sirius said, shrugging. He couldn't stop himself showing off whenever he got near her. But it seemed like she hated him. Nah, she didn't, Sirius said with a smile. She started going out with him in seventh year, Remus said, also smiling, his eyes were now slightly wet. Once James deflated his head a bit, Sirius said. And stopped hexing people just for the fun of it, Remus added. Even Snape? Harry asked. Well, Remus spoke slowly, a crease appeared on his brow. Snape was a special case. 
I mean, he never lost an opportunity to curse James, so you couldn't really expect James to take that lying down, could you? And my mum was okay with that. She didn't know too much about it to be honest, Sirius said. I mean, James didn't take Snape on dates with her and jinx him in front of her, did he? Sirius's dark eyes looked at Harry in concern, his lips turning into a slight frown. Look Harry, your father was the best friend I ever had, and a good person. A lot of people are idiots at the age of 15, me included. He grew out of it. Yeah, Harry sighed, mollified. Okay. I just never thought I'd feel sorry for Snape. The crease on Remus's brow deepened. Now that you mention it, how did Snape react when he'd found you had seen all this? He told me he'd never teach me occlumency again, Harry said. He what? Sirius erupted, causing Harry to jump. Are you serious, Harry? Remus's voice was rushed. He's stopping giving you lessons. Yeah, Harry said. That's what he said. I'm coming up there to have a word with Snape. Sirius shouted and he made to stand up out of his chair but Remus grabbed his arm and there was no point fighting Remus's strength so Sirius was wrenched back down into his seat, fuming. If anyone's going to tell Snape it will be me, Remus told Sirius firmly. But Harry, first of all, you're going to go back to Snape and tell him on no account is he to stop giving you lessons, when Dumbledore hears. I can't tell him that, he'd kill me, Harry insisted. You didn't see him when we got out of the pensive. Harry, there is nothing so important as you learning occlumency, Remus said and it was in the sternest tone of voice Harry had ever heard from him. Do you understand me? Nothing. Okay, okay, Harry said, thoroughly chastised. I'll, I'll try and say something to him. But Harry fell silent. He could hear footsteps coming down the corridor. He glanced at the Marauder's map and saw Filch was heading in his direction. It's Filch, I better go, Harry whispered. Talk to Snape, Harry. And so will I, Remus was saying as the mirror connection ended. Remus turned to Sirius, who had leapt up out of his chair and was pacing the kitchen growling and mumbling under his breath. How dare he? Snape knows how important Harry learning occlumency is. The petty vindictive little. Sirius seemed to be beyond words. He was shaking with fury and began muttering lowly under his breath, his hands morphing into claws at his sides. Remus sat in silence, measuring his own breathing and calculating. At last he spoke. Sirius, he said firmly. Sirius turned to him and his dark eyes glinted with anger and ire like flint. What's your plan, Mooney? I'm going to go see Minerva, Remus told him. It is the quickest way, and I think it best that neither you or I speak to Severus directly. Considering. Sirius nodded, running his hands through his hair now and looking like he was about to pull it out by the roots. Right. Right. Harry's got to learn. Got to close his mind. Voldemort will take advantage. He knows. It's only a matter of time. Remus stood and in two strides he was in front of Sirius, holding his face in his long hands, staring down into his eyes. Breathe, Sirius, Remus whispered. It's going to be all right. I will tell Minerva and she will sort it out with Severus. And Harry's been making progress, I know he has. Sirius loosened a heavy breath, his eyes were dark wells that Remus could drown in and then Remus bent and kissed Sirius's temple, as light as a breeze. I'll have to go now, 
but serious, when I get back. Remus's voice turned in an instant from placating to heated. I'm going to have you until dawn. Sirius went rigid. Remus continued. His voice was quiet, as soft as velvet. We are not going to get an ounce of sleep tonight, do you understand? So, gather your breath now, because I am going to make you gasp and cry aloud. I am going to ravish you, do you understand? Sirius's legs shook. He opened his mouth but Remus just continued, his lips now on Sirius's neck, feeling his rapid pulse, listening to the stammering of Sirius's heartbeat. Oh, how I longed for you. At fifteen years old you broke hearts with a toss of your hair. You made me ache with it, thinking I would never hold you in my arms, that you would never want me in return, that I could never have you like I do now, and yet I do. You make me happier beyond my wildest dreams. You make me so proud. Remus's warm breath and words were bringing forth goose flesh on Sirius's skin. His heart was beating unevenly, his blood pumping with desire. Just now I was reminded of how much I wanted you then, and of how much you've grown since, and how, even though we are not teenagers anymore, I want you even more than I ever knew was possible at fifteen. I love you beyond the stars, beyond time, do you understand? Sirius shuddered, his eyes were closed, rolling back in his head. So, breathe now, my love, because soon your breath will be mine, along with every other part of you. Yours. Sirius stammered. Already yours. Remus traced a finger along Sirius's jawline as his lips left Sirius's skin. I'll be back soon. And in the next second Remus apparated from twelve Grimald Place and Sirius Black stumbled against the table, gasping for breath, dizzy and so incredibly turned on that he cursed aloud, gripping the table for support as he growled. What a bloody foul tease of an exit. Remus arrived at the gates of Hogsmeade and strode toward the castle. He was thinking of the possibility of running into Dolores Umbridge or Severus Snape, and that cooled the heat within him instantly. If he couldn't find Minerva, or if he was intercepted, then he'd have to resort to conveying the message through Mundungus, who was the order member currently stationed at Hogsmeade, and Remus sincerely hoped that he would not have to resort to that. Hogwarts was enchanted with many ancient wards to sense an arrival and alert those who guarded the school and so as Remus reached the front steps that led to the entrance doors, he raised his hand and tapped into the well of magic within him, activated now after so many full moons spent with the werewolf pack. The deputy headmistress, Remus intoned, I need to see the deputy headmistress. The great doors opened before he could knock. It was like she had been expecting him. Remus felt almost as if Hogwarts itself had betrayed him. Her lips spread into a huge, nasty smile. Her wand was already raised, pointed directly at his heart. Floating in the air between them, just cast from her wand, was an enormous silver chain net, glowing and rippling. The clinking of the chains against one another as they roiled and waited in the air was the only sound in the silent entrance hall. If you take one step inside this castle, Remus Lupin. Dolores Sumbridge said sweetly, her toad-like face full of horrible pleasure. Or if you attempt to use your monstrous powers against me. I am afraid that you will be incapacitated and carted off to Azkaban before you can cry wolf. A beat passed in which Remus felt the silver emanating from the air draining the magic he had just called forth from within him. His head began to spin nauseatingly. Your witticism astounds, Dolores, Remus said softly. 
but not nearly as much as how you knew of my arrival. Umbridge's smile widened, revealing her pointed teeth. And I heard that you were an intelligent beast. Tell me, werewolf, why are you here? Remus smiled softly back. It was taking almost all of his effort to remain standing as the twisting mass of silver chains radiated just feet from him. One is allowed to visit friends, are they not? Oh, well you see, Umbridge said sweetly. It seems you are misinformed. It is my pleasure to inform you that as Hogwarts's headmistress, I have the authority to forbid entry into this castle to whomever I see fit. And you? Her face contorted into disgust and loathing. Remus smiled weakly. Ah, well, I shall be going then. He took a long step backward, knowing never to turn his back on a known enemy, and felt a wave of relief at the distance between himself and the floating silver net. One more thing, werewolf, Umbridge said silkily. If I hear that you or Mr. Black come within a mile of this castle, I will make you wish that Harry Potter was expelled from Hogwarts. You see, he is far better here, under my authority. She smiled wickedly. Where the ministry can keep a close eye on him and make certain that he reforms. It is not too late to save Harry Potter from himself, or from the likes of you. Remus stood staring at the oak front doors to Hogwarts after they closed in front of him. His anger pulsed through him, and within him, a yawning, howling chasm of untetherable rage and instinct, of endless energy. The moon was far from full, but the wolf was there, scorching within his blood. He closed his eyes. He was lying in bed and morning sunlight was streaming in through the windows, along with the soft chirping of birds, the scent of dew and blooming flowers. He turned his head and Sirius was propped up on his elbow tracing a scar on Remus's chest with his pale finger, his dark eyes bright with morning. Morning, Mooney, Sirius told him, moving in for a kiss. Remus opened his eyes again, and the oak front doors of Hogwarts loomed in front of him in the darkness, impenetrable and seemingly indifferent to his plight. Mundungus, then, Remus said and spun on his heel, striding down the lane towards Hogsmeade. He found Mundungus easily. As soon as he opened the door to the three broomsticks Rosmerda inclined her head to the stairwell, and Remus smiled at her in gratitude before taking the stairs two at a time. Mundungus was in the rented spare room above the busy pub, and to Remus's intense pleasure, he was speaking to Mad-Eye. Lupin? Mad-Eye said, not in the least bit surprised at Remus's appearance, as his magical eye had evidently seen Remus enter the pub a floor below. Alasta, Mundungus, Remus said in greeting, closing the door behind him. I have urgent need to send word to Severus. I hoped to convey the message to him through Minerva but I was, prevented, from entering Hogwarts. Mad I was growling, at once on his feet, propping himself up with his staff. Do not tell me that you tried to walk into Hogwarts with Dolores Umbridge as the new headmistress. The message is urgent, it couldn't wait until the order's next meeting. You risked compromising the order. Mad I shouted. You risked. She didn't know why I came. Remus spoke quickly. She assumed I was there to see Harry. It's public knowledge that he and I are close. I expect this kind of foolhardy recklessness from Black. Mad I growled. Not you, Lupin? Severus has decided to stop teaching Harry occlumency. Remus said. What? Mad I roared. It was Dumbledore's direct order, 
it is the most important thing to the order beyond guarding the Department of Mysteries. Remus waited, watching Mad Eye's magical eye spin and his normal eye narrow in outrage. Seated at the table, Mundungus drank from his pewter of fire whiskey. You understand the urgency, then, Alastor, Remus said quietly. Mad Eye nodded, one gnarled hand clenching his staff. Right, quite right. I'll send word to Dumbledore through the new channels. He'll be able to reach Minerva or Severus within the castle. Sirius and I've told Harry through the two-way mirror that he is to go back to Severus and insist that Severus continue teaching him, Remus said. But I'm afraid there was an incident. Severus might not listen to Harry, and Harry might not approach him. Sirius and I will keep insisting but... Mad I waved a hand impatiently. You've made your point, Lupin? Keep the pressure on Potter and I'll get word to Dumbledore. Thank you, Alastor. Mad-Eye growled and his normal eye fixed beatily back on Remus. Under no circumstances are you or Black to ever attempt to visit Hogwarts while Umbridge is in the castle again, that is an order. I don't care if Potter is chained upside down in the dungeons. You should have gone to me first before trying to march your way into Hogwarts. Remus nodded. Understood, Alastor. Mad-Eye huffed. Mundungus and I have unfinished business that does not concern you. Tonks and Vance expect you and Black tomorrow at the usual meeting place. And I expect you both to meet them there with your minds completely on the mission. Sirius and Remus would meet Tonks and Emmeline Vance the next day at the Order's safe house in the Highlands close to Lucius's summer home before heading out for a scouting mission of Lucius's recent activities. But their minds would only be partly on the mission divided between their worry for Harry and the remnants of their activities the night before. Because, true to Remus's word, they had not gotten a moment of sleep. Remus had apparated from outside the three broomsticks into he and Sirius's bedroom. The curtains were wide open, letting in the light of the waxing crescent moon and air, shining in the darkness, were the brightest stars in the night sky, visible all the way to London. The record was spinning, the words and melody filling the room. Sirius was laying naked on their bed, his dark eyes, locked on Remus, were full of desire and longing. His alabaster skin, bathed in moonlight, shone as opalescent as a pearl. The sharp cheekbones and jaw, the arched eyebrows, the planes and curves of muscles carved and resembling marble. His black hair was a lustering obsidian, and his arm was extended toward Remus. Remus shed his robes and moved forward, taking Sirius's hand as he crawled onto the bed, breathing Sirius in, drinking in his eyes, his body, his arousal. Remus turned Sirius's wrist over in his long and scarred fingers, bowing his head, and kissing Sirius's wrist right on his rapid pulse. You said you love me beyond the stars. Beyond time. Sirius whispered, his voice hoarse. Well then, let's show them, eh, my darling, and let's show each other. Remus lifted a finger to trace along Sirius's sternum, down to his navel, lower. Ravish me, Mooney, Sirius growled, his back arching. Tether me, Sirius. Chapter 23 Sirius and Remus were assured from Mad-Eye that he had conveyed word to Dumbledore, 
but a week passed and Severus Snape continued his new course of action since Harry's dive into the pensive, pretending Harry Potter did not exist. This was quite preferable to Harry. Sirius and Remus insisted whenever Harry spoke with them on the mirror to go and speak to Severus and Harry gave them half-truths about his owl workload keeping him from getting the chance to go to Snape after classes. Sirius and Remus both knew, however, that it should not be upon Harry's shoulders. Harry was only fifteen and Severus was the adult, and he had been given an order of which importance he understood. And still Severus did not resume teaching Harry a clemency. Whether Minerva also had received word of what had happened and was speaking to Severus, they did not know. Because near the end of April, as the Easter holidays ended and the April 28th full moon neared, quite a few people became quite a bit busy, both with anxiety and work, and also chaos. First of all, OWLs were quickly approaching and many fifth-year students started feeling the pressure. Hannah Appet was the first to receive a calming draft from Madame Pomfrey after she broke down in sobs in herbology, declaring that she was clearly an idiot and would never amount to anything. Harry saw her later that night at dinner in the Great Hall smiling almost as serenely as Luna loved. Harry's half-truths about his excuse of not being able to talk to Snape to his guardians became quite close to the full truth as Hermione had Harry and Ron join her in the library and the common room for revision sessions until Ron and Harry were nodding off and drooling on their textbooks. Secondly, the day of the April 28th full moon, Harry called Remus and Sirius on his two-way mirror and the mirror swirled before revealing his own reflection back at him. Harry called twice more, once after the sun had set and again close to ten o'clock. No answer. Sirius must have had to go on a mission for the order too. Hermione told Harry after his third attempt to call them on the mirror amounted to his own reflection. Still, Harry slept little that night. He awoke around four in the morning after dreaming of walking down a long corridor, opening the door to the Department of Mysteries and staring about at all the other doors in the circular room, and then his dream changed and he was overrun with images of wolves, flashing white teeth lit by the moon, yellow eyes, howls and screams of pain magic that smelled like a summer storm. Harry sat up in bed, his scar prickling and his heart hammering. The box on the shelf in the back of his mind of Remus and Sirius felt cracked, gaping wide open. Careful not to wake Ron, Neville, Dean, and Seamus, Harry drew back the hangings around his bed and put on his night robe, picking up his mirror, and padded down the stairs to the empty common room, finding a perch on one of the window sills. The night was clear, and so no clouds hid the luminous pearly white full moon. The moon was so round and prominent in the sky it seemed to be gloating. Harry stared at it with a mixture of hatred and awe. Beside the moon, shining clear and bright as if in symphony with the moon's glow, was the dog star. Harry smiled slightly. He thought of the wolf and the dog and the stag, and how it always helped to have help. And if you could not overcome something— if you had to accept it, at least you could have company, if you were lucky. At least James and Lily had gone on together. As Tonks had said, it was the far greater grief to be left behind. As Remus had shown with his talk with Harry that night in Twelve Grimwald Place, it was far worse to be alone, to feel nothing. For the root of all grief, of all sorrow, was love. 
Harry tapped the mirror with his wand. Serious, he said quietly. The mirror swam and a moment later Harry's godfather's face appeared in the mirror. Sirius was smiling calmly, he looked tired but well at peace despite the early hour, and his face was lit by moonlight. Sitting by a window too, eh, pup? Sirius said. His dark eyes shone like liquid mercury with the reflection of the moon, calmed surely by a goblet full of calming draft. Yeah, Harry said softly. It was all right tonight, do you reckon? I reckon it's the same as it's been. Sirius said and for the first time since the incident with the pensive he did not bring up Snape or ask about how Harry's acclumency was going on his own. I miss transforming with Mooney. Sirius admitted quietly, looking away from the mirror and out the window of he and Remus's bedroom in Grimald Place. What does the wolf look like? Harry asked, remembering his dream of wolves a few minutes prior. He had seen illustrations of werewolves in his dad at textbooks, but these might not be accurate. He's beautiful, Sirius said, his dark eyes falling into a reverie. He's magnificent, intoxicating. Sirius blinked, looking thoughtful. Learning how to restrain the wolf, guide it within the forbidden forest, to keep it safe. That was one of the hardest tricks that Padfoot has ever learned. Harder than giving us a shake, Harry asked with a small smile. Sirius smiled dreamily and barked a soft laugh. Absolutely. As April turned into May, Remus returned from the werewolf pack to headquarters, and at Hogwarts, as most of the studying done over break that could have been done was nearing its end, Fred and George declared that they were going to cause a bit of an uproar. Good for morale before exams, Fred said with a sanctimonious nod. Shortly after dinner, a scene occurred in the entrance hall that closely resembled the night Professor Trelawney had been sacked. Harry, Ron, and Hermione along with the other Gryffindors, heard the commotion and hurried out of the Great Hall to join the great ring of students, some of them, Harry saw, looked like they were covered in stink sap, and teachers and ghosts were also standing among the crowd. The inquisitorial squad was at the edge of the ring, near the heart of the action, and looking well pleased with themselves. Peeves was bobbing overhead, looking down at Fred and George, who stood in the middle of the entrance hall with the unmistakable look of two people who had just been cornered. So, Umbridge said triumphantly on the bottom stair of the marble staircase. So, you think it is amusing to turn a school corridor into a swamp, do you? Pretty amusing, yeah, George said, looking at her without an ounce of fear. You too, Umbridge said, are about to learn what happens to wrongdoers in my school. George, Fred said, turning to his twin. I think we've outgrown full-time education. Fred, I was thinking the same thing, George said lightly. Time to test our talents in the real world, do you reckon? Fred asked. Definitely, George said. And before Umbridge could say a word, they raised their wands and cried out together. Accio brooms! The students all turned as a loud crash sounded in the distance and saw Fred and George's broomsticks one still trailing a heavy chain from where Umbridge had fastened them to her office wall after confiscating them, were hurtling down the stairs. The brooms stopped just in front of their owners. We won't be seeing you, Fred told Umbridge, swinging his leg over his broomstick. Yeah, don't bother keeping in touch, George said, mounting his own broom. Fred looked around at the assembled students and the quiet, watchful crowd. If anyone fancies buying a portable swamp, as demonstrated upstairs, 
he said loudly. Come to number 93, Diagon Alley, Weasley's Wizard Wheezes, our new premises. Special discounts to Hogwarts students who swear they're going to use our products to get rid of this old bat, George added, pointing at Umbridge. Stop them, Umbridge shrieked, but it was too late. As the Inquisitorial squad closed in, Fred and George kicked off the ground and shot 15 feet up into the air. Fred looked across the entrance hall at the poltergeist bobbing on his level above the crowd. Give her hell from us, Peeves. And Peeves, who Harry had never seen take an order from a student before, swept his belled hat from his head and sprang to a salute as Fred and George wheeled about to tumultuous applause from the students below before speeding off out of the open front doors into the glorious sunset. In the days that followed, it seemed a great number of students at Hogwarts were vying for the newly vacant positions of troublemakers-in-chief. Dung bombs and stink pellets were dropped so often that it became the new fashion for students to walk around with shield charms around themselves, and it became clear that Fred and George had managed to sell numerous skiving snack boxes before leaving Hogwarts. Umbridge had only to step foot into her classes for the assembled students to start spouting blood from both nostrils, vomit, faint, or develop high fevers. The students stubbornly told her that they were suffering from umbragitis and after putting four classes into detention umbrage was forced to accept defeat and send the bleeding, swooning, sweating, and vomiting students to the hospital wing in droves. But none could compete with Peeves, who had taken Fred's parting words deeply to heart. He soared through the school, upending tables and bursting out of blackboards, toppling statues and vases. He smashed lanterns and snuffed out candles, juggled torches over the heads of screaming students, flooded the second floor when he pulled all the taps off the sinks in the bathrooms, dropped tarantulas into the great hall during breakfast, and spent hours following behind Umbridge blowing raspberries any time she spoke. None of the staff but Filch seemed to be stirring themselves to help Umbridge. A few days after Fred and George's flight, Harry witnessed Professor McGonagall, walking directly past Peeves, who was loosening a crystal chandelier, and could have sworn he heard her tell the poltergeist out of the corner of her mouth. It unscrews the other way. So, May passed in a frenzy of last-minute all-lessons, mayhem from Peeves, and while Sirius and Remus kept badgering Harry to talk to Snape any time they had a chance to on the mirror, they too were quite busy with the order and finally moved to at least insisting Harry keep practicing on his own. The final match of the Quidditch season, Gryffindor vs. Ravenclaw, took place on the last weekend of May. Harry promised to tell Sirius everything about the match, seeing as Remus would be gone for the May 29th full moon and Sirius would quite like the distraction. But Harry never did get to see the 1996 Quidditch House Cup final. Hermione and Harry had just groaned along with the other Gryffindors in the Quidditch stands as Roger Davies, one of the Ravenclaw chasers, got past Ron and scored a goal, when Hagrid suddenly appeared behind them. Listen, he whispered. Harry, Hermione, can you come with me? Now, while everyone's watching the match. Please. Hagrid's nose was dripping blood and both of his eyes were blackened. Of course, Harry told him. Of course we'll come. What is it, Hagrid? Hermione asked as they hurried across the grounds toward the edge of the Forbidden Forest. You'll see in a mo, Hagrid said and they had to jog to keep up with him as Hagrid strode right past his cabin and into the trees. 
Harry and Hermione exchanged a perplexed look, but followed. The path they were taking became increasingly overgrown and the trees closer together, as they walked farther and farther into the forest until it became so dark it seemed almost dusk. Harry had felt no sense of unease until Hagrid stepped unexpectedly off the path and walked in and out of the trees toward the dark heart of the forest. Where are we going? Harry called after him, hurrying to stay close to Hagrid with Hermione at his heels. Bit further, Hagrid said and kept walking. As the forest thickened and darkened around them, Harry realized that he had never come this far into the forest without encountering some sort of creature, and their absence struck him as rather ominous. Hagrid stopped suddenly and turned back to Harry and Hermione. I need to fill you in before we get there, like... He took a deep breath. Right, the thing is, there's a good chance I'm going to be getting the sack any day now. I don't want to go, of course, but if it wasn't for, well, the special circumstances I'm about to show you, I'd leave right now, before she's got the chance to do it in front of the whole school, like she did with Trelawney. Harry and Hermione started to make noises of protest but Hagrid waved one enormous hand. It's not the end of the world. I'll be able to help Dumbledore, I can be useful to the order. And you lot will have grubbly plank, you'll get through your exams fine. Hagrid's voice broke and he reached into his fur coat and extracted an enormous handkerchief, mopping his eyes with it. Look, I wouldn't be telling you this at all if I didn't have to. See, if I go, well, I can't leave without, without telling someone, because I'll need you two to help me. And Ron, if he's willing. Course we'll help you, Harry said at once. What do you want us to do? Hagrid patted Harry on the shoulder with such force that Harry was knocked sideways into a tree. Knew you'd say yes but I won't never forget. Well, come on, just a little further through here. Really easy, really quiet now. They followed Hagrid until they turned around a grove of trees and they seemed to be facing a large, smooth mound of earth nearly as tall as Hagrid. Trees had been ripped up at the roots around the mound so that the upturned trunks made a sort of barricade around the mound. Sleeping, Hagrid said. Harry could hear a distant rhythmic rumbling that sounded like a pair of enormous lungs at work. Harry glanced at Hermione, who stood with her mouth open, her eyes utterly terrified. Hagrid, she whispered. Who is he? You told us that none of them wanted to come. Realization hit Harry and he looked back at the mound in shock. The mound was moving up and down in time with deep, grunting breathing. It was not a mound at all. It was the curved back of what was clearly a giant. Well, no, he didn't want to come, Hagrid said desperately. But I had to bring him, Hermione, I had to. I knew if I just brought him back and taught him a few manners I could show everyone that he's harmless. Harmless, Hermione cried. He's been hurting you all this time, hasn't he? That's why you've had all these injuries. He don't know his own strength, Hagrid insisted. And he's getting better, not fighting so much anymore. Hermione, I couldn't leave him. They were bullying him causes so small. Small, Hermione cried. And see, he's my brother. Hermione stared at Hagrid, mouth open. Harry was doing the same. Well, half-brother, Hagrid amended. Turns out me mother took up with another giant when she left me dad and she went and had Grop here. Grop, Harry choked. He now noticed great ropes thick as saplings stretching from every tree trunk toward the place where the giant, Grop, lay curled on the ground with his back to them. 
You have to keep him tied up, Hermione said faintly. Harry felt a bit sick. Grop may be a giant, but that was inhumane. Well, yeah, Hagrid sighed. See, it's like I say, he doesn't know his own strength. What is it you want Harry, Ron, and I to do? Hermione asked. Look after him, Hagrid croaked. After I'm gone. Harry and Hermione exchanged a worried glance. What does that involve, exactly? Hermione asked. Not food or anything, Hagrid hurried. He can get his own food, no problem. Bird and deer and stuff, no, it's company he needs. If I just knew someone was carrying on trying to help him a bit. Teaching him, you know. You want us to teach him, Harry said in a hollow voice, staring at the sleeping small giant. You'll do it then, Hagrid asked. Well, Harry stammered. We'll try, Hagrid. I'll wake him up then, introduce you. What? No. Hermione cried but it was too late. Hagrid strode over to Grop and lifted up one of the fallen tree trunks, poking Grop in the back with it. The giant gave a roar that echoed in the silent forest and began to rise from the ground, which shuddered as he placed one enormous hand upon the earth to push himself up to his knees and turned his head. All right, Gropy, Hagrid asked. Had a nice sleep, eh? The face was startlingly huge. It was as though the features had been hewn onto a great stone ball. The skin gray, the nose stubby and shapeless, the mouth lopsided and full of misshapen yellow teeth the size of bricks, the small eyes were a muddy greenish brown. Grop raised dirty knuckles as big as cricket balls to his eyes, rubbed them vigorously, and then pushed himself to his feet with surprising speed and agility. Sir, I've brought some friends to meet you, Hagrid told the giant. Remember I told you I might. I got company for you. Company, see, I brought you some friends. The giant seemed to just realize that Harry and Hermione were there. They watched in great trepidation as he lowered his huge boulder of a head and peered blearily at them. This is Harry, Grob, Harry Potter, and this is Herm. Hagrid hesitated, turning to Hermione. Would you mind if he called you Hermie, Hermione? Only it's a difficult name for him to remember. No, not at all. Hermione squeaked. This is Hermie, Grawpy, and she's gonna be coming to see you. Isn't that nice? Grawpy, no. Grop's hand had shot out toward Hermione. Harry seized her and pulled her back behind a tree just in time. Bad boy, Grawpy, you don't grab. Harry turned around the tree to see Hagrid walking back away from Grop. Well, there you are, you've met him and now he'll know you when you come back. Yeah, well, I reckon that's enough for one day. We'll go back now, shall we? They did not speak as they walked back through the forest. Harry and Hermione were still in complete shock and Harry was wondering how Hagrid ever hoped to get Grop to fix with humans. Hold it, Hagrid suddenly said, stopping in his tracks Hermione and Harry pulled their wands out of their pockets quickly. Oh blimey. Hagrid said quietly. I thought I told you, Hagrid. A deep male voice said. That you're no longer welcome here. A man's naked torso, joined with a horse's chestnut body, appeared out of the trees through the dappled green half-light. The centaur had a proud, high-cheekboned face and long black hair, and he was armed with a bow and a quiver full of arrows. The trees rustled and five other centaurs emerged behind him. Harry recognized the black-bodied and bearded Bane, 
whom he had met nearly four years ago on the same night he had met Farenz. You ought not to have meddled, Hagrid, Bane said. Farenz has betrayed and dishonored us. Nevertheless, the slaughter of foals is a terrible crime and we do not touch the innocent. Today, Hagrid, you pass. Henceforth, you stay away from this place. You forfeited the friendship of the centaurs when you helped the traitor Farenz escape us. We know what you are keeping in the forest, Hagrid, and our patience is waning. Hagrid ignored them, walking right past them as if they weren't worth his effort. Conom, let's go you too. At last they rejoined the path and after a hurried ten minutes, Hagrid, Hermione, and Harry stepped out of the trees and onto the grounds. Hagrid squinted. Reckon the match is over. Look, there's people coming out. If you too hurry you can blend in with the crowd and no one will know you weren't there. Good idea, Harry said. Well, see you later, Hagrid. As Harry and Hermione neared the crowd, joining a stream of Hufflepuffs, Hermione was talking shrilly. I don't believe him. And we're supposed to give him lessons. Always assuming, of course, that we can get past the herd of vengeful centaurs on the way in and out. I don't believe him. Hermione, Harry said slowly. A mass of red and gold was coming up the lawn behind them and bearing a solitary figure upon its many shoulders. No, Hermione said in a hushed voice. Yes, Harry cried. Harry, Hermione, Ron yelled, waving the silver Quidditch cup in the air. We did it, we won. The next day, Harry, Ron, and Hermione sat under the shade of the same beech tree which the marauders had sat under after their dada owl all those years ago. It was a fine, warm day, just as it had been back then. Hermione broke the news to Ron that they had missed all of his saves and then quickly told him the story about seeing Grop. He's lost his mind, Ron said. Yes, Hermione said. Yes, I'm starting to think he has. But unfortunately, Harry and I made a promise. Well, you're just going to have to break your promise, Ron said firmly. I mean, come on, we've got exams and remember Norbert. Aragog, have we ever come off better for mixing with any of Hagrid's monster mates? I know, Hermione said in a small voice. It's just that. We promised. June arrived and owls were upon the fifth years at last. The exams spanned two weeks, one theory-based exam that they had to sit in the mornings and the practice in the afternoons. They would find out their results by owl in July. Theory of Charms was first. The Great Hall was set up exactly the same as Harry had seen it in Snape's memory, and Professor McGonagall stood at the high table. After all the fifth years were seated, she turned over an enormous hourglass on the table and said, You may begin. Harry thought the Charms exam and the practical had gone quite well, but there was no time to relax. Transfiguration was the next day. Herbology was on Wednesday and Thursday was defense against the dark arts. Harry had no problem at all with the written data exam, which also featured a question that year about ways to distinguish a werewolf, and Harry took significant pleasure in performing the practical, doing the counter jinxes and defensive spells directly in front of Umbridge. Oh, bravo! The examiner, Professor Tofty, told Harry after he demonstrated the ridiculous spell, leaning forward a little. Now, I heard from my friends at the ministry that you can produce a Patronus. For a bonus point. Harry smiled, raised his wand, looked straight at Umbridge, and imagined her being sacked. Expecto Patronum. 
The silver stag erupted out of his wand and cantered the length of the great hall. The weekend had lovely weather, and Harry told a smiling Sirius and Remus about the data exam, but Harry had to spend most of the weekend drudgingly studying for potions on Monday. The written exam Harry felt confident about and the practical was not too dreadful considering it wasn't Snape examining them. The care of magical creatures written exam and practical went smoothly and Harry gave Hagrid a thumbs up after he finished. They were out on the lawn and Hagrid had been watching their practical from inside his hut. The astronomy theory exam on Wednesday morning went well enough and in between the astronomy practical, which took place at midnight that night, was divination. Harry did dreadful at his palm reading but he wouldn't be missing the subject the next year and Sirius and Remus both thought the subject was rubbish anyway so Harry couldn't be too bothered. The astronomy practical at midnight was going quite well for Harry. He had spent the May full moon also staring up at the night sky while talking on the mirror with Sirius. Sirius had told him in a peaceful voice a series of stories about the constellations and planets, and even the galaxy Andromeda, whose Sirius's favorite cousin and Tonks's mother was named after and so Harry was filling out his star chart enthusiastically. As Harry turned away from his telescope and filled in the stars making up Orion, something distracted him. Harry looked down onto the shadowy grounds below the astronomy tower and saw six figures walking out onto the lawn. The figure at the front of the huddle was short and squat. Why was Umbridge taking a midnight stroll out onto the grounds, and why was she accompanied by five others? and then Harry realized what they were walking towards. The figures arrived at Hagrid's hut and knocked on the door. The door opened and Harry saw the six figures step inside. A few minutes later there was a roar from within the distant cabin that echoed through the darkness right to the top of the astronomy tower, followed shortly after by a loud bang. Several students said ouch as they poked themselves in the face with the end of their telescopes in their haste to look at what was happening below. Hagrid's door had burst open and the light flooding out from his cabin revealed him roaring and brandishing fists, surrounded by six people, all of whom, judging by the strands of red light coming out of their wands, were attempting to stun him. No, Hermione cried. A man cried. Be reasonable, Hagrid. Reasonable be damned. You won't take me like this, Dawlish. Hagrid roared. Look, Parvati squealed leaning over the parapet and pointing to the entrance to the castle where the front doors had been thrown open and a single black shadow was now moving swiftly across the lawn. How dare you? The figure shouted as she ran. How dare you? Leave him alone. Leave him alone, I see. On what grounds are you attacking him? He has done nothing to warrant such. Several students screamed. Four stunners had shot from the figures around the cabin toward Professor McGonagall and collided with her. For a moment she looked luminous, illuminated by an eerie red glow, and then was lifted right off her feet, landed hard on her back, and moved no more. Cowards! Hagrid bellowed. Ruddy cowards! Have some of that, and that! Hagrid took two massive swings at his closest attackers, who instantly collapsed, knocked out cold. Get him! Get him! Umbridge shouted but her remaining helper was backing away so fast that he tripped over his unconscious colleagues and fell over. Hagrid had turned and began to run at full pelt toward the distant gates of Hogwarts, disappearing into the darkness.
As soon as Harry entered his dorm that night, he shut himself into the bathroom and tried to call Sirius and Remus on the mirror. He wasn't surprised that they didn't answer, considering the late hour, but Harry still wished he could have gotten to vent to them all the same. He was so angry at Umbridge that he could not think of a way fit enough to get back at her. He stayed up late laying on his back in bed and trying to put all of his hate for Umbridge into a box in the back of his mind but no box seemed big enough. The next afternoon was their final exam, the history of magic examination, which Remus Lupin would have insisted, along with Hermione Granger, was actually quite fascinating. But Harry was exhausted. He'd hardly gotten any sleep with his roiling hate at Umbridge, and his worry about Hagrid and Professor McGonagall, who had been taken to St. Mungo's. The sun streaming in through the high windows was hot, and the words on the exam parchment swirled in Harry's mind. He was rereading over and over again a question about trolls, but was unable to come up with a single thing related to it. Think, Harry told himself. The sand trickled in the hourglass, and there was the faint sound of scratching quills. He was walking along the cool dark corridor to the Department of Mysteries. The black door swung open and he was in the circular room again with its many doors. He opened one door and walked through. There were patches of dancing light and an odd mechanical clicking sound. But he kept walking, reaching a third door, and opened it. He was in a cathedral-sized room full of shelves and glowing glass spheres. He reached a shelf labeled 97 and turned left, hurrying along the aisle between the shelves. There was a shape on the floor at the very end, and as he advanced, he saw it was actually two dark figures moving slightly upon the floor like wounded animals. One of the shapes was gleaming in the faint light, as if covered in something metallic. A voice issued from his own mouth, a high, cold voice empty of any human kindness. Take it from me. Lift it down, now. He addressed one of the figures. I cannot touch it, he cannot touch it either, but you can. The dark figure, the one that he was addressing, the one not covered in metal, shifted a little and Harry saw a long-fingered white hand clutching a wand rise on the end of his own arm, heard a high, cold voice say, Crucio. The man on the floor let out a horrible scream, writhing on the floor. Harry was laughing. The glinting metallic figure beside the writhing, screaming man shifted, letting out a groan as he moved. Harry lifted his wand and the curse lifted and the screaming stopped. The man lay beside the metallic figure, gasping and motionless. Lord Voldemort is waiting. Very slowly, his arms trembling, the man on the ground raised his shoulders a few inches and lifted his head. His face was bloodstained and white twisted with pain yet rigid with defiance. You'll have to kill me, Sirius whispered. Undoubtedly I shall in the end, said the cold voice. But I will have you fetch it first for me, Black, because you see, he does not have to die. Oh, the silver will kill him within hours, but if you fetch it for me, I shall release him before it does. What a curious specimen that you keep. Perhaps his strength is the reason you keep him so close, resilient, werewolves are, and so very useful but his use here far exceeds that of the wolf within him. I can cause you pain, Black, we have hours ahead of us and nobody to hear you scream, but you see, I can tighten the silver chains around Lupin's neck and we can watch the skin flay, shall we? Somebody screamed as Voldemort lowered his wand toward the silver-netted figure of Remus on the floor, where he lay still and moaning beside a trembling Sirius. 
Somebody yelled and fell sideways off a hot desk onto the stone-cold floor. Harry hit the ground and awoke, still yelling, his scar on fire, as the great hall erupted around him. Chapter 24 I'm not going, I don't need the hospital wing, I don't want. Professor Tofty, the examiner, had just helped Harry out of the great hall and into the entrance hall all the while as the students around them had stared. Really, I just had a nightmare, Harry said, wiping the sweat from his brow. The pressure of examinations, Professor Tofty said. It happens, young man, it happens. Now, a cooling drink of water, and perhaps you will be ready to return to the Great Hall. The examination is nearly over, but you may be able to round off your last answer nicely. Yes, I mean, no, Harry said wildly. No, I've done, done as much as I can, I think. Very well, very well, I shall go and fetch your examination paper and I suggest that you go and have a lie down. Harry waited for the second when the old man's heels disappeared into the threshold of the great hall and ran up the marble staircase. He did not stop running until he reached the portrait hole, gasped out the password at the fat lady, and flew through the common room, up the stairs to his dorm. Serious? Remus, he shouted after hitting the two-way mirror with his wand. The mirror swirled, then reflected Harry's own panicked, sweating face back at him. Sirius? Remus? Answer me! Please? Harry cried, tapping the mirror again. His vision felt spotty. His blood was roaring in his ears. The panic was rising within him like poison gas. Sirius? Remus? Harry was gasping now tapping the mirror again and again, but still it just swirled and revealed his own face back at him, over and over. He began to feel the panic like a tidal wave now. It was swallowing him. He couldn't breathe. How much time did Harry have to get to them? How long until the silver cut into Remus's neck or drained him completely? How much more of the Cruciatus curse could Sirius stand? If something happened to Remus which he couldn't come back from, if he... Harry looked up at the window of his dormitory, showing late afternoon sunlight. Harry remembered thinking the year before how it seemed wholly against the laws of the universe for Sirius and Remus to go anywhere without the other. Harry remembered Remus's cracked and stammering voice when Remus had been overtaken with a similar panic and hyperventilation to what Harry was experiencing now, when Remus had seen the Balgart, Sirius's dead body. Don't go. Remus had begged Sirius. Don't go where I can't follow. Professor McGonagall was gone. Dumbledore was gone. Hagrid was gone. Sirius and Remus were taken. Harry turned and ran from the dormitory, taking the stairs two at a time, pushing out of the portrait hole and sprinting down the corridor. Harry found Ron and Hermione at the top of the marble staircase. Come with me, he panted. Come with me, I've got to tell you. Harry led them to the nearest empty classroom and dove inside, closing the door the second Ron and Hermione were inside and leaning against it. Voldemort's got Sirius and Remus. What? How do you? Saw it. Just now. When I fell asleep in the exam. Where? How? Hermione, her face white and eyes wide. I don't know how. Harry said, shaking his head. Maybe he caught them on a mission. 
I tried to call them last night and they didn't answer, and before you ask I tried to call them just now and they're not answering. Harry yanked out the mirror from his pocket and tapped it with his wand again, shouting at it. Sirius! Remus! The mirror swam and then reflected Harry's face again. See! But I know where they are. They're in the Department of Mysteries, in a room full of shelves covered with little glass balls, and they're at the end of row 97. Voldemort's trying to get Sirius to get the prophecy, that must be what it is, he's torturing Sirius, the Cruciatus, and he's got Remus in a silver net. Harry choked out the last words. He threatened to wrap the silver around Remus's neck, it'll kill him, kill Sirius. Harry's voice and knees were shaking, he moved toward a desk and sat down on it, trying to imagine sitting on the drawing room carpet of twelve Grimwald Place, he and Sirius and Remus playing wizard's chess but this only amplified his horrible fear. How are we going to get there? Harry asked aloud. Get get there, Ron stammered. Get to the Department of Mysteries so we can rescue them, Harry cried. Harry, Hermione said in a frightened voice. But, how? How did Voldemort get into the Ministry of Magic without anybody realizing he was there? And one of the Order is always on guard at the Department of Mysteries, how did he get past them? I don't know, Harry shouted. Voldemort used a glamour or something. Maybe he attacked the guard like he made the snake do with Ron's dad. And the Department of Mysteries has always been empty anytime I've seen it. You've never seen it, Harry, Hermione said quietly. You've only dreamed about it. They're not normal dreams, Harry cried. How do you explain Ron's dad then? He's got a point, Ron said, looking at Hermione. But why? Hermione persisted. Why on earth would Voldemort want to use Sirius and Remus to get the prophecy? I don't know, Harry yelled. Look, we've got no proof that Sirius and Remus and Voldemort are even there. Hermione started. Harry's seen them, Ron cried, rounding on her. Okay, Hermione said, still looking frightened but now determined. Look, Harry, Voldemort knows you. He took Ginny down into the Chamber of Secrets to lure you down there. It's the kind of thing he does, he knows you're the sort of person who'd go to their aid. I mean, obviously he knows Sirius is your godfather, but Harry, remember Malfoy at the start of term? I think Voldemort figured out that. That Sirius and Remus are quite close at the very least, and he might be using all that information to get you into the Department of Mysteries. Hermione, Harry said. It doesn't matter what Voldemort knows or doesn't know. Dumbledore, McGonagall, and Hagrid are gone. There's no one left from the Order at Hogwarts who we can tell and if we don't go. Harry's throat seemed to be closing up. He'll kill Remus quickly, Hermione. I've seen what the silver does to him. And how long can Sirius take the Cruciatus curse? We know what it can do after so long, and even if it doesn't get that far. Voldemort will kill him if he starts to crack. And if Remus, if he... Harry saw the horror spread in Hermione's eyes. If something happens to him then I don't know how long Sirius will last. Harry. Hermione stammered. What if your dream, what if it was just a dream? Maybe they're still out on the mission they must have been on last night, maybe that's why they're not answering. I'm not having a nightmare, I'm not just dreaming. What do you think all the occlumency was for, why do you think Dumbledore wanted to stop me seeing these things? Because they're real, Hermione. Sirius and Remus are being tortured, I've seen them, Voldemort's got them and no one else knows. And that means we're the only ones who can save them, 
and if you don't want to do it, fine, but I'm going. They're my. But Harry, you've just said it. Hermione cried. Dumbledore wanted you to learn to shut these things out of your mind. If you'd done a cumency properly, you'd never have seen. If you think I am going to just... Harry, Remus and Sirius told you that there was nothing more important than you learning to close your mind. Well I expect they'd say something different if they knew what I'd just seen. The door to the classroom opened and Harry, Ron, and Hermione whipped around to see Ginny, Neville, and Luna. Ginny looked curious, Neville looked nervous, while Luna, as usual, looked like she just drifted in on a breeze accidentally. Hi, Ginny said. We heard Harry's voice. What are you yelling about? Never you mind, Harry said roughly. There's no need to take that tone with me, Ginny said coolly. I was only wondering whether I could help. Well, you can't, Harry said shortly. You're being rather rude, you know, Luna said serenely. Harry swore. I haven't got time for this. Sirius and Remus are being tortured by Voldemort now. What? Ginny and Neville said at once. In the Department of Mysteries, Harry cried. I've got to go right now. Harry, Hermione said suddenly. You've miscounted. Harry rounded on her. I don't have time for. I'm telling you that there's one more member of the Order of the Phoenix at Hogwarts. Hermione said fiercely. Harry stared at her. No. Oh no. Surely not? Yes. Hermione insisted sternly. Yes, we are going to Snape and we're going to tell him what you saw and maybe he can tell us if Sirius and Remus are on a mission. They're not on a mission. Harry roared and then, gasping for breath, continued in a panting breath. I can't tell him. He'll be livid. Hermione, these visions. A clumency. I don't care. Hermione cried. We're not running off to London without checking first with Snape. We're going to go see him right away. Hermione threw the door back open and gave Harry a pointed look. Reluctantly and heart-pounding, Harry followed. Neville, Ginny, and Luna joined in after exchanging a look with Hermione. She must have thought that having more students around would be best. And Harry led the way, walking at such a brisk pace that they were practically running down to Snape's office. Anything, Harry reminded himself, he'd do anything for Sirius and Remus. He's told them anything. He'd go to face Voldemort in the Department of Mysteries. He'd go and see Snape. Harry pushed open the door to Snape's office, not bothering to knock, and immediately regretted it. She was standing by Snape's desk and turned to the door as it opened, her face spreading into a wide smile. Well, well. Here for more remedial potions, Potter. A member of my inquisitorial squad informed me that you had been receiving lessons from Professor Snape but I don't see that it improved your marks at all. Behind her, Snape was standing by the shelf where before he had been storing the pensive. The shelf was empty and Snape was staring coldly at Harry between his curtains of greasy black hair. I am afraid that Potter's aptitude for potions is so abysmal that remedial potions proved a worthless endeavor, Snape said, his lip curling. If you would like to take up the task of privately tutoring him, then by all means. But Snape was not looking at Umbridge. His cold black eyes were boring into Harry's, who met his gaze unflinchingly, concentrating hard on what he had seen in his dream, willing Snape to read his mind, to understand. Voldemort's got Sirius and Remus in the Department of Mysteries. 
Harry thought desperately. Voldemort's got them. I would like you to wait for me in my office, Severus. Umbridge told him sweetly. Lucius Malfoy has just arrived for a meeting and he speaks so highly of you. He and I would love to hear your ideas for managing this school, seeing as you've witnessed so many years of Dumbledore's tenure. It was you who outed the werewolf, was it not? Fuck, Harry thought. That was the last reminder he needed. Snape's mouth twitched again, his dark eyes unblinking. Yes. Well, then I must say how much I admire your loyalty to wizard kind and ministry policy. We will achieve great things at this school together. Now run along and meet Lucius. I'd like to have a word with these students. Snape said nothing, stepping toward the doorway, his eyes still on Harry. Harry sidestepped as Snape came to stand in front of him. Hermione, Ron, Ginny, Neville, and Luna, who were all crowded on the threshold, stepped the rest of the way into the room to clear the stairwell for Snape. This was Harry's last chance of letting the Order know of what was happening, and he was about to walk out of the door and go into a meeting with Lucius Malfoy. He's got Padfoot and Mooney, Harry said, his voice laced with urgency, staring up at Snape's black eyes and sour face. He's got Padfoot and Mooney at the place where it's hidden. Snape stared down at him. Padfoot and Mooney, Umbridge said in her high girly voice. Snape's face was inscrutable. I have no idea what you are talking about, Potter, Snape said coldly. When I want nonsense spoken to me, I shall give you a babbling beverage. Longbottom, tuck in your robes. Five points from Gryffindor. And Snape swept out of his office and up the stairs. Umbridge raised her wand and the door to the office clicked shut with a snap. She smiled widely at them all, her small, beady eyes glinting. She did not lower her wand. Well, well, she tutted. I do not know if Severus understands what he just heard, but I certainly do. Now, I do not know why you decided to share this message with Severus, but it appears as if you are quite desperate, Potter. Harry's insides went cold. Beside him, his friends all stood frozen. Did you know, Potter, that as undersecretary to the Minister of Magic, I served as a member of the court during ministry trials and convictions? Umbridge said sweetly, her face twisted with revolting pleasure. Harry shook his head weakly. Oh, well then, Umbridge said. It seems your intelligence is not just lacking in potions. For you see, my dear, I served on the acquittal trial of Sirius Black and the conviction trial of Peter Pettigrew. No, Harry thought. No. And so, it just so happens that I recognize those nicknames, Dolores Sumbridge said, her smile widening to spread almost across the entirety of her pouchy face. Padfoot is Sirius Black's animagious form. And Mooney. Umbridge's lips curled and her nostrils flared but still she remained smiling so that she began to look quite demented. Did you know the beast tried to enter Hogwarts in April? Had to threaten it with silver, I did, it was a matter of school security. Not only is it a dark creature, but one that suffers from the same delusion as you, Black, and Dumbledore about you-know-who's supposed return. Harry was dizzy with anger and panic. His knees were shaking again. Part of his mind registered that Dolores had called Remus in it, and somehow that managed to compound his anger to heights he had not previously known existed. So, tell me, Potter, 
Umbridge said, raising her wand and pointing it at Harry so that ropes appeared around his torso, restraining his arms to his sides. What message were you trying to send to Severus about Sirius Black and Remus Lupin? Harry stared at her, forcing his face to be as blank as possible, forcing himself to get his breathing under control. You are forcing me, Potter, Umbridge said softly. I do not want to, but sometimes circumstances justify the use, just as I did the half-breed with Silver. I am sure that the minister will understand that I had no choice with you. The Cruciatus curse ought to loosen your tongue. Hermione and Ginny gasped in horror, and the next second ropes had appeared around them, tying their arms against their bodies. Ron had made a staggering move forward, finding ropes around himself in the next second as well. Neville was green in the face, his eyes huge. The ropes had sprung out over his already rigid body. Luna seemed to not notice her ropes, as she was staring at Umbridge as if she were quite boring actually. No, Hermione cried. It's illegal. But there was a nasty, eager look on Umbridge's face, and her wand raised high in the air towards Harry. Crucy. No, Hermione cried, her voice cracking. No, Harry, Harry, we'll have to tell her. No bloody way, Harry yelled at her. Well you'll have to, Harry, she'll force it out of you. So what's the point? Ginny was staring at Hermione as though she had never seen her before. Ron and Neville were looking at her in shock. Luna gazed at Hermione serenely, a smile on her lips. He was trying to send a coded message to Dumbledore. Hermione declared passionately. Ron gaped, Ginny's face froze, and Luna's small smile widened about a fraction of an inch. Dumbledore, Umbridge said eagerly. Yes, we... We need to tell him something important. The nicknames and the hidden place, they are used for a code with Dumbledore. Hermione cried. Yes, Umbridge said excitedly. What was the coded message, then? We? We wanted to tell him it's ready. Hermione choked. The weapon. Weapon. Weapon, Umbridge said, her eyes popping wide. You have been developing some weapon of resistance. A weapon to use against the Ministry. On Dumbledore's orders, of course. Yes. Hermione gasped. But he had to leave before it was finished and now, we finished it for him and we can't find him to tell him. And, and all the professors who are close to Dumbledore are gone. Professor Snape doesn't know about the weapon but he's been here so long, we thought that maybe we could give him the message but, but he didn't understand the message. We didn't know, but now we do. He's not on our side, he can't help us. That's right, Severus would never help you, you silly girl, Umbridge said, her eyes flaming with glee. Now, lead me to this weapon. Harry had no idea what Hermione was planning, which is why Harry Potter was not sorted into Ravenclaw. Luna Lugood had a pretty shrewd idea of what Hermione was planning, and she didn't even know about what resided in the Forbidden Forest which was why Luna had to hide the skip in her walk as she followed behind Hermione on the path into the Forbidden Forest. Hermione would have been sorted into Ravenclaw if only she could accept uncertainty and open her mind a bit. Luna was thinking to herself. Hermione was leading the way, followed by Harry, Ron, Neville, Ginny, and Luna. They walked in a tight clump with Umbridge's wand pointed at their backs, their arms still tied to their sides by ropes. 
Harry's scar throbbed as he walked, but it had not yet burned white hot, which was a small consolation, as he knew it meant Voldemort hadn't yet moved in for the kill, or at least Harry hoped. It's well hidden, Hermione had said as they stepped into the forest. It had to be somewhere that students weren't going to find it accidentally, didn't it? Of course, of course, Umbridge had said, sounding a bit apprehensive as they walked into the dark trees. Harry risked a glance at his friends. They were now so deep into the forest that the canopy blocked out all light. Hermione looked determined. Ron looked a bit weary but stayed watching Hermione walk in front of him. Ginny, Neville, and Luna followed dutifully. How much further? Umbridge demanded angrily. Not far now. Hermione shouted back as they emerged into a dim, dank clearing. Just a little bit. An arrow hit the tree just above Hermione's head, and the air was suddenly full of the sound of hooves. Umbridge gave a little scream and pushed Neville in front of her like a shield. Harry turned. Fifty centaurs were emerging on every side through the trees, their bows raised, pointing at the group, who was backing slowly into the middle of the clearing. Umbridge was uttering whimpering noises of terror, and Hermione was wearing a triumphant smile. Who are you? a voice said. Harry recognized Bane's dark hair and coat as he walked towards them out of the centaur's circle, bow raised. I am Dolores Umbridge, Umbridge said in a high-pitched voice. Senior Undersecretary to the Minister of Magic and Headmistress and High Inquisitor of Hogwarts. You are from the Ministry of Magic, Bane said. That's right, Umbridge said raising her chin. So be very careful. By the laws laid down by the Department of the Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures, any attack by half-breeds such as yourselves on a human. What did you just call us? A centaur shouted from the circle. Both strings tightened around them. Umbridge raised her wand and pointed it at Bane. Law 15b clearly states that any attack by a magical creature who is deemed to have near-human intelligence, and therefore considered responsible for its actions. Near human intelligence, Bane repeated as several centaurs roared with rage and pawed the ground with their hooves. We consider that a great insult, human. Out intelligence, thankfully, far outstrips your own. What are you doing in our forest? Another centaur bellowed. Why are you here? Your forest, Umbridge cried. I would remind you that you live here only because the Ministry of Magic permits you certain areas of land. An arrow flew so close to Umbridge's head that it caught her mousy hair in passing. She let out an ear-splitting scream. Whose forest is it now, human? Bane bellowed. Filthy half-breeds. Umbridge screamed. Beasts. Uncontrollable animals. She pointed her wand at Bane and the thick ropes which still wrapped around Harry and his friend's arms flew through the air and wrapped themselves around Bane's torso, trapping his arms too. He gave a roar of rage and reared on his hind legs, attempting to free himself. The other centaurs charged. Harry and his friends immediately dropped to the ground. The centaurs leapt over and around them. No. Harry heard Umbridge screaming. No. I am senior undersecretary. You cannot unhand me, you animals. No. Harry and his friends lifted their heads to see that Umbridge had been seized by one of the centaurs, who had lifted her high in the air, wriggling and screaming. Her wand fell from her hand to the ground. Harry's heart leapt. 
If they could just reach it they could free themselves from the ropes and reach their own wands in their pockets. Harry rose to his feet, watching Umbridge struggle in the muscular arms of the centaur, her face contorted by disgust and terror. But Harry was thinking of Hagrid, forced out of his hut and running off into the darkness. Of Professor McGonagall, hit with four stunning spells to the chest and sent to St. Mungo's. Of Dumbledore's flight and absence from Hogwarts. Of how Umbridge had told Harry that Remus had tried to enter Hogwarts, and she had threatened him with silver. Of the decree that Umbridge had passed, banning werewolves from employment in the British wizarding world. Of how Umbridge had treated the centaurs. Harry thought of how the world may not be split between good people and death eaters, but how some people with power abuse it with hate and greed in their hearts. Potter, Umbridge screamed down at Harry. Do something. Tell them I mean them no harm. I am sorry, Professor, Harry Potter said, but I must not tell lies. And over the plunging, many-colored backs and heads of the centaurs, Harry and his friends watched as Umbridge was carried away through the trees, still screaming non-stop over the trampling of hooves until her voice grew fainter and fainter, and they could no longer hear it. Hermione moved toward Umbridge's fallen wand, grabbing it with her hand which was still tied quite tight to her torso. She cast the counter spell and sighed with relief as the ropes released. She dropped Umbridge's wand with an angry huff at it before reaching into her robes and withdrawing her own wand, moving toward the others. That was brilliant, Hermione, Ron told her. Quite clever, really, Luna said dreamily, smiling still. With relief, they all clambered to their feet, rubbing their arms and pulling out their own wands. Harry pulled out the two-way mirror, tapping it with his wand. Sirius. Remus, he said quietly, hoping beyond hope. The mirror swam and revealed Harry's own face, bathed in the darkness of the forest. How are we going to help them? Harry said, his voice hoarse as he turned to his friends, who were looking at him anxiously. Well. We'll have to fly, won't we? Luna said in the most matter-of-fact voice Harry had ever heard from her. Ron's the only one with a broom that's not guarded in the dungeons by a security troll now so. I've got a broom, Ginny said. Yeah, but you're not coming, Ron declared. Excuse me, but I care about Sirius and Remus just as much as you do, Ginny said, her jaw set so that her resemblance to Fred and George was suddenly striking. We were all in the DA together. Neville said quietly. It was all supposed to be about fighting you-know-who, wasn't it? So, we should come too. We want to help. That's right, Luna said happily. Well, we still don't know how we're going to get there, Harry said in frustration, tapping his mirror again and watching it swirl before showing his own face back at him again. I thought we settled that, Luna said. We're flying. There are other ways to fly without broomsticks and Hagrid said they're very good at finding places the riders are looking for. Oh, and they just so happen to be standing behind Harry. Harry whirled around. There, standing between two trees, their white eyes glowing, were a herd of thestrals. Harry staggered toward one, reaching out and petting it. How had he ever thought they were frightening? Harry gasped as his scar gave a particularly painful twinge. All right. It's your lot's choice, Harry said. If you're coming, pick one and get on. 
Where should we tell them to go? Hermione had asked. There are loads of ways to get into the ministry. The visitor's entrance, Ron had declared. And so, Harry told his Thestral. Ministry of Magic, Visitor's Entrance, London. And up they flew into the growing twilight night. Harry did not know how much longer Sirius and Remus could resist Voldemort, what Voldemort was doing to them. All he knew was that his scar had not seared painfully with Voldemort's jubilation or fury, and so Sirius must not have gotten the prophecy like Voldemort had wanted him to, nor had Sirius and Remus died. Yet. They're still alive. They're still fighting. I can feel it. Harry told himself as they flew. If Voldemort decided to kill Remus, or if Voldemort thought that Sirius was going to crack, I'd know. Harry told himself. The Thestrals dove downward and the clouds cleared below them and Harry and his friends could see the bright lights of London sprawling below them. Within seconds they were hurtling toward the pavement, and the Thestrals landed light as a shadow on the dark street. Where do we go from here? Luna said politely as they all slid off their Thestrals. Ron looked around and pointed to a battered telephone box on the street corner. Over here, my dad took me to work with him once when I was small, he said, beckoning them all. They all squashed into the red telephone box and Ron dialed a few numbers into the receiver, and then the floor of the telephone box shuddered and began to sink down, and with a dull grinding noise they sank into the depths of the Ministry of Magic. Chapter 25 the atrium to the Ministry of Magic was empty and as the door to the telephone box burst open, Harry and his friends toppled out of it. The only sound in the atrium was the steady rush of water from a golden fountain that portrayed a witch and wizard, water pouring from their wands, as they stood high above an assortment of magical creatures which all seemed to be looking up at them in reverence. There was a centaur, water pouring out the point of its arrow, and a goblin with water coming out of the tip of its hat and a house elf with water streaming out of its ears into the surrounding pool. Come on, Ron said. This way to the lifts. They headed past the fountain and an empty security guard stand. It being empty, Harry felt for certain was an ominous sign, and reached the golden gates of the lifts. Ron pressed the down button and golden grills slid apart, and they all dashed into the lift. Ron hit the number nine button and the grills closed with a bang and the lift descended. The grills opened a minute later and they stepped out into a dark corridor that Harry recognized all too well. Harry turned to the plain black door. After months and months of dreaming about it, he was here at last, and beyond it. Voldemort and Sirius and Remus. Let's go, Harry whispered, leading the way down the corridor. The door swung open as Harry approached and they stepped into the large circular room with doors all around them. Everything was black, the walls, the floor, the doors, and the only illumination was torches burning with blue flames. Where do we go, then, Harry? Ron asked. In the dream I went through a door that kind of glitters, Harry said, now uncertain as he looked at the indescript doors. We should try a few doors. They tried door after door, one had a room full of floating golden brains, yes, brains, and another door revealed a great sunken amphitheater, surrounded by spiraling stairs and benches, at the bottom of the amphitheater in the center of the lowered floor, was a raised stone dais, 
and upon the dais was a stone archway that looked ancient, cracked and crumbling. The archway was hung with a tattered black veil which, despite the complete stillness of the surrounding cold air, was fluttering, very slightly as though it had just been touched. Who's there? Harry called, jumping down onto the spiraling benches. The veil continued to flutter and sway. Careful, Hermione whispered. Harry scrambled down the rows of spiraling benches one by one until he reached the stone bottom of the sunken pit. The archway looked much taller now than it had looked from above, and still the veil swayed gently, as though someone had just passed through it. Sirius, Harry said. Remus. Harry had the strangest feeling that someone was standing right behind the veil on the other side of the archway. Gripping his wand, Harry edged around the dais, but there was no one there. All that could be seen on the other side was the tattered black veil. This isn't right, Harry. Hermione called from halfway up the stone steps. Let's go, come on. Okay, Harry said but did not move. He had just heard something. There were faint whispering, murmuring voices coming from the other side of the veil. What are you saying? Harry said loudly. No one's talking, Harry. Hermione said, now moving towards him. Someone's whispering behind there, Harry said, continuing to frown at the veil. Without meaning to, Harry had put his foot on the dais. I can hear them too. Luna breathed, joining them around the archway and gazing at the veil. There are people in there. What do you mean in there? Hermione demanded. There isn't any in there, it's just an archway. Harry, stop it, come away. She grabbed his arm. Harry, we are here for Sirius and Remus. Harry felt the images slide back into his brain. Sirius, crumpled on the ground, Remus, wrapped in silver. Harry backed away from the dais and wrenched his eyes away from the veil. Let's go. They climbed the stairs back to the door, Hermione hurting them all. What was that archway, do you reckon? Harry asked. I don't know, but whatever it was, it was dangerous. Hermione said firmly as they returned to the circular room. They tried another door and Harry cried. This is it. He knew it at once from the beautiful, dancing, diamond-shaped light. This way. Harry called as he led the way forward down the narrow space, heading for the source of the light as he had done in the dream, and there was the other door. This is it. Harry said his heart was pumping so hard he felt slightly incoherent. It's through here. He glanced back at his friends. They all had their wands out and were looking serious and anxious. Harry turned back to the door and pushed it. It swung open. It was high as a church and full of towering shelves covered in small, dusty, glassy orbs. The shelves were lit dully by torches emitting blue flames. The room was very cold. Row 97, Harry said, looking up at the nearest shelf and seeing that it was marked 53. We need to go right. Hermione said, squinting at the next row. Yes, that's fifty-four. Keep your wands out, Harry said softly as they began to move. They crept forward, past row eighty-four. Eighty-five, Harry was listening for the slightest sound of movement, but Sirius and Remus could be gagged or else unconscious, or else. Ninety-seven, Hermione whispered. They stood grouped around the end of the row, gazing down the aisle. There was no one there. They're right down at the end, 
Harry said, his mouth dry. He led them to the end of the aisle, convinced that every step was going to bring the metallic net into view on the floor, the ragged form of Sirius. Anywhere here, really close. They reached the end of the aisle. There was no one, only echoing silence. Harry, Hermione said. I, I don't think they're here. Harry, Ron suddenly said. Have you seen this? Harry turned. It had to be a clue. But Ron was just staring at one of the dusty glass spheres on the shelves. It's got your name on, Ron said quietly. Harry moved closer and looked at the yellowish label affixed to the shelf right below the glass ball. It read, 1981, SPT to APWBD, Dark Lord and Harry Potter. Harry stared at it. Curiosity overwhelmed him, and he reached out and closed his fingers around the glass surface. It did not feel cold, but rather warm. Like Remus. Harry lifted the glass ball down from its shelf and looked at it. The others moved around closer as Harry brushed dust off of the orb. And then, right behind them, a drawling voice said, Very good, Potter. Now turn around, nice and slowly, and give that to me. Black shapes emerged out of thin air around them. Eyes glinted through slits and hoods. A dozen wand tips pointed directly at their hearts. To me, Potter, repeated Lucius Malfoy as he held out his hand, palm up. Where are they? Harry said. Several of the Death Eaters laughed. A harsh female voice said triumphantly. The Dark Lord always knows. Always, Lucius said softly. Now give me the prophecy, Potter. I want to know where Sirius and Remus are. The Death Eaters moved closer so that they were mere feet away from Harry and his friends. You've got them, Harry said. They're here, I know they are. The little baby woke up frightened and thought what he dreamed was true. The woman mocked in a cackling baby voice. Harry felt Ron stir beside him. Don't do anything, Harry muttered. Not yet. You hear him, the woman said shrilly, giving instructions to the other children as though he is thinking of fighting us. Oh, you don't know Potter as I do, Bellatrix, Lucius said. He has a great weakness for heroics. The Dark Lord understands this about him. It's time you learned the difference between life and dreams, Potter. Now give me the prophecy. Go on, then, Harry said, raising his wand as the five wands of Hermione, Ron, Neville, Ginny, and Luna rose beside him. The female Death Eater shrieked. Accio, prof. Harry was ready for her. His shield charm was up before she could finish her spell. Very well, then, the woman said, stepping forward. I told you no. Lucius roared at Bellatrix. If you smash it. The Death Eaters wanted the glass sphere, the prophecy. But Harry had no interest in it. He just wanted to make sure he got his friends out alive, that none of them paid the terrible price for his stupidity. The woman stepped forward and pulled off her hood. Bellatrix Lestrange's face had been hollowed by Azkaban, making it gaunt and skull-like. But it was alive with a feverish, fanatical glow. She raised her wand and opened her mouth, smiling madly. Stupef. No. Lucius deflected the jet of red light that shot from the end of Bellatrix's wand. Do not attack. We need the prophecy. You know, you haven't told me what's so special about this prophecy, 
Harry said, playing for time. He moved his foot slightly sideways and found someone else's shoe, pressing down on it. A sharp intake of breath told him that it was Hermione's. What? She whispered. Dumbledore never told you that the reason you bear that scar was a prophecy hidden in the bowels of the Department of Mysteries. Lucius sneered. Some of the Death Eaters were laughing again. Smash shelves? Harry hissed to Hermione. Well, this explains why you didn't come earlier, Potter. The Dark Lord wondered why. Lucius was saying. When I say go, Harry whispered. He thought natural curiosity would make you want to hear the exact wording. Lucius continued. Did he? Harry said, listening as Hermione passed his message along to the others. So he wanted me to come and get it, did he? Why? Why? Lucius sounded incredulously delighted. Because the only people who are permitted to retrieve a prophecy from the Department of Mysteries, Potter, are those about whom it was made, as the Dark Lord discovered when he tried to get others to steal it for him. And why did he want to steal a prophecy about me? About both of you, Potter. Haven't you ever wondered why the Dark Lord tried to kill you as a baby? Harry stared at the slitted eye holes of the hood, behind which Lucius Malfoy's grey eyes were gleaming. Was this prophecy the reason James and Lily had died? Was this prophecy the reason behind Harry's lightning bolt scar? Why did he get me to come and get it for him? Why couldn't he come and get it himself? Get it himself, Bellatrix cackled. The Dark Lord, walk into the Ministry of Magic, when they are so sweetly ignoring his return. Reveal himself to the Oars when. Now, Harry yelled. Five different voices shouted. And five curses flew into the shelves. The towering shelf swayed as a hundred glass spheres burst apart. Pearly white figures unfurled into the air and floated there, their voices echoing from who knew what long ago passed amid the torrent of crashing glass that was raining down upon the floor. Run! Harry shouted and they ran, arms over their heads. A hand caught Harry by the shoulder but he heard Hermione shout. Stupefy! And the hand released him. Harry, Hermione, and Neville reached the end of row 97, and they were sprinting toward the door through which they had entered and they reached it and ran through and Harry slammed the door behind them. Caloportus. Hermione gasped and the door sealed itself with a squelching noise. Where are the others? Harry panted. They must have gone the wrong way. Hermione whispered, trembling. What do we do? Neville asked. Let's get away from the door. Harry said. They ran through the glinting room and toward the exit into the circular room. They were almost there when Harry heard something large and heavy collide with the door they had sealed shut. Stand aside, a voice said roughly. Alohomora. As the door flew open, Harry, Hermione, and Neville wheeled. Stupefy, Harry shouted and a jet of red light hit the nearest Death Eater, and he keeled over backward into a grandfather clock, knocking it over. The second Death Eater pointed his wand at Hermione. Avada. Stupefy. Hermione screamed and the Death Eater froze, arms still raised, collapsing backward onto the floor. There was a shout from a room nearby, then a crash and a scream. Ron. Harry yelled. Ginny. Luna. Just then two more Death Eaters burst through the open doorway into the room and with a cry of triumph shouted. Impedimenta. Harry, Neville, and Hermione were knocked backward off their feet. Neville was thrown over a desk, 
Hermione smashed into a bookcase and Harry's head hit the stones so hard that tiny stars burst in his eyes. We've got him, the Death Eater nearest Harry yelled. Silencio. Hermione cried and the man's voice was extinguished. Patrificus totalus. Harry shouted at the second Death Eater and he went rigid and fell forward face down on the floor. Well done, Harry. But the Death Eater Hermione had struck silent made a slashing movement with his wand and a streak of purple flame flew from its tip and right into Hermione's chest. She gave a small, Oh, and then crumpled to the floor, motionless. Hermione! Neville was crawling rapidly toward her and the Death Eater kicked out hard, breaking Neville's wand in two and hitting Neville directly in the face. Neville howled in pain and recoiled, clutching his mouth and nose. The Death Eater grinned down at Harry. With his free hand he pointed to the prophecy still clutched in Harry's fist, then at himself, and then Hermione. His meaning could not have been clearer. Give me the prophecy, or you get the same as her. Like you won't kill us all the moment I hand it over anyway, Harry shouted. He inched towards Hermione. Don't let her be dead, don't let her be dead. Whatever you do, Harry. Neville said, lowering his hands to show a broken nose and blood pouring down his mouth. Don't give it to him. The Death Eater turned to look at Neville and Harry took his chance. Partrificus totalus. The spell hit the Death Eater before he could block it, and he fell forward on top of his comrade. Hermione, Harry said, moving toward her. Hermione, wake up. Neville crawled forward and grasped her wrist. That's a pulse, Harry, I'm sure it is. They hoisted Hermione up between them, her arms across their shoulders and Neville took Hermione's wand. My gran's going to kill me, Neville said thickly. That was my dad's old wand. They crept toward the door to the circular room but before they could attempt to decide on which door to enter to look for the others, a door to their right sprang open and three people clambered out of it. Ron. Harry croaked. Ginny, are you all right? Harry, Ron said, giggling, lurching forward and seizing the front of Harry's robes. There you are, ha ha ha. Ron's face was very white and something dark was seeping out of the corner of his mouth. Ginny, what happened? Harry said fearfully. Ginny just shook her head and sank into a sitting position, closing her eyes, panting and holding her ankle. I think her ankle's broken. I heard something crack. Luna whispered, who was bending over Ginny and seemed to be the only one unhurt. And what about Ron? I don't know what they hit him with. Luna said sadly. But he's gone a bit funny. Harry. Ron said, giggling weakly. You know who this girl is, Harry. She's Looney. Looney Lovegood. Harry frowned. We've got to get them out of here. He said. Luna, can you help Ginny? Neville took Hermione's full weight on his shoulder as Harry hoisted Ron's arm over his shoulder. Luna put an arm around Ginny's waist and pulled her up. They were walking toward the door that Harry was certain was the door they had come from when another door in the circular hall burst open and three Death Eaters sped into the room, led by Bellatrix. There they are, she shrieked. Stunning spells shot across the room and Harry threw a door open, flinging Ron unceremoniously ducking back to help Neville with Hermione. 
They were all just through the threshold in time to shut the door on Bellatrix and Harry shouted, Call a portus, to seal it shut. They were in the room full of brains and it was full of doors. Harry, Neville, and Luna ran from door to door, sealing them shut and Luna had just reached the last door when Harry heard her scream. He turned to see Luna flying through the air. She hit the wall and sprawled, motionless as Hermione. Five Death Eaters entered the room and Harry sprinted back the way he had come, holding the prophecy high over his head as he ran away from his friends. All he could think of was leading the Death Eaters away from the others. It seemed to have worked. They streaked after him and Harry dashed through the door back into the circular room and he pulled open the door he was certain led back to the corridor, back to the ministry. But it wasn't. Harry ran a few feet through the door and then felt the floor vanish, and he was falling down stone step after stone step, until at last he landed hard on his back in the sunken pit where the stone archway stood on its dais. The room rang with the Death Eater's laughter. The five that had followed him were descending toward him, and more emerged through doorways Harry had not noticed, leaping over the benches toward him. Harry rose to his feet, his legs shaking, the prophecy was still miraculously unbroken in his left hand, his wand in his right. He backed away, trying to keep all of the Death Eaters in his sights. The back of his legs hit the dais where the archway stood, and Harry climbed backward onto it. The Death Eaters all halted, staring at him. Potter, your race is run. Lucius drawled, pulling off his mask. Now hand me the prophecy. Let the others go, and I'll give it to you. Harry said desperately. You are in no position to bargain, Potter, Lucius said. You see there are ten of us and only one of you. He's not alone, a voice shouted from above them. He's still got me. Neville was scrambling down the stone benches toward them, Hermione's wand held in his trembling hand. Superfire, Neville shouted, pointing his wand at each Death Eater in turn. Superfire. One of the largest Death Eaters seized Neville from behind, trapping his arms to his sides. Neville struggled and kicked, and the Death Eaters laughed again. It's Longbottom, isn't it? Lucius sneered. Well, your grandmother is used to losing family members to our cause. Your death will not come as a great shock. Let's see how long this Longbottom lasts, before he cracks like his parents. Bellatrix said, an evil smile lighting her gaunt face. Crucio. Neville screamed, his legs drawn up to his chest and the Death Eater dropped him. Neville fell to the floor, twitching and screaming. That was just a taster. Bellatrix cackled, lifting the spell. Neville lay sobbing at her feet. Bellatrix turned her gaze to Harry. Now, Potter, give us the prophecy or watch your friend die the hard way. There was no choice. Harry held the prophecy out and Lucius jumped forward to take it. Remus Lupin threw himself bodily at the door, and it flew open, breaking on its hinges, and the order sprinted down into the room behind him, his long and preternatural strides outpacing them. But he could hear the pulsing anger and adrenaline, the fear for the kids' safety and the thrill at open engagement with the Death Eaters at last, coursing in their blood, the pounding of the order members' hearts in tandem with their racing footsteps. His stunning spell hit Lucius Malfoy directly in the chest, and he watched Harry dive off the dais out of the way. Behind Remus, Sirius, Tonks, Mad-Eye, 
and Kingsley were raining spells down upon the Death Eaters as they leapt from step to step down into the amphitheater. Out of the corner of his sharp and far-seeing eyes, Remus saw Harry reach Neville, and in the next second, the Order was fully engaged in battle. Keeping Sirius and Harry in his line of sight while dueling a Death Eater proved far easier than Remus had ever imagined. The full moon was two weeks away, but after six months spent with the werewolf pack, and with Harry and Sirius in the line of immediate danger, his magic pulsed through him, in the air around him, and he sensed the things happening around him milliseconds before they took place. He was tapping into the instincts of those surrounding him, sensing the bursts of emotion as it tanged sharply into their blood, hearing the changes in their heartbeats, reading their thoughts as they appeared, knowing their movements. Not so rudimentary now was Remus Lupin's unique form of legilimency, enhanced by the magic of the wolf within him. Sirius was dueling with the Death Eater so fiercely that their wands flashed in what was surely a blur to everyone else's eyes. But Remus caught the turns of Sirius's elegant wrist as he flicked and turned his wand, knew the spells that Sirius was casting before they flew out of his wand. Kingsley was fighting two to one, and so Remus blasted his Death Eater fifteen feet into the air, hitting him with a bodybind curse, and ran to Kingsley's side. Tonks was still halfway up the teared seats and was firing down at Bellatrix. Remus smelled the sharp burst of heated fear in Harry's blood. He stunned his Death Eater beside Kingsley and spun on his heel to see Antonin Dalahov standing over Harry, his hand outstretched for the prophecy in Harry's fist. But Sirius was closer. Sirius, Harry, Remus shouted. Sirius flicked his wrist and ended his own duel in a blast of showering sparks and smoke which shielded him from view as he sprinted for Harry. Remus took over Sirius's duel, engaging the Death Eater as Sirius hurtled into Dalahov, sending him flying away from Harry. Now Sirius and Dalahov were dueling, their wands flashing, sparks flying. Remus was circling his Death Eater, waiting for the chance to strike behind the Death Eater's shield charm, their wands poised measuring one another. Can the Death Eaters sense it? Part of Remus's mind wondered, Do they know the nature of the man fighting among them? Do they know the power of what they have brought forth within me? Behind the Death Eater, Remus watched Dalahov raise his wand in an arching slash towards Sirius and Remus's heart stopped beating, but only for half a second, as Remus saw behind Dalahov that Harry had the chance to strike, and Harry would take it. Remus knew the spell that Harry would cast. Partrificus totalus, Harry yelled and Dalahov fell flat. Nice one, Sirius shouted, leaping at Harry and forcing him down as stunning spells from Mad-Eye's duel flew over Sirius and Harry's heads. Now I want you to get out of, Sirius was saying. Remus saw his Death Eater had dropped his defenses and Remus struck him in the chest with a wordless body-bind spell. His magic was coursing through his veins. It was almost too much. He felt ungrounded, like everything around him was pulsing. He could hear every heartbeat, smell all of their blood, feel every spoken and unspoken spell. He heard Bellatrix's heart trill, heard her think the spell and Remus wheeled, but he was too far, his own stunning spell too late. Tonks fell limp onto the stone steps and Bellatrix screamed in triumph but Remus heard Tonks's heart still beating faintly in her crumpled body. Harry, take the prophecy, grab Neville, and run. Sirius was shouting, 
dashing toward Bellatrix. The scent of Sirius's adrenaline was thick in the air, streaming behind him as he ran toward his cousin. His heart was trilling. He was practically screaming the words, Yes, yes. No, no. Remus ran, his way blocked by Kingsley and Rockwood. Kingsley narrowly dodged the killing curse. The green light made the air around it taste like cold iron. And then Remus caught onto the scent of Lucius Malfoy mingled with Harry's familiar scent and Remus froze. In one direction was Sirius, now engaging in a duel with Bellatrix, and in the other direction was Harry. The prophecy. Lucius was snarling, his face low beside Harry. He was whispering, but that did not matter to Remus's ears, and Remus could smell Harry's fear in his blood, hear Harry's heart stammering. No, get off of me, Neville catch it. Harry gasped and as Remus ran toward him, he watched Harry throw the prophecy, he watched Neville catch it, he watched Harry take advantage of Lucius's distraction and curse Lucius with the impediment jinx. Lucius was blasted off his back and smashed into the dais. Sirius and Bellatrix's duel was moving, a fluid, fierce thing unlike any duel Remus had ever witnessed, not in the least because of his enhanced senses and magic or because of the way he could feel their venom for one another and the excitement raging in their blood. Sirius's face was bright with exhilaration and yet still so concentrated, his footsteps light and quick as a dance, his wrist holding his wand flicking so lightly, and yet like a whip. Lucius aimed his wand at Harry and Neville, but Remus had reached them. He hit Lucius with a wordless stunning spell casting his wand at Lucius behind him without looking away from Harry. Harry, round up the others and go, Remus shouted. Harry seized Neville and lifted him bodily onto the stone steps, tearing Neville's robes, and Neville's floundering legs, hit by a jinx, twitched and jerked as the glass ball containing the prophecy flew from his pockets. The orb flew through the air. Remus was now dueling side by side with Mad-Eye but he was only using half of his energy using the other half to watch Sirius out of the corner of his eye, hearing the maniacal laughter that rang in Bellatrix's maddened, demented mind, the stream of curses that Sirius shot at her one after the other. But his magic sensed it. The prophecy which had led to James and Lily's deaths, which had led to Harry's scar, smashed on the stone floor. So much depended on a prophecy, spoken by a seer so many years ago, now broken and empty on the floor. And then Remus heard a new heartbeat, felt a new magical aura that pulsed in the air like his own. Only this was not a midsummer storm like his, but an oceanic tempest. Dumbledore had arrived. Death Eaters were shouting and fleeing. The Death Eaters dueling Mad-Eye and Remus fled on their heels and Remus let them go. They would be handled. He did not turn to Dumbledore. Remus turned to the dais. Sirius ducked Bellatrix's jet of red light smoothly, and he barked a laugh. Come on, you can do better than that. Oh yes, I can. Bellatrix Lestrange thought. I'll send you beyond the veil, little cousin. Remus dropped his wand to the floor. He realized in that instant that he did not need it. He had never needed it. It was a tether, a sign to others that he was a wizard first, and a werewolf second. But he was both, all at once, and his wand was no more than a channel. No. And with his guttural scream, 
he sent his magic hurtling into the air in a tumultuous blast that shook the dais, that fluttered the veil that hung in the archway, the one from beyond which the voices whispered. Remus had heard them when he had entered, tucking the information away, but now the voices commanded his attention. The voices were beckoning. They were waiting, waiting beyond the veil, for Sirius. Remus knew this without a doubt. No, no, don't let him leave, don't let him go. Remus's magic collided with the duel on the dais in a swirling gray and golden storm of glowing light just as the jet of light hurtled through the air from Bellatrix's wand towards Sirius's chest. The stunning spell that would send Sirius falling, that would have sent him, beyond. But Remus's magic had reached them before the spell had hit Sirius's chest and Remus felt every inch of his magic like an extension of his own mind, of his own heart. Sirius and Bellatrix were launched off their feet, swept up into the air. The jet of light that would have propelled Sirius into the veil hung suspended in the air between them. Remus's magic pulsing against it. Bellatrix was screaming madly, her body frozen in the cloud of Remus's magic her blood thick with unhinged mania, and Remus saw the look of mingled fear and surprise on Sirius's handsome face. The laughter had not quite died from his face, but his eyes were widened in shock. Remus no longer saw anything else, felt anything else, but his storm of clouded gray and golden magic, Bellatrix, Sirius, and the spell suspended in the air within, and the veil in the archway. Stay here with me, don't go. Don't go join him yet, don't go beyond the veil, stay here with me. We never did have much time, did we? He stared at Sirius's face and saw a thousand memories. Each one was a memory that Remus never thought he'd ever have, one that he never thought he'd deserved. Some things had to be accepted, Remus knew. He knew, also, what it looked like when death came to call. The voices beyond the veil were whispering waiting. Remus knew that death was not an enemy or something to fear, but a means to another place. Going on. But here, for just a moment, time itself seemed to stop, and so, would death pause too? Would death listen to his prayer? It had done so for Lily Potter, once. Death had taken her love, and let Harry Potter live. I love him, until the end, until the very end. Beyond the stars, beyond time, beyond death. But, let me take his place, take me instead. I'll wait for him, I'll join them, let him live. Let him live to protect Harry, to see Harry grow up. Let him live to continue to be the godfather James always knew he would be. Let him live to one day walk under the summer skies of London, the warm breeze lifting his hair, shopping for records on Carnaby Street, without a war hanging over his head. Let him live to see years and years of sunrises, he always was an early riser, do not let him set so soon. Let him live to keep lighting up a thousand rooms with his smile and barking laughter. Let him live. I love him, take me instead. And Remus blinked. The voices beyond the veil had stopped their whispering. He had been heard. The veil was not fluttering, it had gone still. The voices beyond the veil were not expecting either of them anymore. 
Remus raised one arm and lifted his hand toward the suspended jet of light within the swirling vortex of magic that had frozen Bellatrix and Sirius. With his guidance, the jet of light rose until it was past Sirius's chest, past his head, and up up, beyond the stormy mass of Remus's magic, into the high ceiling of the amphitheater where Remus finally released it. It struck the stone wall with a soft sound of whooshing wind and dissipated. Remus lowered his arm and raised the other so that both of his hands were level with his shoulders. Remus turned his right palm up, and then gently, he began to lower it. In sync with his wordless, wandless levitation, Sirius sank slowly back down to the dais. With a flick of his left wrist, Remus sent Bellatrix flying through the air, catching her in a wordless, wandless body-bind spell before she hit the ground. You let him live. And you let me stay. You heard me. You felt my love for him. And you let us have more time. Remus's magic dissipated from the air as quick as it had come, leaving behind a soft spark of summer storm electricity, and heat lingering like the remnants of a faint cloud within the amphitheater. Sirius stood on the dais, the laughter still slightly frozen on his face, and he stared at Remus with shocked, wide eyes. Bloody hell. Sirius Black croaked. Let's not do that again, shall we? Chapter 26 It had reminded Harry very much of Priory Incantatum which had occurred almost a year before when Harry had dueled Voldemort in the graveyard. No, Remus Lupin had howled, his vocal cords tearing with the incredible strain, and the next second a swirling storm of gray and golden light had exploded out of Remus's chest hurtling through the air toward the dais, and Harry had watched as the magic suspended Bellatrix's spell, lifted her and Sirius into the air, frozen amidst the storm of pulsing magic. Harry had watched Remus Lupin staring at the swirling storm of his magic, staring at Sirius's shocked face. The voices beyond the veil whispered loudly. Harry heard them. The veil fluttered. It was as if from the breeze of their whispering, the voices were so close. Nearby Harry and Neville, Dumbledore was immobilizing the remaining Death Eaters, casting them in an anti-apparition jinx, and Mad-Eye was limping toward where Tonks lay. But Neville, Harry, and Kingsley stood stock still, staring wide-eyed at the swirling, suspended vortex of magic around Bellatrix and Sirius, and at Remus. His whole body was shaking, and he was glowing. And then Harry felt it. It was tinged with Remus's magic. Sweet and sharp, laced with pine and canine and as clear and calling as the moon. But it was something far, far more powerful than even the magic that dwelled within Remus. It felt like a warm fireplace, like sunshine and soft skies. It was clear as a stream of fresh water, flowing into a crystal pool. It was all at once tender and terribly fierce and infinite. Harry knew it. It had protected him once as a baby. Harry was certain. It had stopped death. It was the most powerful magic in the world. Remus's love seemed to still the fluttering veil within the archway on its own. And the voices beyond it went silent. Harry watched Remus slowly blink, some understanding welling in his brown eyes, and he raised one long arm, 
wandlessly and wordlessly raising the suspended jet of light that had shot out of Bellatrix's wand a millisecond before Remus's magic had collided with them, up and up. The jet of light moved above Sirius's chest, above his head, higher and higher, until Remus released it, and it flew into the stone wall of the room. Harmless. Remus lowered his arm to shoulder level as he raised the other, turning his right palm up, and Harry watched as Sirius sank slowly back down onto the dais. Remus flicked his left wrist, and Bellatrix flew through the air, her body going rigid mid-fall as Remus struck her with a wandless, silent body-bind spell before she hit the stone floor. And then the golden and gray swirling storm vanished, as quickly as it had come, and the air was left smelling like an electric rain cloud had just passed them by. Remus's chest was heaving but no sounds came out of him, he did not move an inch. He was just staring, staring at Sirius. Sirius stood on the dais, looking at Remus with the shock and laughter frozen halfway on his face, his wand limp in his hand at his side. Harry's godfather opened his mouth and croaked. Bloody hell. Let's not do that again, shall we? There was a ringing, echoing silence. And then Remus Lupin spoke. You promised me that nothing could ever separate us again. Remus Lupin's voice was hoarse, barely more than a breath, as he stared at Sirius. But you almost went beyond the veil without me. Remus's voice cracked. And I couldn't let you go. Remus's legs started to shake, he extended his long arms out towards Sirius, who was running, jumping off the dais, and he ran until he collided with Remus, their arms wrapping around one another, and Remus was sobbing and smiling all at once his brown eyes burning and swimming with tears all at once, and Sirius was stroking Remus's face, wiping away Remus's tears. Beside Harry, Neville stammered. That, that magic, what was that? Dumbledore had turned away from the corralled Death Eaters as Mad-Eye now stood guard over them, Tonks unconscious over his shoulder, Mad-Eye's wand pointed at the Death Eaters now wrapped in ropes. Dumbledore was now staring at Sirius and Remus. Remus was attempting to collect himself, and Remus, still breathing heavily and smiling with tear-stained cheeks, wrapped an arm over Sirius's shoulder, leaning on him as they moved toward them. Where are the others? Dumbledore turned to Harry and Neville. They're back there, Neville said. Hermione's unconscious bud, we could feel a pulse. There was a loud bang and a yell from beside the dais, and they all turned to see Kingsley, who had gone over to where Bellatrix had fallen yell in pain and hit the ground. Bellatrix had somehow gotten out of the body-bind spell and was on her feet, running. Dumbledore whipped toward her, shooting a spell but she deflected it, cackling madly, she was halfway up the stairs. Remus, no, Sirius cried. Remus had dashed forward, Sirius's grip on him was no match for Remus's strength. The air around Remus suddenly felt electric once more. His eyes were glinting with flecks of yellow as he streaked after Bellatrix. She almost killed Sirius, Harry thought. She would have killed him. And before he knew it, Harry was running after Remus, Sirius beside him, as they scrambled up the stone steps. The hem of Bellatrix's robes disappeared through a door as Remus reached the threshold, darting in after her, and Harry and Sirius were just behind them. They were back in the room full of brains suspended in tanks, 
and suddenly the room was filled by a swirl of golden and gray light and Bellatrix was cackling. Not this time, werewolf. The scent and light of Remus's magic abruptly vanished. Sirius and Harry barreled through the rest of the brain room and found Remus was laying on the floor on his back, his eyes closed, his face was pale. Sirius was kneeling in front of Remus in the next second. He's alive, Sirius shouted. But, but I can't leave him, Harry, no. Harry was running, his rage a living thing inside him. He hurtled through the door of the brain room and was back in the circular room. There were so many open doors. Which one was the right one? Where had Bellatrix gone? She'd go to the atrium. She'd try to flee. One door revealed a dim corridor lit by blue-tinged light, as if by torches. It led to the corridor back to the ministry. Bellatrix must have gone through it. Harry ran through the door, sprinting down the corridor to the lifts. Harry dove into one of the lifts, the doors slid shut and Harry was slamming the button for the atrium, and the lift was rising. He forced his way out of the lift before the grills were fully open and looked around. Bellatrix was almost at the telephone lift at the other end of the atrium, but she turned back as Harry sprinted toward her, and aimed another spell at him. Harry dodged, diving behind the fountain, the spell hitting the wall behind him. Come out, come out, little Harry, Bellatrix called in her mock baby voice. Did you come after me, because I got so close to killing my dear cousin? Or was it because I attacked the werewolf? You dare, Harry shouted. Ah, do you love them, little baby Potter? Hatred rose inside Harry so hot and surging that it felt like it had drowned out all other thoughts, all other feelings. He flung out from behind the fountain and screamed, Crucio! Bellatrix screamed, knocked off her feet, but she did not writhe or shriek with pain. She was already standing up again, breathless, no longer laughing. Never used an unforgivable curse before, have you, boy? She yelled. You need to really want to cause pain, to enjoy it. Righteous anger won't hurt me for long. I'll show you how it's done, shall I? I'll give you a lesson. Harry had been edging around the fountain and ducked back behind it as she screamed. Crucio. Potter, I am going to give you one last chance. Give me the prophecy, roll it out toward me now, and I may spare your life. It's gone. Harry roared, and as he shouted it, Pain seared on his forehead, and he felt a surge of fury that was quite unconnected to his own rage. And he knows, Harry cried. Voldemort knows it's gone. What? What do you mean? Bellatrix cried, and there was fear in her voice. The prophecy smashed when I was trying to get Neville up the steps. What do you think Voldemort will say about that? Liar, she shrieked. No, it isn't true. You're lying, master, I tried. I tried, do not punish me. Don't waste your breath, Harry yelled, his eyes closed with the searing pain of his scar. He can't hear you from here. Can't I, Potter? A high, cold voice said. Harry opened his eyes. Tall and thin, his terrible snake-like face white and gaunt, scarlet slit-pupiled eyes staring. Lord Voldemort had appeared in the middle of the atrium of the Ministry of Magic, his wand pointing at Harry. Who stood frozen. Months of preparation, months of effort, and my Death Eaters have let Harry Potter thwart me again. Master, I am sorry. I knew not. 
I was, there was some magic from the werewolf, it trapped me while I was fighting Sirius Black. Bellatrix sobbed, flinging herself down at Voldemort's feet. Master, you should know, he is here, he is below. Voldemort paid her no attention. Avada Kedavra. Harry had not even opened his mouth to resist, but the golden statue of the wizard in the fountain had sprung alive, leaping and landing on the floor with a crash between Harry and Voldemort. The spell glanced off the statue's chest. What? Voldemort breathed, staring around. Dumbledore. Harry looked behind him, heart pounding, and saw Dumbledore standing in the middle of the atrium. Voldemort raised his wand and shot another jet of green light at Dumbledore, who was gone in a whirling of his cloak, reappearing the next second behind Voldemort. He waved his wand and the other statues sprang to life. The statue of the witch dove at Bellatrix, pinning her to the ground, the goblin and the house elf scuttled to the fireplaces set along the atrium wall, and the centaur galloped toward Voldemort, who had vanished and reappeared beside the pool. The statue of the wizard thrust Harry backward, away from the fight, as Dumbledore advanced on Voldemort. It was foolish to come here tonight, Tom, Dumbledore said calmly. The oars are on their way. By which time I shall be gone, and you shall be dead. Voldemort shot another killing curse but Dumbledore dodged it, flicking his own wand. A cold chill passed through the air as the spell shot toward Voldemort, who was forced to conjure a silver shield out of thin air to deflect it. The spell hit the shield and an eerie gong-like note reverberated. You do not seek to kill me, Dumbledore, Voldemort said. Above such brutality, are you? We both know that there are other ways of destroying a person, Tom, Dumbledore said calmly. There is nothing worse than death, Voldemort snarled. You are quite wrong, Dumbledore said, still closing in on Voldemort. Being left behind when another is gone. Being alone. Feeling nothing. That was worse than death. Indeed, your failure to understand that there are things much worse than death has always been your greatest weakness. Another jet of green light shot out from behind Voldemort's silver shield, and this time the galloping centaur took the blast, shattering into a hundred pieces. Voldemort vanished, and there was a blast of flame in midair above Dumbledore just as Voldemort reappeared, standing on the plinth in the middle of the fountain. Another jet of green light shot toward Dumbledore and Fox the Phoenix swooped down and swallowed the green light hole, bursting into flame and falling to the floor, lifeless. In the same moment, Dumbledore brandished his wand in a sweeping motion, and the water in the fountain pool rose up and covered Voldemort as if in a sphere of molten glass. And then Voldemort was gone, and the water fell back into the pool with a splash, slopping over the sides of the fountain and drenching the floor. Master! Bellatrix screamed. Harry made to move out from behind the statue of the wizard but Dumbledore shouted, Stay where you are, Harry! For the first time, Dumbledore seemed frightened. And then Harry's scar burst open, and he knew he was dead. It was pain beyond imagining, pain beyond endurance. He was locked in the coils of a creature with red eyes. They were fused together, bound by pain. There was no escape. And when the creature spoke, it used Harry's mouth, so that even in his agony Harry felt his jaw move. Kill me now, Dumbledore. If death is nothing, Dumbledore, kill the boy. Death is nothing compared to this, Harry thought. Let the pain stop. 
But, a voice in the back of Harry's mind whispered, It is better to feel anger, to feel pain, to feel sorrow, than nothing at all. And as Remus's words rang in Harry's mind, his heart filled with emotion, and the boxes in the back of his mind burst open with a flurry. Ron and Hermione, Ginny, his parents, Remus and Sirius, his feelings for them flooded him. And then he was not in the atrium, or in the coils of the red-eyed creature. He was sitting in front of Remus and Sirius beside the fireplace in Twelve Grimald Place, and they were playing wizard's chess. Harry had just bit into a chocolate frog. Excellent move, Harry, Remus told him, smiling softly. The creature's coils loosened, and the pain was gone, and Harry was lying on the floor, shivering as though he lay upon ice. And there were voices echoing through the atrium, and Harry opened his eyes to see Sirius and Remus running toward him. Sirius's face was horror-struck, Remus's was pale. His magic was trailing weakly behind him, damaged by Bellatrix's curse, and in the next second they were upon him. Harry. Sirius cried, falling upon him, scooping Harry into his chest as Harry shook violently. Are you all right? Remus was saying, on his knees in front of Harry and Sirius, his hands hovering over Harry. Harry was shaking so violently he could not hold his head up properly. Sirius cupped the back of his neck, pressing Harry's head to his chest. Yes, Harry stammered. Where's Voldemort? Where? Who are these? What's? The atrium was full of people, Dumbledore standing in front of where Harry, Sirius, and Remus lay and knelt on the floor. Emerald green flames were emanating from the fireplaces along the wall and a stream of witches and wizards were emerging from them by flu powder. Cornelius Fudge was at the front of the crowd, by the golden statues of the house elf and the goblin. He was there, a scarlet-robed man shouted pointing to a pile of golden rubble where Bellatrix had been lying trapped moments before. I saw him, Mr. Fudge, I swear it was you-know-who. He grabbed a woman and apparated. I know, Williamson, I know, I saw him too. Fudge gibbered, gasping, his mouth open. Merlin's beard, here, here, in the Ministry of Magic. If you proceed downstairs into the Department of Mysteries, Cornelius, Dumbledore said, you will find several escaped Death Eaters contained in the Death Chamber bound by an anti-apparition jinx and awaiting your decision as to what to do with them. I, I don't well. Fudge blustered. Very well, Dawlish, Williamson, go down to the Department of Mysteries and see Dumbledore, you are going to tell me exactly. We can discuss that after I have sent Harry Potter, Sirius Black, and Remus Lupin to Hogwarts. Dumbledore said. What? Harry Potter? Black and Lupin? What? Why are they here? What is this about? I shall explain everything once Harry is back at school. Dumbledore walked to a shattered piece of the centaur's statue and pointed his wand at it, muttering, Portus. Dumbledore then turned back to Fudge. You will give the order to remove Dolores Umbridge from Hogwarts, he said. You will tell your auras to stop searching for my care of magical creatures professor so that he can return to work. I will give you half an hour of my time tonight, in which I think we shall be able to cover the important bits of what has transpired here tonight. After that, I shall need to return to my school. If you need more help from me, you are, of course, more than welcome to contact me at Hogwarts. Dumbledore turned his back to Fudge and held out the port key to Harry, Sirius, and Remus. I shall see you three in half an hour, Dumbledore said. One, two, three.
Harry and his guardians landed in Dumbledore's office. You're still shaking, Harry, Remus said softly at once. Harry was still held tightly to Sirius's chest, and Remus towed them both toward the fireplace in the headmaster's office. Remus pulled his wand out of his robes and transfigured one of the chairs into a sofa and guided Sirius and Harry onto it. Remus brought forth a blanket a moment later and handed it to Sirius, who released his grip on Harry to wrap the blanket over Harry's shoulders. Harry wrapped himself and when he looked up, Remus was holding out a chocolate frog in the palm of his long and scarred hands. Harry took it and bit into the chocolate. His shuddering slowed a bit, he felt warmer, but he looked up at Remus, at his pale face. There were more premature lines on Remus's face, Harry was certain. Bellatrix's curse, Harry stammered. You were unconscious. I'm quite all right, Harry, Remus assured him gently. It's yourself you should be worried about, you're awfully white. Remus turned toward the fire and a small ball of green flames appeared now in the palm of his hand. He crouched beside the hearth and let the green flame fall into the fireplace, where the fire within now burned more brightly, the heat filling the office. For a moment, they were all silent. Harry's shivering slowed. Sirius was running a hand soothingly on Harry's back. The logs in the hearth cracked quietly. But Harry stayed looking at Remus crouched in front of the flames. You saved Sirius, Harry whispered. Dumbledore called. He called the room with the archway the death chamber. Sirius was going to fall through the veil, wasn't he? He was going to, going to join them, but you stopped it. Remus turned away from the flames. His brown eyes were huge in his pale face. In the light of the flames, Harry saw that there were new streaks of grey in Remus's hair. They heard me, Remus whispered, now looking at Sirius. What did you tell them? Sirius croaked. Remus stared at Sirius a long time. He seemed to be seeing something upon Sirius's face that was more than a look of mingled awe and fear. Remus was seeing a thousand memories, and the potential for a thousand more. Remus did not speak, he did not answer aloud. He moved agilely and sat beside Sirius on the sofa, wrapping his long arms around Sirius and bending to kiss his forehead. One of his long and scarred hands found their way to rest atop Sirius's heart. Harry had to tell them, he found his voice. Voldemort, he tricked me, he sent me a vision. Harry looked toward Sirius and Remus, beseeching them. It was of you both. I thought he had you. Sirius, I thought he was using the Cruciatus curse on you, he had Remus in a silver net. Harry's eyes turned to meet Remus's eyes. He, he was going to wrap the silver around your throat. I thought it was real, and you didn't answer the mirror. Remus extended his free hand towards Harry, and gripped Harry's hand in his own. It was so warm and so strong. And Harry felt it, the tender, fierce, endlessness of that power within Remus that he had felt within the death chamber, that was separate from the power of the wolf, coursing through him. This other force burned brighter than his magic, which seemed to have dimmed severely from Bellatrix's curse. Again, Remus didn't speak. He just held Harry's hand, and let his warmth and this other power seep into Harry's skin, filling him. Sirius wrapped an arm around Harry's shoulders and pulled him close, so that they all held one another. They stayed like that for a long while. Remus holding Sirius, 
one hand feeling the steady beat of Sirius's heart under his palm, his lips on the cool skin of Sirius's forehead, his other hand holding Harry's, and Sirius with his arm around Harry, shuddered every few moments with residual fear and shock. Harry shivered still, despite his warmth. In the windows behind them, dawn was breaking the skies. And then the flames of the fireplace burned emerald green, and Dumbledore's tall form came forth from the fire. As he stepped into his office, the portraits on the wall gave cries of welcome. Thank you, Dumbledore said softly. He did not look at them at first, but strode toward the perch beside the door and withdrew. From inside his robes, the tiny, featherless fox, whom he placed gently on the tray of ashes beneath the golden post where the full-grown fox normally stood. Remus kissed Sirius's forehead softly and withdrew, lowering his hand from Sirius's chest, squeezing Harry's hand once before releasing it as he sat upright. Sirius, however, reached for Remus's free hand now and interlaced their fingers tightly, and he did not unwrap his arm from Harry's shoulders. None of Harry's fellow students are going to suffer lasting damage from the night's events. Madame Pomfrey is treating them. Nymphadora Tonks may need to spend a few days in St. Mungo's, but will make a full recovery. Harry realized that despite the good news, that Remus and Sirius had stiffened. Remus's jaw was flexing and faint echoes of his magic were pulsing in the air around him. Sirius's eyes were like flints, staring at Dumbledore. Dumbledore's blue eyes raised and he looked fully at them for the first time. It is my fault, what has transpired tonight, Dumbledore said sadly. I did not give you three the information that you sorely deserved. Harry should never have believed for an instant that there was a necessity for him to go to the Department of Mysteries tonight. I should have told him, and you both, Sirius and Remus, that Voldemort might try to lure Harry to the Department of Mysteries. If I had, Harry would never have been tricked into going there tonight. None of them spoke and Dumbledore sighed. I owe you all an explanation for an old man's mistakes. The sun had risen properly now. In the windows, there was a rim of dazzling orange visible over the mountains, and the sky above it was colorless and bright. The light fell upon Dumbledore, upon the silver of his eyebrows and beard, upon the lines gouged deeply in his ancient face. You see, Dumbledore said, taking a seat in the armchair across from the sofa where Harry, Sirius, and Remus sat. I guessed fifteen years ago when I saw the scar upon Harry's forehead, what it might mean. I guessed that it might be the sign of a connection forged between he and Voldemort. And it became apparent, shortly after Harry joined the magical world, that I was correct, and that his scar was giving him warnings when Voldemort was close to him, or else feeling powerful emotion. I know, Harry croaked. And this ability of yours, Dumbledore said, looking directly at Harry, to detect Voldemort's presence, even when he is disguised, and to know what he is feeling when his emotions are roused, has become more and more pronounced since Voldemort returned to his own body and his full powers. Neither Sirius nor Remus gave any indication that this was news to them, because, of course it wasn't. They stayed stiff and bristled, Sirius's dark eyes sharp, Remus's pale face straining with tempering his anger. More recently, Dumbledore said, his eyes gazing now at Harry's guardians. I became concerned that Voldemort might realize that this connection between him and Harry exists. And sure enough, there came a time when Harry entered so far into Voldemort's mind and thoughts that he sensed Harry's presence. I am speaking, of course, of the night Harry witnessed the attack on Mr. Weasley. 
Yes, Sirius croaked, his voice and face taut. We know this. Dumbledore nodded sagely. But did you all not wonder why it was not I who explained this to Harry? Why I did not teach him occlumency? Severus is an accomplished occlumens. Remus spoke at last, his voice barely more than a whisper. Yes, Dumbledore agreed. But it is more than that. Harry, didn't you wonder why I had not so much as looked at you for months? Harry looked up at Dumbledore and saw that he looked so very sad and tired. I wondered, Harry mumbled. I wondered why you did not look at me. Dumbledore nodded and spoke heavily. I believed it could not be long before Voldemort attempted to force his way into Harry's mind, to manipulate and misdirect his thoughts, and I was not eager to give him more incentives to do so. I was sure that if he realized Harry and I's relationship was, or ever had been, closer than that of headmaster and pupil, he would seize his chance to use Harry as a spy on me. I feared the uses to which he would put Harry, the possibility that he may try to possess him. Dumbledore's eyes went solely to Harry's now. I believe I was right to think that Voldemort would have made use of you in such a way. On those rare occasions when we had close contact, I thought I saw a shadow of Voldemort stir behind your eyes, Harry. You could have told us this, Remus said quietly. We told you that Harry felt the stirring of the snake, of what we soon found out was Voldemort, inside him the night he had the vision of Arthur's attack. But we did not understand the true nature of what it meant. I understand your feeling, Remus, but telling you and Sirius would have meant telling Harry, and therefore Voldemort, Dumbledore said sadly. And Voldemort's aim in possessing Harry, as he demonstrated tonight, would have not been my destruction, but Harry's. He hoped, when he possessed Harry briefly a short while ago, that I would sacrifice Harry in the hope of killing him. A growl emanated low in Sirius's chest. Remus's fingers, interlaced with Sirius's, squeezed so tightly the knuckles turned white and the scars there burned red. I should have told you all that only the people whom the prophecies in the Department of Mysteries refer to can lift the prophecies from the shelves without suffering madness. If I had, Harry would never have been fooled by Voldemort's false vision. We were on a mission, Harry. Sirius croaked, turning to look at his godson. A stakeout. It lasted all night and almost all day. Remus and I. We should have told you we would be gone so long. That's why we didn't answer the mirror. Severus contacted us while we were hidden, Remus said quietly. He told us that you believed us taken. Voldemort took advantage of Sirius's known role as your godfather, Harry, Dumbledore said sadly. And of the information he had received from Lucius Malfoy of the close bond between Sirius and Remus. Severus refused to continue to teach Harry occlumency. Sirius snarled, shaking suddenly with rage. Remus told Mad-Eye, he said he'd get the message to you, but we heard nothing of it. Dumbledore nodded and spoke heavily. It was a mistake for me to not teach Harry myself, though, I was sure, at the time, that nothing could have been more dangerous than to open Harry's mind further to Voldemort while in my presence, but I forgot, another old man's mistake, that some wounds run too deep for healing. I thought Professor Snape could overcome his feelings about Harry's father, James, and I was wrong. Sirius was shaking still, and Remus's hold on Sirius's hand was still severely tight. Tell him, Dumbledore, Remus whispered. The flaw in your plans. I sense it in you. Dumbledore turned sagely to Harry. I cared about you too much, Dumbledore said simply. I cared more for your happiness than you knowing the truth, more for your peace of mind than my plan, more for your life than the lives that might be lost if the plan failed. 
In other words, I acted exactly as Voldemort expects us fools who love to act. I did not want to burden you, Harry, with the greatest burden of all. The prophecy. Sirius growled. Tell him. Out with it. Dumbledore sighed heavily, his bright blue eyes on Harry. Voldemort tried to kill you, Harry, when you were a child, because of a prophecy made shortly before your birth. He knew the prophecy had been made, though he did not know its full contents. He set out to kill you when you were still a baby, believing he was fulfilling the terms of the prophecy. He discovered, to his cost, that he was mistaken when the curse intended for you backfired. And so, since his return to his body, and particularly since your extraordinary escape from him last year, he has been determined to hear that prophecy in its entirety. The prophecy holds the knowledge of how to destroy you. The prophecy smashed, Harry said blankly. The thing that smashed was merely the record of the prophecy kept by the Department of Mysteries, Dumbledore said. But the prophecy was made to someone, and that person has the means of recalling it perfectly. You, Remus Lupin said softly. Yes, I heard the prophecy on a cold, wet night sixteen years ago, in a room above the bar at the Hog's Head. I had gone there to see an applicant for the post of divination teacher. I think it is high time all three of you heard the prophecy that sent James and Lily into hiding, that led to their deaths, and Harry's fate. Dumbledore rose out of the armchair and strode to the cabinet by Fox's perch, withdrawing the stone basin of the pensive. He walked to his desk and placed the pensive upon it raising his wand to his temple. He set the memory that he withdrew into the swirling basin and then prodded the silvery substance within with his wand tip. A figure rose out of the pensive, draped in shawls, and when Sybil Trelawney spoke, it was with hoarse, harsh tones. The one with the power to vanquish the Dark Lord approaches. Born to those who have thrice defied him, born as the seventh month dies. And the Dark Lord will mark him as his equal but he will have power that the Dark Lord knows not. And either must die at the hand of the other. For neither can live while the other survives. The silver figure of Professor Trelawney faded. The silence within the office was absolute. And then Sirius spoke. You didn't even share the full prophecy with James and Lily. You. You just said that a prophecy had been made that put Harry at risk to Voldemort. That they had to hide. They knew. We knew nothing of the rest. I know, Sirius. And I know Voldemort's information was also incomplete, Dumbledore said, nodding. The eavesdropper in the hog's head was detected only a short way into the prophecy and thrown from the building. He heard only the first part, foretelling the birth of a boy in July who had thrice defied Voldemort. Consequently, he could not warn his master that to attack Harry would be to risk transferring power to him, to mark him as his equal. So Voldemort never knew that there might be danger in attacking you, that it might be wise to wait and learn more. He did not know that you would power the Dark Lord's nose not. But I don't, Harry mumbled. I haven't got any powers he hasn't got, I couldn't fight the way he did tonight, I can't possess people, or, or kill them. Dumbledore smiled sadly. We saw a miraculous feat take place tonight, he said turning now to look at Sirius and Remus. I am speaking now of Remus's rescue of Sirius in the death chamber. On the one hand there was the magic given to you by the wolf that dwells within you, Remus, that allowed you to preternaturally sense the threat to Sirius's life, and sense the calling of the voices beyond the veil waiting for him. But along with that magic, we all also felt and saw a force coming from within Remus that at once is more wonderful and more terrible than death, than intelligence, than even the forces of nature and the universe. 
It was not the magic of the wolf that saved Sirius tonight. It was Remus's love for him. Harry looked at Sirius and Remus. They were still holding hands, their backs straight, but the anger at Dumbledore had dissipated. Sirius was staring up at Remus's face like it was a map of the world, and he must memorize it. Remus felt his gaze and turned to look down at him. What passed between their eyes was beyond words. Dumbledore turned to look at Harry, his bright blue eyes slightly wet. And Harry possesses that power, too, in such quantities which Voldemort does not at all. Love took you, Harry, to the Department of Mysteries to save you both, Sirius and Remus. And it also saved you from possession by Voldemort, because he could not bear to reside in a body so full of the force he detests. In the end, it mattered not that you could not close your mind, Harry. It was Remus's heart that saved Sirius, and your heart, Harry, that saved you from Voldemort. The logs cracked in the fireplace, and the baby fox made soft cries upon the pile of ashes. At last Sirius spoke, peeling his eyes away from Remus. The end of the prophecy. That neither can live. Sirius's voice broke. While the other survives. Harry felt as if a well of despair had just opened within his chest. Does that mean? He croaked. That one of us has got to kill the other one, in the end. Yes, Dumbledore answered. Somewhere beyond the office walls, Harry could hear the sound of voices as students headed to the Great Hall for an early breakfast. I feel I owe you all one last explanation, Dumbledore said softly. You may all have perhaps wondered why I did not choose Harry as a prefect. I must confess that I rather thought that Harry had enough responsibility to be going on with. Harry caught the glint of something bright and clear gleaming upon Sirius's and Remus's cheeks. He turned to them and saw tear tracks trickling down their faces. Chapter 27 The Daily Prophet headline the next morning read, He who must not be named returns. Hermione read the newspaper article aloud from her bed beside Ron's in the hospital wing. Harry was sitting at the end of Ron's bed, and Ginny, whose ankle had been mended by Madame Pomfrey, was curled up at the foot of Hermione's bed. Neville, whose nose was returned to its normal shape and size, was in a chair between the two beds, and Luna was reading the quibbler upside down and apparently not taking in a word that Hermione was saying. The curse Dalahov had hit Hermione with was less effective than it could have been since Dalahov had not been able to say it aloud, but had still caused her quite a bit of damage. She would be taking ten potions a day for a week and restricted to bed rest. Remus and Sirius had left Hogwarts shortly after visiting Harry's friends in the hospital wing after they left Dumbledore's office. They returned to headquarters and assured Harry that they would see him at Platform 9 and 3 quarters soon. They had asked Harry to call them on the mirror every day until then. Behind them, at the far end of the hospital wing, Umbridge was lying in a bed and gazing up at the ceiling. Dumbledore had strode alone into the forbidden forest to rescue her from the centaurs. Since she had returned to the castle, Umbridge had not uttered a single word. It was now decided that Trelawney and Ferenz would be sharing divination classes and Professor Flidwick had preserved part of the swamp that Fred and George had made on the second floor, roping it off as a monument to the Weasley twins. Hagrid had returned as well, and Harry had gone to visit him to tell him how Hermione and Ron were doing. Harry had decided not to tell Ron and Hermione about the prophecy, yet. 
as Harry, Neville, Ginny, and Luna stepped out of the hospital wing after their visit with Ron and Hermione, descending the marble staircase, heading through the entrance hall toward the Great Hall for lunch, Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle stepped into the entrance hall. Harry and his friends stopped dead, and so did Malfoy and his minions. Malfoy glanced around, seeing the entrance hall otherwise empty, and said in a low voice, You're dead, Potter. Funny, Harry said, raising his eyebrows. You'd think I'd have stopped walking around then. You're going to pay, Malfoy said, his voice barely louder than a whisper. I'm going to make you pay for what you've done to my father. Well, I'm terrified now, Harry said. I suppose Voldemort's just a warm-up act compared to you three, what's the matter? Harry said, as Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle blanched at the name. He's your dad's mate, isn't he? Not scared of him, are you? The Dementors have left Azkaban. Malfoy hissed. Dad and the others will be out soon. Yeah, I expect they will. Harry nodded. But at least everyone knows what scumbags they are now. Malfoy's hand flew toward his wand, but Harry, Neville, Ginny, and Luna were faster. They had all drawn their wands before Malfoy's fingers had even reached the pocket of his robes. Potter, a voice shouted. Snape had emerged on the staircase. What are you all doing? We're trying to decide what curse to use on Malfoy, sir. Ginny said fiercely. Put your wands away at once. Snape spat. Ten points from Ravenclaw, Miss Lovegood, and thirty points from Griff. Snape paused looking at the giant empty Gryffindor hourglass in the entrance hall. Ah, I see there are no longer any points from Gryffindor to take away. In that case, we'll have to... Add some more. They all turned. Professor McGonagall had just stepped up the stone front steps into the castle. She was carrying a tartan carpet bag in one hand and leaning heavily on a walking stick, but otherwise looked quite well. You too, Crab and Goyle she said, shrugging off her traveling cloak. Take my cloak and bag to my office for me. They took them and stumped away up the marble staircase. Right then, Professor McGonagall said, looking up at the hourglasses. Well, I think Potter and his friends ought to have 50 points each for alerting the world to the return of you-know-who. What say you, Professor Snape? What? Snape snapped. Well, I suppose... So that's fifty each for Potter, two Weasleys, Longbottom, and Miss Granger, she said. And fifty of course to Ravenclaw for Miss Lovegood. Now you wanted to take thirty from Gryffindor, Professor Snape, so there we are. Now, it is a glorious day outside and I think you ought all to be enjoying it. The end of term arrived a week later. Umbridge had tried to sneak off away from the castle the day before but Peeves seized his last chance to do as Fred and George instructed and chased after her gleefully whacking her alternately with a walking stick and a sock full of chalk. Most of the students seemed to recognize that walking stick, and Harry was quite certain that Professor McGonagall had loaned it to Peeves for that exact purpose. The train ride to London on the Hogwarts Express was enjoyable in a rather vengeful way. Firstly, Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle tried to jump Harry on his way back from the toilet, but unfortunately for them, they did it right outside of a compartment full of DA members. By the time Ernie McMillan, Hannah Abbott, Susan Bones, Anthony Goldstein, and Terry Boot were finished with them, Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle resembled three gigantic slugs squeezed into Hogwarts uniforms. Harry, Ernie, 
and Anthony hoisted them up onto a luggage rack and left them there to ooze. As the train slowed down at King's Cross, Harry lifted Hedwig's cage and dragged his trunk off the train. After the ticket inspector signaled to he, Ron, Ginny, Neville, and Hermione, they stepped through the magical barrier between platforms 9 and 10 and arrived on the other side. Sirius and Remus stood waiting for him, surrounded by members of the Order of the Phoenix. Tonks, her hair bubblegum pink and wearing cargo jeans and a bright purple t-shirt bearing the words The Weird Sisters, was grinning hugely and waving. Mad-Eye looked quite sinister with his bowler hat pulled low over his magical eye and leaning with a gnarled hand on his staff. Molly and Arthur Weasley stood wearing their muggle best, with Bill nearby with his long hair and ear ring, as well as Fred and George, both wearing brand new jackets of a green, scaly material. Remus was wearing a brown jumper and corduroy trousers. His face was still pale, as the June 30th full moon was now two days away and he stood close by Sirius. In the bright lights of the train station, the new streaks of gray in his hair, given certainly to him by the use of his magic and Bellatrix's curse, were quite apparent, as were the premature lines and the scars on his face. Sirius was beaming, wearing a black leather jacket and black jeans, bouncing from foot to foot, and ran to Harry as soon as he could. Puff! Sirius cried barreling into Harry and almost making Harry fall over backward. Molly rushed forward to her own kids at the same time. Ron, Ginny. Hello, Harry, Remus said, smiling softly down at him as Sirius towed Harry over to the group, grabbing Hedwig's cage and Harry's trunk from Harry. Harry beamed up at Remus. How are you? Remus patted Harry's shoulder and gave him a wink. Stronger than I look. Too right, Harry and Sirius said together and Remus chuckled. Later that evening, Harry sat on the carpet beside the fireplace in the drawing room of Twelve Grimold Place. A wizard's chess board lay in front of him, and he was considering where to ask his pawn to move. The logs in the fireplace crackled, and a record was spinning in the record player that Remus had brought down from he and Sirius's bedroom. Harry bit into a chocolate frog and looked up. Sirius and Remus were sitting cross-legged on the other side of the chessboard, watching him, their eyes, one set dark, the other soft brown with flecks of green, were lit molten and warm by the light of the fire. Sirius's hand was on Remus's knee, and Remus turned away from Harry for just a moment to tuck a strand of Sirius's black hair behind his ear. Sirius gently caught Remus's hand as it lifted away from Sirius's ear, and brought it to his lips tenderly kissing the back of Remus's knuckles. Harry directed his knight to move, rather than his pawn. Sirius grinned. Nice one, pup. Remus smiled softly. Excellent move, Harry. The record spun, and Harry smiled back at his guardians. Those are illuminating
is a very, very, very fine house with Finny two Tate. cats in the yard. Thanks for listening to this text-to-speech podfic composed by Burning Aurora.